This program deals with devil worship and satanic beliefs. It contains explicit scenes and descriptions of violent crimes and rituals. Americans are asking who attacked our country. You have declared a subliminal jihad against the United States. Can you tell us why? Everything pertaining to what's happening has never come to the surface. The world will never know the true facts of what occurred, my motives. And night fell on a different world. And Iblis is thinking, you know, I should be getting this position, not Adam, and this guy is created from dirt. And how did the army feel about you being head of the Temple of Seth? And the conspiracy theorists can say what they will, but... I want you to give me power over Adam, and I want you to give me soldiers and minions and all of these things. The people have, have so much to gain and have such a material motive for putting a position on me. We'll never let the truth come about more to me. And I want you to be able to give me the ability to whisper into the hearts of mankind. And uh, who was the grotto leader? I don't remember his name. You don't remember the name of a person who involved you in murder? Are they speaking very high position, Jack? Yes. Welcome back to Subliminal Jihad, episode 75B. I am your co-host, Dimitri. I'm Khaled. And today, we're going to continue the slog through our 20 questions. <laughs> yeah, uh, the, the joyful romp through our delightful questions. Uh, yes, yes. Yeah. Yes. Um, we, yeah. We love we'll it. Hopefully we hopefully make this. it through the 20 that we set for ourselves between these two episodes. Uh, no guarantees, but we're going to try. No guarantees, um, but we're yeah. we we're rested and we're ready. We're going to tackle all of the Grotto Discord's questions, uh, I think, to the bloody end today. And we got some good ones. Yeah, yeah yes. Inshallah, we'll hit 20. If not, we'll definitely get them at some point next month. We've got a little bit of a backlog, like we mentioned last time. But, you know, without further ado, I guess we can yeah. get into seven. We can jump uh, right in. Okay, yeah, so I'll... I'll I'll read number seven from Jay Bruntus, and they ask, Any thoughts on Hamilton Morris? He has a show about psychedelics for Vice featuring cameos by Sasha Shulgin and Timothy Wiley. His dad produced the Wormwood series about Frank Olson and the more recent My Psychedelic Love Story about Joanna Harcourt Smith's relationship with Tim Leary. Yeah, I mean, I'm, like, sussed out by psychedelic people, like, people who are, like, into psychedelia, like, in general, you know, not, like, your average dude in the street who, like, loves psychedelics, like, you know, maybe we don't have, like, too much in common, but especially the people who are, like, you know, the big ambassadors of the psychedelic subject, I'm Mm -hmm. a bit more sussed out by them, you know, if you're, like, a guy who's, like, into psychedelics, I don't know, yeah, I looked at some of the, I didn't actually watch them, but I looked at some of the episodes of Hamilton Morris's show about psychedelics. And they seems like, uh, for instance, like a positive PCP story. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't know about that. Uh, yeah, yeah. I actually. Coyote, I, the Divine Messenger, Wizards of DMT, a fungal uh-huh. fairy tale. Uh, yeah, I bet. Yeah. You're getting pulled I, into a fairy ring and disappearing forever. Uh, <laughs> and yeah, being tormented by gin with little pitchforks because you trusted fungus. Yes, uh, yes, yeah. exactly. Yeah, I, I actually did not know until this question was asked that, you know, I feel a little bit like a punk for not knowing this. But, you know, I, Hamilton uh, Morris is the son of famed documentarian Errol Morris. Mm-hmm. Which makes so much sense. 
<laughs> it makes yeah. so much sense. Um, I don't know how familiar you are with Errol Morris, but you know he's one a of those bit, names yeah. that is just. I remember oh, he's the, him doing the Theranos thing. He sure did. Yeah, he sure did. And ever since I saw the, the him pop up in the Theranos thing, I don't know what it was about Errol Morris. Maybe it's just because he was like so celebrated and acclaimed as a documentarian. I never watched The Thin Blue Line. It was one of those, like, bitter, like, eh, this is too much of a classic, and it's annoying. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Uh, you know, probably to my detriment. But, you know, he's popped up, and, you know, he's worked for, he's done famous commercials for Apple and all kinds of big brands, and he did do this, like, very weird hagiographic series of commercials for Theranos and Elizabeth Holmes, and that definitely deserves a huge deep dive episode of its own one day like we've referenced it a few times but yeah. i know some people have dug up some really wacky shit that was not covered in the alex gibney documentary and you know just a side note i think we're talking about you know these uh, these media people that get to get they get the beats on these hot topics you know many of which we do talk about on subliminal jihad like psychedelics mm. or the CIA's MK Ultra program that's covered in Wormwood. And you always, you know, uh, over the years, I've noticed certain patterns of certain individuals seem to get all of these projects, like in a row. Like, if you look at the filmography of Alex Gibney, it's just like a absolute, you know, it's like a subliminal jihad episode list, basically. But you know, that's not exactly what you know, the take of the documentary is. Like, just to give you a little bit uh, of a breakdown here, let's see. Enron, the smartest guys in the room, uh, Taxi to the Dark Side, which is about, I think, torture and abuses in, uh, or killing an Afghan taxi driver, a military murder scandal. Gonzo, the life and work of Dr. Hunter S. Thompson. Casino Jack in the United States of Money, about um, Jack Abramoff. Um, let's see, Client 9, The Rise and Fall of Elliot Spitzer. Magic Trip, Ken Kesey's search for a cool, cool. place with a K. Yeah. Cool. Wow, a cool place. Isn't yes. this cool? Uh, yes. We Steal Secrets, the story of WikiLeaks, the Armstrong lie. I don't care about like Lance Armstrong, but that feels like probably still a psyop. Finding Fella, uh, that pisses me off. He got to do a fella Kuti documentary. Well, what is the um, Armstrong lie? The lie that he like was a great cyclist without drugs or the lie that he... I, I believe it was like a complicated kind of portrait of him kind of copying to like using steroids and that whole kind of stupid thing that mm-hmm. happened. Right. Um, right. Okay. And, and then, OK, but then, you know, we're not done. Then we have um, going clear Scientology in the prison of belief. Right. Steve Jobs, the man in the machine. And let's see, he keeps going. Let's see. Oh, the looming tower, the big series about 9-11. Um the Inventor, Out for Blood in Silicon Valley, which is about Theranos. Uh, then there is Citizen K, a documentary about Mikhail Khodorkovsky, which, of course, was one of the you know cor- super corrupt tycoons that basically privatized the Soviet economy in the 1990s with a bunch of Western help. And let's see, I don't know, Agents of Chaos. Oh, it's about Russian interference in the 2016 elections. And then <laughs> The Crime funny. of the Century, which is about the opioid epidemic. So, mm-hmm. I mean, he's just on top of everything, right? And, you know, Errol Morris kind of has... He's always firing them out. Uh, I guess, you know, uh, he does one about the Trump administration's response to covid right after the one about the russian interference 
Uh, yeah, yeah, and yeah. of course, okay, the hot take... in September, and one was released in October. Damn, doing a lot of documentaries, scrambling. Uh, he is so, so yeah, basically prolific. prolific. Exactly, yeah. and it's always on HBO, and also, I know that the, um, the uh, very intelligent uh, Twitter user Emma Booth has, I think, written, like, some Medium articles about how Theranos probably wasn't what we were told it was by Alex Gibney or others, and that I think the kind of running hypothesis maybe at this point is that the real point of Theranos was to develop, like, a portable system for transporting pathogens in, like, a very durable and convenient way which is why people like Mad Dog Mattis and George Schultz and all these big Pentagon people were heavily invested in it. And she would always say things like, we're testing this in Afghanistan. And it's even, you know, it seems like the kind of thing that might have like, uh, I don't know, biological warfare applications, uh, being able to, you know, say, uh, transport a bioweapon and then release it like in a wet market. Well, I mean, I don't um, know. It depends, <laughs> I guess, because... I mean, I don't know. If the device worked, maybe, although it seems like a totally different function. Like, the idea behind Edison was that it would, you would, like, you know, get a little finger prick. You could put, like, a slide of blood in it. It would immediately run, like, a million blood tests. Yeah, right? I know. So I and that, that, that would help to, like, screen the whole population at, like, mass speed. And then you could, like, unload a bioweapon. I mean, or, you know, it would just be useful in general, like, because obviously part of warfare is, like, uh, maintaining the health of your own forces, and it would be, like, an well, Also, I, I mean, I, I mean uh, loading pathogens onto a thing that is extremely kind of portable and durable and then being able to release it as a weapon is it the other application that, you know, they kind of don't talk well, about in the documentary. Yeah, Ed, but, but we don't uh, need the therapy machine to do that. We could just do that with, like, you know, a vial of, like, smallpox or something. Just, like, put it on some, you know... You might be right. You might be right about that, but I don't know. I, I'd have to look. Not to get this I question like, was about uh, yeah. Hamilton, Lewis, <laughs> yeah, but, uh, so, but yeah, I, I just but. want to say uh, interesting that um, that actually uh, Alex Gibney. It should be said um, was actually the stepson of a guy named Reverend William Sloan Coffin, who was uh, an athlete, a talented pianist, a CIA officer, and chaplain of Yale University, where the influence of H. Richard Niebuhr's social philosophy led him to become a leader in the civil rights and peace movements. And I guess, you know, he was like a kind of um, like liberal uh, Presbyterian, like Yale chaplain guy who was also a CIA officer. And his son was in kind of an interesting secret society. Alex Gibney was in a, an interesting secret society fraternity called St. Anthony Hall, which has been described as the most secretive and waspiest uh, secret society in the United States, even more so than Skull and Bones. And we'll come back to them at a later date, but just be no just be knowing that Alex Gibney is a proud member of that secret society and gets mm -hmm. to do all of these things. But anyways, back to, uh, yeah. you know, well, Hamilton Norris and psychedelic Aaron shit. Uh, and both documentarians or do they know I, I guess the, uh, basically yeah, yeah they're both these are the two these are basically the two biggest documentarians right now is like Errol Morris and Alex Gibney are like he Alex Gibney is basically like the next Errol Morris like he mm -hmm. feels ordained in the exact same way and I don't know I was looking into Errol Morris's biography and it, it, he does have a interesting career trajectory like going back to the 
kind of very beginning. I guess he talked himself into grad school at Princeton, uh, but like didn't actually, but kind of like then dropped out. And he actually got kind of got started with like Werner Herzog. And his first film that he tried to make was a bunch of interviews with the serial killer Ed Gein in Wisconsin. And he didn't, and that's how he like somehow met Werner Herzog and they never ended up releasing it but then he went on to uh, do a lot of things like he worked as a private investigator for like some firm that did a lot of like Wall Street cases in the 80s which Mm -hmm. you know it says that on his Wikipedia I don't know exactly what that means and then of course he made the thin blue line which is about like a murder kind of scandal in Texas and then became a big star and blah 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 and then you know moved into commercials as well um including one for the Oscars, which starred, it starred his 15-year-old son, Hamilton Morris, and I guess one commercial in, there was also an Apple commercial in 2002 starring Hamilton Norris's high school friend, Ellen Feiss, which became an internet meme. So, you know, pretty cool. And so Hamilton Norris himself, I mean, I always saw his, like, Vice things pop up, and I, I think I watched a few trailers back in the day, whenever, like, Hamilton's uh, pharmacopia kind of came out oh, and yeah, I remember just show, getting right? Im- yeah. immediate the kind of vibes you always get from vice just the kind of sus yeah. like this toxic I don't know it's like toxic Brooklyn uh kind of mm, like isn't this cool bro kind of thing and it's yeah. just kind of like a whoa trippy fun aspect to like every single truck like you said I didn't realize he had an episode uh kind of extolling that's like literally PCP. episode two is titled a positive PCP story <laughs> Wow. Wow. Uh, um, cool. Episode five is fish and trips. I assume like there's no descriptions of these episodes that I'm seeing on, on just on his Wikipedia article. But I assume that that had to do something with like either going on a boat and tripping or like the psychedelic fish. I'll have to look it up. Uh, but yeah. Yeah. But there's definitely I mean, it's interesting that his father made this like nefarious documentary Wormwood, which I did watch a few years ago. And I feel like as far as limited hangouts go, it is an, it, like that is something I would maybe recommend to like a normie liberal if I wanted to like try to MK pill them a little bit. And they actually they have like no basis of kind of context for believing it. I'd be like, mm-hmm. hey, go watch like Warmwood by Errol Morris. You you know Errol Morris, right? He's so respected and everything, and you know it's got all these uh, you know big actors in it, and it's so well produced, and you know all that kind of stuff. And it does make a pretty convincing case that like the CIA murdered Frank Olson. You know, it has his son in it, but at the end of it, it does you kind of hit the hard limit, especially also with another interesting sort of similar character, Seymour Hirsch, who appears in that, who kind of like at the end, you know, comes like basically says, like, I'm not going to tell you everything I've been told or everything that I know because I'm not going to compromise my like top secret sources inside of the government, which is kind of a thing with Cy Hirsch. She always goes back to like, I got my sources. And a lot of times he's right. And he broke a lot of stories, but it does make you kind of wonder why and is he ever being fed like false information by these sources? Like what's going on there? And, you know, it kind of leaves a kind of inconclusive thing. I think actually the best thing it does, and I, if I recall correctly, Warmore does go into this, is it makes a pretty convincing case that the U.S. was actually dropping germ warfare on uh, the DPRK during the Korean War and that it wasn't actually just Frank Olson wanting to uh, blow the whistle about MK Ultra 
and LSD and all that kind of stuff and like mind control experiments, what he really was probably going to blow the whistle on was his participation in the biological warfare research to create like biological pathogens to drop on North Korea to destroy their crops and like, you know, spread pestilence and all kinds of things like that. Which, by the way, that was actually the origin of the whole MK Ultra excuse by Alan Dulles in the first place was that. These uh, POWs, people, pilots that have been shot down during the Korean War, went on the radio in the DPRK and announced that they had been participating in germ warfare bombing. And because that was, uh, I think, a pretty clear violation of the Geneva Convention, you know, uh, and was a pretty embarrassing thing uh, to basically cop to. We could not cop to it, basically, that, you know, uh, the internal explanation that Alan Dulles gave like inside of the government at least to the lower levels was oh my god like this is so ridiculous and obviously we're not doing this that these guys must have been brainwashed folks like they must have been brainwashed there's the only explanation for it because like who would think that like what a crazy who would who would ever say that we were dropping germ warfare what a wacky idea but that's apparently I guess Frank Olson kind of started to have a crisis of conscience about it and that's when he took a he took a flight out of that hotel window and ended up dead and maybe he was like dosed with lsd beforehand to like maybe it was like to do i mean maybe they just started dosing him i don't i I forget the the exact like uh the way the events unfolded but you know perhaps they started fucking with him with lsd to make him look crazy and erratic so that when he jumped out of the window it's kind of the limited hangout is that, oh, we gave him LSD and he, and he freaked out and jumped out the window and we covered it up. That's been kind of the official limited hangout. And then this is like the slightly less limited hangout where they're like, no, he was probably going to whistleblow about germ warfare shit and might maybe also talk about MKUltra. And so they had to take care of him. So like Errol Morris goes that far. But then I don't know that that was around the same time, I think, when he made that, that he was like doing commercials for Theranos. That might just be kind of like the way it is when you're at that level and you just like don't even think about. uh, But it does show a little, uh, I don't know, a lack of critical paranoia, wouldn't you say? Uh, Yeah, I mean, I think that I can understand why someone will be duped by Theranos if you're just like a director. Um, I mean, you would think that you'd want to do your due diligence and that you would be like a a judge of character. But I mean, it's like conceivable that you could just err and like agree to do like a commercial for someone, basically. Uh, I mean, it's kind of like a documentary. So in that way, it's like sort of a failure if you're representing this as something that isn't like a fraud or, you know, if you're not like plumbing the depths of it properly and you're just like doing PR for it. But I mean, yeah, I, I'm getting that kind of understandable be a mistake, I guess. Uh, I don't know. I, I'm getting kind of like KPFA vibes from the Morrises. I'm reading. I, I mean, just put it. it I just put it in the, the workflow like here. Hamilton There's Morris. Like, seems, well, yeah, well, like, okay. So, like, like, why is he such a hipster, like psychedelics obsessed, like kind of dude who's just like trying to make it cool and edgy and fun and like? Well, it not. seems almost like his show. Speaking of like bio weapons or whatever, it almost seems like his show would be useful to anyone who wanted to like weaponize or uh, commercialize or use uh or you know apply to any kind of uh you know utilitarian end like a lot of these different drugs like it seems Mm -hmm. like he did 
some significant work. Like, I've been looking up, like, some of the episodes of the show. Uh, like, there's one, which is a hilarious blurb uh, and a hilarious title. It's called uh, Synthetic Toad Venom Machine, and the blurb is, Haunted by past mistakes, Hamilton embarks on a journey to correct an error in his reporting and identifies the origin of international toad venom smoking phenomenon. So I guess he, like, misreported something, and now he's, like, haunted and has angst about it, so he has to solve it. But what he did, basically, uh, in Synthetic Toad Venom Machine is he took his viewers through a continued search for the author of basically a pamphlet about the psychedelic toad. You know, he eventually demonstrated in the episode a method for synthesizing the toad venom, uh, like, synthesizing it without the toad. So it's, like, kind of spun as this thing where it's like, we can save the toads! Uh, and help them, like, by synthesizing ourselves this, like, hallucinogenic toad venom. But, like, obviously, yeah, I'm sure it does have health applications as well, like, possibly. Like, you know, maybe it could help people, it says, with Parkinson's research. But I also feel like some of these psychedelics, like, might be... Like, when I was reading about, or, what you know, when I was uh, looking before at the Fish and Trips episode where uh-huh. he explores, like, hallucinogenic fish... I was just thinking, like, about the potential of, like, releasing, like, hallucinogenic fish in, like, a river or something, you know? And I feel like some of those fish, like, are native to, like, the Arab world or things like that. I just feel like there could be, in the same way, like, these people talk about, like, oh, it was, like, LSD dosing, like, when people thought it was ergo poisoning in that French Mm -hmm. town in the 60s, you know? I just feel like uh, going out and cataloging extensively all these different psychedelic drugs that are out of the way and even sort of uh, contributing to new methods of synthesizing them or, uh, you know, that that actually could have like kind of an intelligence application. But yeah, yeah. No, actually, it's it's interesting that you say that because I I didn't realize this. I found a very kind of a very revealing New York Times profile from 2015, which I think is right when his show kind of started called uh, Nesting, the Vice Media Way, which is a profile of roommates Thomas Morton and Hamilton Morris, who, you know, I think if anybody's watched like vice coverage overseas, the like just impossibly kind of hipsterish like white guy Thomas Morton, who's like always in a war zone with like an oversized helmet, you know, yeah. and being like, so man, like what's up? Like seems pretty base that you're a Syrian rebel, um, you know, like that kind of <laughs> that kind yeah, of guy. Like, what's going on here? <laughs> like, are you cannibals? Yeah, exactly. Uh, like he was that the guy, first basically. Non juggalo to attend and report in the gathering of the juggalos. Okay, wow, very okay. So yeah, work. they got this yeah. very glowing profile and in 2015 and you know they have fearsome gonzo reputations and uh, i noticed that they uh, yeah so they they live together in brooklyn but uh one one interesting thing is that hamilton morris apparently does research under the auspices of the university of the sciences in philadelphia covering the pharmacology and chemistry of psychoactive drugs and they say because of that, you know, his approach is perhaps more scholarly than experimental, more Oliver Sacks, say, than Hunter Thompson. And I mean, OK, so I looked up University of the Sciences in Philadelphia. I guess I had never heard of that. But like what I don't know what that means. Is he in grad school? Like is he has like a research? He might have a research some fellowship. Kind of, yeah. What? Or like, a research partnership of some kind. Yeah. Uh, I, what what exactly did it say that he uh, he conducts research with them? Yeah, in partnership with them. Yeah, I well, I bet that like because he has the funding to like go out and be like you know a radical tourist to like go to all all these to all these far flung places under the auspices of like 
Vice, which is now owned by who knows who. Uh, I don't. But Rupert Murdoch, I think. Yeah. Yeah, it's funny because I, I was looking the other day, like that Vice like pulled a bunch of like its articles by Gavin McGinnis off of the website, like, and it's like these do not uh, stand up, like hold up to the standards of Vice Media. It's like, well, you know, let's just see what it used to say, like what your founder had to say about like you know race science or whatever that you saw fit to remove. But anyway, uh, um, yeah, well, yeah. I just want to I just want to point out because uh, the University of the Sciences is no fly by night operation. It's a private university in Philadelphia that was conceived in 1821 and chartered in 1822 as the Philadelphia College of Pharmacy, the first pharmacy college in the nation. So this yeah. is like the preeminent, the original drug college, basically, that he's gotten some kind of research grant from as like a dirtbag vice guy. He was also the son of William Yeah, but Moore. it sounds like from at least the article, maybe, maybe they're puffing him up a little bit. But from the article, it almost seems like the dirtbag aspect is like kind of a front and that his research is actually a bit more rigorous and useful. I think that's I mean, what it means. Yeah, I think that's what yeah. they're kind of saying is like he does this fun kind of pop thing, but he's actually like doing yeah. real studies around the world. So I'm almost getting like a Carlos Castaneda kind of vibe from Hamilton yeah, Morris. The, the Hamilton that's Morris interesting. Now. And that kind of, yeah, that fits in a way like that, you know, behind the scenes, he's like writing these scholarly papers and like reporting back on what he's discovering, but then also like producing content like for, you know, the public. Uh, mm, interesting. To sort of help subsidize it and also maybe to have some kind of you know uh, yes. educational application also, in a different way also this is very important and it's mentioned in the article and it was mentioned in the question but I'll read this paragraph uh, their loft in Williamsburg Brooklyn is decorated with cactuses that were given to Mr. Morris by the family of Alexander Shulgin the late chemist and psychedelic apologist who promoted MDMA otherwise known as ecstasy and a hero to Mr. Morris there are photographs of psilocybin mushrooms molecular diagrams including one in a frame sketched by Dr. Shulgin and a poster depicting the geological timetable so yeah okay wow. he is like like they must be family friends, the the Shulgins and the Morrises, because he has all these gifts. For, like, how else would he know that unless he befriended Shulgin yeah, died a few years ago? Emails like to Chomsky. Um, <laughs> and, you know, yeah. I've mentioned before, Shulgin is a really interesting character that, you know, I that was one of my first kind of aha, the Bay Area sus moments when, you know, I was younger. And I, I mean, actually, when I found it out, I thought it was cool. But I grew up like not super far away from Alexander Shulgin's drug compound, like in the East Bay. And I didn't realize it's like I probably drove by it hundreds of times like over the years. And it's right on a hill with like a windy road. And I guess, you know, it had some kind of deal where he was like not rated by the DEA almost ever and was able to, you know, synthesize all these research chemicals and MDMA and, you know, spread them. I think a lot of them went, found their way to Burning Man. And that was like an open kind of testing facility, almost like an acid test. But, you know, he's very big and respected in kind of the new age psychedelic and theogen world like Terrence McKenna and the Burning Man crowd and everything else. Like he, of course, yeah, big popularizer of ecstasy in the 1980s. And also, I think in his uh, his book, Phykal, P-H-I-K-A-L, I forget what it stands for, but it's kind of like his, I don't know, biography and also like renegade guide to doing chemistry and making psychedelics. But he did mention that in addition to working for, I think, like STP 
and I think DuPont Chemical Company. He, he also is a member. Dow of Bo- he's also yeah. He's also a member of Bohemian Grove, and wow. I believe he ran with Owsley Stanley. I, I want to say he he and Owsley Stanley kind of chopped it up together and cooked some acid together like in the late 60s in the East Bay and uh, they knew each other quite well and there are other people in like the Merry Prankster scene were very tight with Alexander Shulgin and you know he died a few years ago so he's kind of a towering figure but I cannot help but look at him today and be like dude is extremely fucking sus like you know he's at he's at Bohemian Grove with like Bob Weir uh, yeah it's I mean that even aside it's super sus to like work for Dow Chemical I guess he developed Zectran, which was like the a biodegradable pesticide, mm-hmm. uh, so it was like useful. It was like better than like better for birds and stuff than uh, other pesticides. But uh, you know, once you patented that, they were so pleased that they're like, yeah, just go off and do whatever you want. And then while still working there, basically, um, mm-hmm. he would be like exploring all these psychedelic drugs and stuff. Uh, but like you know, theoretically, like off on his own in some way. Uh, yeah, that's. Yeah, that's yeah, exactly, sus. and he, uh, yeah, and he also pharmacology I, I be- seminars for the DEA. Cool. Yes, Great. he had a good Thank relationship you. with the DEA and would give them samples of various compounds and things like that. Got Yeah, got several awards from them, and he also I think was pretty instrumental in founding Maps. You know that um, I think it's the Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies. And uh, it, it was actually founded by Rick Doblin in, I don't know who, uh, I don't know too much about him, in 1986 in San Jose, right next to Silicon Valley, I mean, basically in Silicon Valley. And they were big in uh, acting, you know, they provided psychedelic harm reduction services through the Zendo Project at events like Burning Man. And so, you know, they were also heavily involved in that same scene that Shogun was. And I think Shogun was like a prominent member of MAPS, which is still around today, kind of basically promoting um, uh, like, you know, psychedelics for various purposes, from the recreational to the spiritual to the therapeutic. And so I can only imagine, I mean, I think Hamilton Morris feels very comfortable being in the kind of Terrence McKenna chair and being like the next generation of the psychedelic proselytizers, but doing it in this like cool Brooklyn way where it's just like, whoa, man, like (laughs) I'm just like fucking smoking some PCP and licking frogs, like (laughs) trippy, you know, Um, which is not the way, I'm not like an anti like psychedelic, like they're all sus, it's all mind control, it's gonna open you up to gin. I mean, sometimes maybe. if you do too much, it's gonna open you up to gin. I think if you're just like sitting around, like like, licking hallucinogenic frogs every single day, like working for like the CIA and like staring at a geologic time chart you're gonna get opened up to gin like doing it once or twice like you know or whatever in moderation you know experimenting like you know you're not necessarily possessed by a gin but if you do it too much I don't know I think you're gonna get opened up to a gin uh and you're gonna lose your mind and you're gonna forget what's right and wrong and you're gonna think that it's based to like you know be a CIA asset and like that it's absolutely not in with yeah like you'll I just personally I will say this morning I, and your, your I, mind will yes. just get too open and your brain will fall out uh, exactly <laughs> yeah you'll be so open-minded that your brain will fall out like they say about <laughs> like San Francisco yeah. people but mm-hmm. I would say like for my personal recommendation is that or my personal feeling is that the concept of a heroic dose as Terrence McKenna and people like that used to call it is a psyop and you shouldn't do it. It's like it's the same logic as like you should chug an entire like 
keg of beer at like a party. Like you should, you know, hit the beer bong and like chug like 80 <laughs> ounces of beer in one go. Like that's, the, yeah, it's like fun, but it's stupid. It's not enlightening to do that. You're just going to open yourself up to gin. And I feel like that's how they get you. That's how they get you. They, they don't preach moderation. And, you know, like, you know, they don't really take it in a sense of like, this is a sacred thing in, in the sense of it, it has a power and you have to be careful with it. And you don't want to just jump in head first because that's how you get psyoped. Whether it's by gin or your own brain or whatever, it's not usually not a good idea. And most people I know who have had really bad experiences with psychedelic drugs, and I do know a number, it's because they went for that either heroic dose or they just wanted to like party and just like, I'm going to take like eight hits of acid. I'm going to take 20 hits of acid or something like that. Not a good idea. But, you know, you wouldn't necessarily know it by talking to, um, I don't know if you would know it by watching Hamilton's Pharmacopoeia. No, I don't know if I'm you sure were. that that is just all about how it's awesome and yeah. What like what about man. does he bring up? Does he even bring up no. Big Lurch when he talks about PCP? Come on, man. Well, that's a negative PCP story. So. It's narcophobic. Oh, oh, uh, I see. He's he's actually he seems to be combating narcophobia. Yeah, he's definitely working against narcophobia and just general disinformation and stuff about you know all these cops, all these narcs out there who are you know, just being negative and negatory and mm -hmm. about dumping a bunch of hallucinogenic fish into, you know, the Tigris and the Euphrates, uh, <laughs> you know, but... Yeah, and I, uh, yeah, I, so I would say, you know, keep your eye on the Morrises and whatever they have to say about psychedelics because I think they... Yeah, um, I don't know. know. It's us... It's, it's us. us. It's Just watch uh, out. also you know, you're you're playing with you're playing with gin. You're playing with with smokeless fire. Uh, yeah. Also, looking uh, bufo, whatever. Yeah. Uh, I, I think we also um, this actually sounds interesting and also sus. The my psychedelic love story, which is basically about yeah Joanna Harcourt Smith's like romance with Timothy Leary in the 1970s, mm -hmm. and I guess she was a. She was, yeah, she was a well, she was born to a wealthy family at the Palace Hotel in St. Moritz uh, that hit its Jewish roots post-Holocaust. And then she met Tim Leary and he told her in true girl style, you were looking for a way out of the decadent aristocratic game, the limbo of jet set desperados. I'll show you the way. <laughs> so I don't know, I guess, yeah, like yeah. this is, uh, I, I wonder, hmm, interesting. Uh, what was this all about? Was Harcourt Smith actually to use Allen Ginsberg hostile name for her, a CIA sex provocateur? Harcourt herself, uh, Harcourt Smith herself wondered this. What? Hmm. I don't know. This is okay. So this sounds like it's getting into some so, deep weeds, but I wonder, wonder what about yourself. Uh, yeah. Uh, am <laughs> I mean, I that's very Candy Jones. Yeah. Yeah. It's very Candy Jones. Um, I hate it when I look in the mirror and I wonder, am I a CIA sex provocateur? Um, yeah. Wow, Harcourt yeah. Smith's mother bragged that she slept with Mussolini. <laughs> it's, 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 uh, that's okay. About your daughter, but yeah. Yeah, very, I know. Strange brag. And I, I think... Um, I, okay, I think maybe one day we'll circle back to that. There's something, I, yeah. He, he talks yeah. about the brotherhood of eternal love and like all this other yeah, kind of that's stuff. Us. But that's super but like, sad. is he is he concealing something? I don't know. It's on Showtime. Maybe we'll watch it uh, someday yeah. soon because. 
Tim Leary, he's so sus. And he's like, was sus, she yes. was she sus. programmed to be a CIA sex pot? I have no idea. Allen Ginsberg, was he programmed? I don't know. Just a bunch <laughs> of programmed people accusing each other of being programmed, I guess. Yeah, it's like that Spider-Man meme. Yeah. Uh, but- <laughs> You've been uh, you've been groomed and mind controlled by the Namble cult. Uh, you've been mind controlled. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Okay. So, all right. So uh, let's move on. Um, okay. Good stuff. Uh, Want to read number eight? Yeah. Sure. Zizix uh, is asking. We talk a lot about the Beatles, but what was the deal with '90s Britpop takeover of the airwaves? Yeah, that's interesting. I wonder what that was all about. Maybe. Hmm. Yeah. I don't know. I guess. I don't know, was that like a Yankee maneuver where, you know, we need to consolidate our alliance with Great Britain to prepare for, I mean, I you know, I'm thinking of like the coalition of the willing that we saw hmm. pan out and Bush and Tony Blair, Blair going hand in hand. Yeah, that was, hmm. it was a little bit earlier than that, but, you know, Bill Clinton, I feel like was ultimately, despite being from Arkansas and MENA and everything like that, uh, he was, I guess, a Democrat, so you'd think he'd be like kind of Yankee aligned, but also... He has some cowboy energy, so I don't know. Uh, he was he know. he I mean, like Bush was somebody that I think like was able to like bridge both factions because he you know he yeah. went to where did he go did, did he go to, he went to Yale right? Um, I think Yale Law so. School right yeah I think that and then they, he was a Rhodes yeah. Scholar and remember we read that thing from the nineties where somebody that went to Oxford with Bill said that he was recruited in the CIA at Oxford. Yes. So that would have been more, you know, real Atlantic uh, Council on Foreign Relations, Yankee shit. Well, yeah, I wonder if the 90s Britpop takeover had something to do with trying to, like, shore up that alliance uh, for looking towards the future just just spitballing but i mean what was what were really the big brit pop groups the spice girls come to mind well but the, i think um, that is more i mean that's kind of adjacent to it and fluent in the same way but i think they're mostly talking about the rock band so i think the the biggest ones the most successful were oasis obviously and right. blur and pulp and uh suede which actually i think i'd never really listened to suede but there were a bunch of other ones too that were were Oasis like rock bands deal. that yeah yeah there was the madchester scene like the the stone roses i'm just kind of going through the the wikipedia it's interesting here that it <laughs> says that Britpop was partly a reaction to the popularity of nirvana and the dourness of grunge music which i don't know i mean Interesting. Blur, uh, Damon Albarn of Blur said in 1993, when being after being asked if Blur were an anti-grunge band, he said, well, that's good. If punk was about getting rid of hippies, then I'm getting rid of grunge. Huh. Interesting. That feels like another another Spider-Man meme of two people pointing at each other, because, like, is Oasis (laughs) really that different than grunge? I like Nirvana more than Oasis. I mean, this doesn't have anything to do with, like, politics, really. Um, yes, it does. It always has well, something to do with politics. sonically speaking, well, I'm turning my aversion to Oasis necessarily having oh, to do with okay. politics. I mean, sonically speaking, I like the sort of, you know, maybe affected grittiness of Nirvana, the sort of raspy vocals of Kurt Cobain, as opposed to, like, I really don't like Oasis. I, I really hate Wonderwall. And, like, <laughs> you know, I wouldn't mind, like, never having to hear Wonderwall again. Uh, yeah, yeah. No, um, I, I I know what you mean. I guess radi- like Radiohead you would also throw into Britpop too. I forgot. Would you? Well, I mean, like, yeah. I feel like they're a little bit different because, well, maybe the Benz and like Creep. That's very and Pablo much Honey. Pablo, yeah, Pablo yeah, Honey, Honey is a total Britpop album. Yeah, Creep yeah, is yeah, a Brit- sure. Britpop song. Right, right, yeah. Right. yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I'd say after uh, OK Computer was kind of the last like Britpop 
you know, kind of album. They they started going in different directions after that. But, you know, that was like the peak period where they were like a huge presence. And I do wonder a little bit because that was such a huge thing in the 60s. And we've mentioned it before. It's like a little bit. It just seems. I don't know. It's like the British invasion that commenced like right after JFK was assassinated that, you know, I think as Bob Dylan said recently on Murder Most Foul, like, you know, like, don't, I don't know. It was something like, don't, don't cry about what you can't understand. Come on now, little children. The Beatles are going to hold your hand. You know, like basically immediately the Beatles come and like distract all the kids from the trauma, the shared trauma of the JFK assassination. Mm-hmm. And then all of the, and they're all, the weirdest thing is like, they're all, all these British bands come to America playing American music, which is like kind of odd. I mean, isn't that a little bit of like a, I a, guess, just, I mean, by the time of the nineties, I feel like. You know, well, the 90s were like a new I mean, we'd gone so many cycles of like cross pollination between British and American music since then. But I think that the fact that, you know, I think that's kind of what the question is kind of getting at is like, actually, maybe they're not getting at it. It's just what I think about. And maybe Zizek thinks about it, too. But uh, (laughs) well, no, they say we talk a lot about the Beatles. Yeah. So it's like the Beatles are a similar thing. But then so why in the 90s was there's this next like huge influx of these British bands and like, what was kind of uh, I don't know. Like, was there is there anything more to it than, you know, I, I'm sure there was a lot of like, I don't know, record label hype kind of uh, things uh, going on about it. I don't know. It didn't really last that long, and I liked Blur. Oh, wait, I like Blur. Really the They're- only one of those bands that I've heard of and that like I have any familiarity with, but. Pulp is all yeah. right too. They're they're fun yeah, and pulp, stuff. They were in the, the they were in the that. the train spotting soundtrack, which is like a very right. big Brit mm-hmm. Brit pop soundtrack. I, I listen to that a lot. You know. Yeah, I remember. I listened to one Pulp album. I forget what it was, but Common um, People. I don't think um, it was the one with Common People on it, but mm. I definitely remember that song. You know, she came from Greece. Yeah. Thirst for knowledge. I'm British. Uh, I, I do remember, I do, I think also, I guess there was like a popular cultural movement that was referred to as Cool Britannia in the 90s, which I do think was like very much kind of wrapped up in like the Tony That's Blair, funny. New Labor kind of uh, epoch and everything that was kind of like this throwback to like the 60s swinging London. And that also did like the, the Spice Girls were like preeminent kind of examples of that. And kind of, yeah, I mean, I, it really did kind of, uh, it did kind of embody I don't know, the kind of chilled neoliberal vibes of the 90s where it's like, yeah, Britain, like they're just cool and they have like accents and like we're friends with them. Like, I don't know. (laughs) And just like, yeah, it's like cool to be like British and like and also a lot of these bands were kind of especially Oasis were kind of affecting this very like working class, like northern England, like Manchester kind of, you know, they had those like impenetrable Mm -hmm. accents and were always like shit faced and kind of I don't know if actually like the Gallaghers were super working class or if they were like LARPing. Uh, no, I mean, they then they had an alcoholic father were beaten a lot and they were, yeah, they had a lot of uh, problems and were truants getting in, you know, trouble with, uh, yeah, I guess, uh, not, you know, whatever. So yeah, but I guess like they were really <laughs> um, embracing this like working class thing at a, at a point where like the working class was being like kind of dismantled and offshored and all these other things, you know, I, I don't know. There's a there's some interesting cultural currents going on with that, and it did lay the the groundwork for us to like gallivant around the world together after 9/11. As mm-hmm. you know, it, it strengthened the cultural bonds. I think, particularly at, at the end of the Cold War, 
that, you know, it's like, why, why not be good friends with the British? Yes. Yeah, I guess the, according to some of what I'm reading on Google, like, you know, the rise of Tony Blair was very much associated with it. Yeah. In and a I week guess where the news leaked that Saddam Hussein was repairing nuclear weapons, everyday folks were still getting slaughtered in Bosnia, and Mike Tyson was making his comeback. Tabloids and broadsheets alike went Britpop crazy. That's what NME had to say. Wow. Uh, yeah, I guess there, so. there, there, there was even like kind of like a, a weird performative class element that I'm reading in this article, uh, this Australian article in The Age, that there was a kind of feeling of um, optimism, yeah, around after uh, Tony Blair won, but then also uh, Britpop took root in the void created by Kurt Cobain's suicide. With Oasis ascending, stroppy northerner Liam Gallagher was a handy patsy for the vacant working-class hero position. Meanwhile, Blur's middle-class cockney intellectual, Damon Albarn, had already made aggressive moves against what he had called, quote, the coca colonization of Britain. When the two no. bands contrived to release a single on the same day, the nation's media was galvanized. Britain's being colonized. Only, yeah, o- only, in Britain, only in Britain, the author says, could a battle of the bands be turned into a pantomime class war. And I guess, you know, that was, uh, yeah, this book called Live For, I have a documentary called Live Forever about Britpop that I guess, mm. you know, gets into uh, a lot of this. And inter- this is interesting. Yeah, Live Forever, the documentary, tells how the bloodthirsty tabloid media turned niche market indie rock stars into mainstream celebrities and then has-beens. The surge of manufactured patriotism was so powerful that Tony Blair actively pursued No Gallagher and Pulp's Jarvis Cocker to endorse his run for PM. Wow. <laughs> You know, yeah. So I guess there there was this kind of like yeah, like the blending together of neoliberal politics and these kind of working class hero countercultural rock stars that were going to go endorse them. I I think that ended in the kind of messy way because I don't know the Gallagher's are drunks and all kinds of other stuff and they a lot of these bands just kind of you know flamed out. I guess you know Alburn went on to be in the Gorillas, so they transitioned. But other than that, you know these people. These people fly close to the sun and then they burn out and somebody runs off with most of the money and everyone gets psyoped. And so, yeah, I don't know. Interesting quote here. There's a great quote that what happened to Led Zeppelin in 10 years happened in Nirvana in two. These people got chewed up and spat out before they knew it was happening. Damn. Mm. Yeah. So I guess, you know, pot, like it was just a, a frothy moment in pop culture in the 90s where they really were taking these bands that would have had like small indie label careers and then just overnight getting like knighted by David Geffen and being shot to like the top of MTV and the charts and the radio and everywhere. And it, I think it's safe to say it like destroyed a lot of the people that that happened to. Yeah. It was definitely a mixed blessing, I think, in some ways to to be, you know, um, to be anointed in such a way and then held up as this like hero figure. And yeah, it's weird. I don't know. It's weird to think about Kurt Cobain as this like working class hero that died this like bizarre, almost like ritualistic, like sacrificial death and then had to be replaced by a new idol immediately, which I guess yeah. in Britain was Noel Gallagher and America was Hootie and the Blowfish. <laughs> <laughs> um, <clears throat> yeah. But yeah, I don't know. Um, yeah, I don't know. Just, you know, be suspicious of British cultural output. Some of it's really good, but, you know, just always keep an eye on them. Yeah, I'm not down with the UK in general. Like, uh, I, I don't know. I find British culture to just be, like, the dregs of... I'm definitely not an Anglophile. I'm an Anglophobe, like LaRouche. Um, <laughs> I, yeah. Fair enough. Uh, I, I'm not uh, super into it. Uh, the only time that I'll, like, support 
the British is when, or the UK is when it's like against like obnoxious like trad cats. Uh, <laughs> that's the only time like if people like if other Muslims are like simping for trad cats as they often love to do in their desperation for the approval of the kuffar, like and talking about <laughs> the glorious tradition of Catholicism. That's when I feel like a little bit of warmth and sympathy for the prots and like the Elizabethans. Uh, and, and Telling the like Pope that. to fuck off. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm. Um, yeah. You know, and like kind of seeking like a lateral alliance with the Ottoman Empire to like outflank the, you know, <laughs> hideous, invidious, invidious popists. Uh, but yeah, other yeah, than yeah, that, I can respect I'm, it a I'm little not bit. down with the, with the UK. All right. We can, uh, should we move on to number nine? Yeah, I'm down okay. for that. Okay. Yeah. So uh, Turnip Greens Radio asks, Assalamu alaikum. Welcome, uh, Salam. Uh, wondering what is y'all's take on Bill Gates being the largest farmland owner in the U.S. I've heard you cover some Gates stuff in various apps, but I would like to hear your thoughts specifically on the food and agriculture angle. I researched the finance and climate aspect of it and found a DARPA Connect of a Gates Foundation funded by ag startup, but I want to know how this fits into the broader narrative. There is a biotech and big data connect that needs more exploration, and he has definitely served as point man for mega ag chem conglomerates in places like India and several African countries with Agra. Is he merely a clownish PR guy for the elite, or is there something bigger going, something bigger going on? I need an SJ Bill spill, please. <laughs> yeah, I mean, hmm. we wanted to do an episode just about Bill Gates at some point. Like we have that, we've had that on the list for a while. I think under yeah. the the title, the unbearable softness of Bill Gates, uh, uh-huh. has been like on the <laughs> list for for a really long time. So that's something that we definitely could do down the line. I, I think it's interesting that he's uh, the like he's just gulping up all this farmland. Uh, it's interesting to think about in light of what we just talked about in a recent episode about uh, Meyer's book, uh, The you know, Making of the Great American Fortunes, yeah. and the emphasis on uh, different modes of accruing wealth, and the land is one of those. Yeah, I'm reading a Guardian article here that's set from April of this year that says, Gates owns approximately 242,000 acres of farmland with assets totaling more than $690 million. To put that in perspective, that's nearly the size of Hong Kong and twice the acreage of the Lower Brule Sioux Tribe, where I'm an enrolled member. A white man owns more farmland than my entire native nation. Cool. And, yeah, um, yeah so uh, this is I, – yeah, I had heard things like this before, that he was buying up a lot of farmland. But now I guess he is the largest private farmland owner in the entire United States. Hmm. And, uh, I, I mean, I can't – I hate to disappoint, but, you know, I think we haven't we, – it really does, uh, as, uh, as Turnip Greens said in this, that there's a DARPA connection, there's, you know, certain agriculture startups, biotech, big data connections and things like that that need to be explored to this because he really is in just about everything. Oh, okay. Actually, in March 22nd, he told Reddit why he bought so much farmland. So let, let's hear from the man. Or, okay, you know, what did he say? Uh, hear from the quote man himself. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, he's probably let's more hear demon from his intern. Than, yeah. More demon uh, than man now. Or, yeah, his intern. Yeah, exactly. Uh, yeah, his gin intern. Um, gin so, turn. yeah, his gin turn. Uh, so he did an AMA and. Like, this is the first time he's commented publicly on his land purchases. Hey, Bill, why are you buying so much farmland? And he indicated that seed science and biofuel development were major drivers of the acquisitions. Quote, my investment group chose to do this. It is not connected to climate. Okay. 
And he said, uh, the the agriculture sector is important. With more productive seeds, we can avoid deforestation and help Africa deal with the climate difficulty they already face. It is unclear how cheap biofuels can be, but if they are cheap, it can solve the aviation and truck emissions. Cool, Bill. Uh, It sounds so positive and nice. So... Yeah, so the Land Report is the U.S. magazine, I guess, about land, and it revealed that Bill and Melinda Gates have amassed the largest portfolio of private farmland in the U.S., 242,000 acres, part of a broader 269,000-acre land portfolio belonging to the couple and associated entities associated entities across 19 U.S. states with the largest holdings in Louisiana, Arkansas, and Arizona. Hmm. A spokesperson for Cascade Investment, a firm chaired and controlled by Bill Gates and possibly what he was referring to as my investment group on Reddit, declined to comment on specific land holdings at the time. However, um, they told the Lamb Report that Cascade is, quote, very supportive of sustainable farming. So the firm is a shareholder in plant-based protein companies Beyond Meat and Impossible Foods, as well as agricultural equipment maker John Deere. Oh, yeah, Deere. I heard he's in synthetic meat, um, right? Oh, okay, yeah, so they... they they want us to eat the bug burger. This is about the bug burgers, isn't it? <laughs> oh, no. Oh, no. Well, bugs are meat, so that wouldn't be a fully, like, vegetarian burger. Um, you're right. You're right. That, the vegans are going to have to be dealt with. beyond sooner. meat? I mean, I feel like, I mean, maybe they're, like, more chitin, but I feel like that's still an animal. But I don't know. Bugs shouldn't be counted as vegan, right? You're, I remember I, I would, hearing I would that there's a special so. term of vegan like with a <laughs> with a bee for people oh who God. eat honey because you know vegans don't eat any animal products so they don't eat honey because honey comes from bees unless the labor do. of bees and then you're a vegan which is like a slightly different category but it's interesting that he would say like it's not connected to climate uh because like the m- management of land and agriculture and climate like as we know from from when AOC tried to take all of our hamburgers away and make us not yeah. eat meat because cows <laughs> put methane into the atmosphere. Uh, uh-huh. It actually contributes like heavily to, or has a lot to do with, with climate change and uh, it's like how land uh, is managed in agriculture. So yeah, it's quite a bit, you like, would think. Qu- quite a like, bit. It wouldn't be connected. Yeah. Um, I, yeah, I see here that in January, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation announced that it's creating a nonprofit entity called called Gates Ag One, which will seek to, quote, speed up efforts to provide smallholder farmers in developing countries, many of whom are women, with access to the affordable tools and innovations they need to sustainably improve crop productivity and adapt to the effects of climate change. Well, OK, so there you go right there. Like that's a that's a, an entity that is literally about like investing in farmers and farming technology to adapt to climate change. So how could these things not be? He's just such a little fucking liar. I hate every time he speaks. He is so <laughs> condescending. He literally, I think, thinks that everyone has like a 40 IQ and they're, or they're like three years old when he talks to them and just acts like so like, ooh, no, you know don't was, worry. You I'm know what not- I was remembering recently? Is there another question about Bill Gates here that made me think about it? Maybe it was about like GMOs and stuff. Yeah, like... uh I guess it was inspired by their question. But yeah, do you remember like when Bill Gates gave that talk and he pretended to release like a bunch of mosquitoes with malaria into his audience? I do. Yeah, like that is weird. And people like don't talk about that enough. Like that's like bizarre antisocial behavior. Like, yeah, I guess it was a bunch of rich investors or whatever. So like maybe they deserve to get malaria. But it was like a very odd stunt and it kind of shows like the way Bill Gates' minds works in a way like that for the greater good. Like it's okay to like, 
use a bioweapon, you know, like, uh, mm-hmm. it's like, a yeah, weird, another like, Theranos uh, idea. Yeah. Basically. Like it's, it's kind of like seen as like being heroic and like maybe in some ways, like it's not so bad to like terrify a bunch of like, you know, blue blood fools, like in your Bill Gates audience, like, you know, it's not really worth crying over, but at the same time, it's like a very odd theatrical stunt. Uh, but it just it, kind of like, yeah, it's a strange uh, thing to, to do. Yeah. Uh, very, it's like, what is the definition of performative? But uh, he is a little bit of a jester sometimes, you know, with yeah, his well, like yeah, provocative it's, well, it's, statements. Yeah, well, it's weird, like that, especially now, like where he has to. I wish, I, I wonder if he wishes that maybe he hadn't, uh, you know, been so puckish, uh, because <laughs> now that he has to kind of defend himself against all these accusations that he's like trying to poison everyone and like replace our hearts with clocks and stuff that, he's like carrying you know, on epstein's dream basically because yeah they were best but friends. obviously like the idea of like you know using like biological weapons to like you know make a point or like manipulate politics like has occurred to him uh he did didn't you actually see, do it but did you see he, the other day where somebody some scientist or whatnot was like casually said at some kind of forum that I forget what it was. It were either like you could modify like mRNA vaccines or somehow use CRISPR to develop drugs that would make people like sickened by eating real meat so that you could like force them to eat synthetic meat or like bugs. Great. Um, <laughs> and like this would be a great solution just to like, like make everybody take a shot that makes you allergic to basically beef and then nobody will eat beef anymore. Like absolutely mm-hmm. psychotic, and you know, for Bill Gates's matter, it's not just the bugs, but I guess he kind of that is such the most roundabout solution to like the problem of like these factory farms, like these huge like you know bovine herds, and like that's so absurd. it's fucking evil. Like, it's evil. It's like evil that people are even thinking that shot, way in public. Like yeah, just slowly like deconstruct this industry like it's because like they need to give like that like industry or something something to do or you know like we need to somehow like give them an offload ramp where they can transition from being like a big ag company making tons of money off of cows to making money off of like the anti-cow potion or something like that it's the only <laughs> rationale that occurs or to me, you know but, yeah not only that not only that but bill gates is also in the mit technology review which uh, i wonder if that got epstein money in february of this year he said that uh, con- rich country all rich countries direct quote all rich countries should move to 100 percent synthetic beef he has suggested that developed nations should completely replace their consumption of cattle derived beef with quote synthetic alternatives Quote, for Africa and poor countries, we'll have to use animal genetics to dramatically raise the amount of beef per emissions, he said in an interview, to promote his book, How to Avoid a Climate Disaster. I don't think the poorest countries will be eating synthetic meat. I do think all rich countries should move to 100% synthetic beef. He said that he's not sure if, quote, lab-grown meat will will ever be economical, but he said that plant-based protein makers like Impossible Foods and Beyond Meat, both of which he has invested in, have a quality roadmap and a cost roadmap that makes them totally competitive. He I mean, I guess also if you invested- buy up all the farmland, then, like, farmers can't have, like, a beef farm or whatever. I mean, I'm reading here in this article from NBC News, which it must be Melinda trying to outflank him because why would they Uh run this article otherwise? But uh, anyway, uh, she must be salty from uh, the divorce and, uh, you know, disseminate some of this some of this info. But, you know, it says, like you were just saying, Bill Gates was an early investor in fake meat companies aiming to combat the environmental harms of raising livestock by creating more convincing plant based alternatives. 
He backed Impossible Foods, which relies on genetically modified soybeans. Oh, no. Oh, no. No. Uh, <laughs> watch out, the soy. Uh, anyway, so... Uh, and also coming. held, we're going to all be soy facing, obviously. Yes, it's going to demasculinize us. But anyway, uh, and he also held shares of Beyond Meat through the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, uh, though SEC filing showed those shares were sold in 2019. In May, Bill Gates also transferred about $850 million in shares of the agricultural machinery company John Deere to his wife after the two shared publicly their plans to divorce. Besides the enrollment of their land holdings and leading harvest, the Gates Foundation in 2020 also created an agricultural nonprofit, Gates Ag One, which you mentioned, which forces on bringing affordable solutions to small scale farmers uh, to improve pro- crop productivity in sub Saharan Africa and South Asia. Um, the Gates Foundation said in a statement that its agriculture efforts do not extend to farming in the U.S. But those working on projects with both investors and farmers to create ecologically sustainable farming methods and support diverse and disadvantaged farming communities say rethinking agriculture and working to avert a climate crisis go hand in hand. They add it will take those with large parcels of land, like the Gates uh, U.S. farmland holding, to do it. We know that one of the best ways to sequester carbon is for the soil, and that it's going to take big swaths of land, like what Bill Gates has taken, to do that said Conda Mason, the founder and president of Jubilee Justice and Potlicker Capital, which funds and supports regenerative agriculture products owned by people of color. Mason notes that trying to draw hard lines between one's philanthropic work and one's investments does not work. Now you have a foundation where the mission on one side is to save the world and do all these wonderful things surrounding climate, and the other side they're investing in the exact same things that are causing harm that the mission side is trying to protect, Mason said. It makes no sense. Mm -hmm. So apparently they're just main, managing all these farms in the same way that everyone has, except now farmers have to like rent from them while they make like McDonald's French fries and things. Uh, and you know, the everything else is for the third world or, or something. Uh, and they're just, huh. you know, it's all optics. So, huh. Yeah, I don't know. So is he saying that like he wants to just like buy all this land and then not kind of use it for anything and just exist as soil to like capture carbon? I mean, that is what maybe they would want to do, like regenerative agriculture or something like that's what these other things that are interested in, like, you know, the climate change and preventing it or uh, slowing it would want to do. But he so far has not done that and he has just uh been monopolizing everything yeah all the farming has led to large water withdrawals from florida's aquifer system and requires fertilizer which leaches through the grounds of waterways emptying nitrogen that has led to destructive algae blooms and severe loss of fish and marsh habitats uh it mentions this one guy uh who a farmer uh who had hoped gates would have invested in different farming techniques that could help turn around the ecological damage from big agriculture uh, well, you'd think if you're looking for somebody with enough capital to try that, he would go first, right? But he didn't. He never did anything that different from before he got here and what other farmers were doing nearby. Uh, but he's not the one doing the farming. He's the landlord. and ra- Or rather, the companies owned by his invested f- investment firm are the landlords. Very interesting. And yeah, I'm looking through this land report thing right now. And I mean, like, this was not announced. Like, Bill Gates did not want this to be public. But I guess yeah, some journalists used- dug it up. The same article says that he used, like, uh, John Quarterman, the guy who was just uh, quoted, uh, when he first heard about Gates' firm buying land in the area, he began digging through local property records, linking addresses and business records from the registered owners to Kirkland-based companies until he was able to piece together that the companies buying multiple tracts of land in the Suwannee River Basin were all a shell of a shell of a shell company investing for Bill Gates. So he was, like, through these layers and layers of shell companies, like, buying Mm -hmm. lands, like, very under the radar. Yep. 
Yeah. Yeah. Bizarre. What? And I guess a lot of the Louisiana land also, interestingly, uh, down in the bayou, it's weird that so much of it is in Arkansas and Louisiana. I mean, Arkansas is a huge agriculture like uh, Tyson, you know, chicken and like slaughterhouse state, basically. And but I don't know, Louisiana. But I guess some of the, the tract of land that he bought in Louisiana used to be owned by the telecom cowboy Bernie Ebers, the CEO of WorldCom who, you know, flamed out in like a huge fraud bankruptcy in the early 2000s. He was convicted of securities fraud conspiracy and, yeah, had like $11 billion accounting fraud. That'd be good, cool to go back into. Maybe we can watch Alex Gibney's uh, revealing documentary <laughs> about Enron. Uh, but remember all those companies just had like huge accounting scandals and were like embezzling and like shifting around money in weird ways and they all just like blew up? Well, I guess Ebers, um, when he was at like flying high... He, I see. So he bought a ranch in Canada, the 500,000-acre Douglas Lake, which had 22,000 head of cattle. And um, and I guess, you know, he put it up for collateral for WorldCom, but then, I don't know, he had to sell it off. And he also owned a 26,000-acre Louisiana farm, which was sold when he went to prison. And this was Angelina Plantation in Monterey, Louisiana. Eventually, it was sold to Agcoa, uh, which was acquired by the Canada Pension Plan Investment Board. And then basically in 2017, Angelina Plantation was sold to Cascade Investments, which is Bill Gates's one of his shell companies. So it's like, yeah. I don't know. It's just so like so much land. Fuck these people. Fuck these people. Yeah. Why do people well, get to have 26,000 acres of anything? Fuck you. Okay. Well, you know? I guess, you <laughs> like, know, it's an amazing investment. Uh, like, it seems almost like, you know, maybe he does have some like weird sus plans for these land, uh, this land. Like one thing that I heard was that he was planning on building like a smart city or something. Uh, oh, God. There, uh, there's some article in some like weird periodical called Futurism about how uh, Bill Gates might build, like, a smart city near Phoenix, Arizona, which makes me think of, like, uh, the S.K. Bain Black Christmas prediction. Oh, my you know? God. Uh, oh, my God. Well, that was but, the third uh, largest place where he bought land, I think, was in uh, Arizona. Yeah, he has yeah, 25,000 25, like acres there. Yeah. It seems also like his investment people, they, he just makes all this money off of, like, Microsoft and, and that stuff, and, and then they invest it. Uh, like and they're like okay good investment is buying a bunch of land uh, and then they like manage it in like a horrible way that is completely counter to everything that Bill Gates like supposedly believes in and then on the foundation side he's like oh, I'm going to take the money that my investors made mm -hmm. uh, to like you know make the third world live in the pod or <laughs> you know like uh, <laughs> yeah, and then while yeah. in America like everyone well just, you know, all these big ag companies like dis disenfranchise like poor young farmers. Oh, uh, my God. Yeah. yeah. Well, OK, th there is a paragraph in your landreport.com about that. I guess um, I don't know the th this Belmont development that I guess is what he wants to call it. I guess. Yeah. In 2017, Cascade Investment bought a significant state in 24,800 acres of transitional land on the western edge of Phoenix the most populous city in Arizona, and the 10th largest metropolitan area in the country. The acreage sits off Interstate 10, and it is poised to be accessible by Interstate 11, a proposed highway that would traverse five miles of the 40-square-mile holding. At build-out, the Belmont development will create a brand-new metropolis, one similar
similar in size to the Phoenix suburb of Tempe, home to Arizona State University and almost 200,000 residents. According to the Arizona Republic, Belmont is projected to include up to 80,000 homes, <coughs> pods, 3,800 <laughs> acres of industrial office and retail space, 3,400 acres of open space, and 470 acres for public schools. Cascade doubled down on Phoenix transitional land two years later when it made a second major investment by acquiring more than 2,800 acres known as Spurlock Ranch in Buckeye for $25 million. So I guess, you know, they want to build this, like, new city of, like, 200,000 people where, yeah, you can go down to, like, the Bug Cafe and hang out in your <laughs> pod with your OnlyFans girlfriend and um, drink Soylent. Um, by the way, that article in the New York Times about uh, Hamilton Morris mentioned that, like, he's a huge fan of drinking Soylent. <laughs> yeah, man. Well, you know, when you're being productive or your appetite's gone from, uh, you know, taking microdosing drug. Yeah, exactly. From microdosing, <laughs> your mouth's dry. Like, maybe you don't feel like eating real food. You just want Soylent. Yeah, fair enough. Fair yeah. enough. Yeah. Um, so, um, so yeah, I don't know. How long what, before Bill Gates buys Skinwalker Ranch? Uh, right. He wants yeah. to so bad. He wants to so yeah. bad. Yeah. I, I don't know. I mean, you know, Epstein had a pretty famous uh, Zora Ranch down in New Mexico that seemed to be kind of a, 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 a you know, a patroon ship uh, all to itself. Kind of, you know, uh, I think yeah. Bill Richardson used to go down there and hang out with them and the Clintons used to visit him. But Bill Gates went down there a few times. So he got to learn a little bit about the Southwest and thought, oh, I could have my own. I, I think all these people are going to start building their own cities. I think Peter Thiel is going to start doing it. I feel like Jeff Bezos could. Elon Musk might build some kind of wacky Musk city. You know, all mm -hmm. these people, you know, it almost makes me think about. Somebody had like a hot take about all of Elon Musk's, all these billionaires kind of like space habitat technology and stuff that they really just want to build kind of like bubble cities that have like clean air and clean water and everything. And then you have to like yeah. pay money to live in them. And then everybody else is going to be left out in like the shittiness yeah. of climate change. And That's so, kind of you the know. vibe that I get. I mean, it's sort of like how they all were like buying property like out in New Zealand and things yeah. like that, you know, like because they, yeah. They mm -hmm. want to do the Elysium maneuver. Where yeah, so there'll just be, be bubble like, cities connected by hyperloops that you have to like yeah, subscribe exactly. to like and use. Only, yeah, on, yeah, exactly. Only the you know producers, only productive people will be allowed there. Mm -hmm. Only you know people who are intelligent. Only you know people who got the call on the God phone. Yep, Mensa only members. Exactly. Yeah. You gotta right. You have to do a test to get in. Uh, Maybe you have to do some kind of like competition where it's like a fight where like the people have to fight to the death and then like the winner gets to like join the the pod like society the, like the, the Hunger Victor's Games Village and the Hunger Games. Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. Um, exactly. Yeah. Like oh, you know, that's a couple hundred years away, but this might be one small step towards it. You know, these people. I think want to they, at the end of the day they have to be terrified of like when he look he just googles like world population and looks like how big it is Bill Gates must just like shit his pants and be like I, I gotta mean, do something about Saudi it Saudi also too many has been for a while like Saudi has been trying to build like a you know an economic zone or whatever uh, which is gonna have to be like climate controlled like because it's just gonna become so Unlivable. hot there like yeah. in general yeah like you're gonna have i mean already like there's time like the malls are all air conditioned people are inside for huge swaths of of time and huge yeah. swaths of the year 
So, mm-hmm. yeah, like, these super cities will have to be, like, insulated from the outside world. They'll have to be pods in and of themselves. Yeah, and, you know, as the question, is Bill Gates merely a clownish PR guy for the elite, or is there something bigger going on? I would say yes to both. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Like, he is kind of, he does serve that purpose. I don't know if he's just a clownish PR guy for the elite. I think he he has some level of agency, but I don't think it's like just his agency in a vacuum. I think Bill no, Gates think so. is the front man for a lot of things that a lot of people want to do. And he has the big pot of money to like directly make it happen. And then it kind of obscures the forces that want these things to happen because it's just yeah. coming from the, the mind like of this Bill one Gates- eccentric man. Yeah, even though he's, like, nefarious in many ways, I almost feel like he's also, like, very gullible. And, like again, like, he has kind of the Dooning-Kruger effect going on because ultimately, like, what does Bill Gates, like, really know about? Like, computer stuff, I would guess, right? Like, is he really knowledge about this stuff? Like, someone is the one, like, communicating this information to him uh, who's, like, telling him these things and, like, what, you know, people are investing his money for him and people are also, like you know, nudging him towards certain beliefs, like certain ideas about like how we need to all like live in live in the pod in order to prevent a climate catastrophe. You know, mm-hmm. you've got Chomsky yeah. on the phone saying like Trump is Adolf Hitler <laughs> on a cosmic scale. And if we don't do this, I mean, it's like, again, like they're not wrong because it is like a horrible catastrophe, but it's also heavily ironic because you can already see the way that it's falling into place where like everyone like, you know, they're going to be like, oh, we did it. We prevented the existential threat. And like because they're going to be like in their climate controlled like pod city, like yeah. surveying their kingdom while everyone outside <laughs> is like starving and burning. Yeah, we prevented the catastrophe. Like, you know, yeah, uh, we're trying to dodge like the Oath Keeper warlords that have like taken over the highway and yeah, are like charging exactly. attack. Like, <laughs> you know, yeah, um, like, yeah, yeah, exactly. Meanwhile, sorry, sir, there's no room for anti-vaxxers here in Gatesopolis. Uh, oh, yeah, I think yeah. that is a dream of theirs. That's their luxury gay space communism is to live in privatized pods where only the good kind of people, you know, the the right kind of people. And, you know, maybe we're sorting out right now who who's like eligible to get in the pod, you know. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I'm fine right. not being in it. But I think that is probably if there's a bigger picture going on. Clearly, they want to privatize and monopolize nothing new under the sun. They just want to buy up all the land and cheat everybody and then charge everybody like rent and taxes and uh, expropriate their, you know, the fruits of their labor and work and make yeah, them just pod like the people. farmers who have to rent from him to make like McDonald's fries. Yeah, uh, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Or like, yeah, GMO seeds. We'll get to GMOs in a little bit. Uh, but yeah, GMO seeds that like dot that don't reproduce. So you have to buy new ones every year. Like Bill Gates doesn't really see anything wrong with that. Um, yeah, he's um, a major hypocrite, probably a Satanist. And yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> playing with that harp. I'm an angel. Clouds seeding in the club. Now it's raining. Two wings on me, but I'm not Gabriel. I could take it all away. Stop being ungrateful. The way it is. Hey, I gotta admit it. Shorty plug me in. Without a body, ain't no limit, motherfucker. And if and fuck, I tunnel vision. And despite the way I see myself, you still ain't fucking with me, nah. Body running, living forever. That's just not an option. This the fucking second coming. You stay poly, got it. You're so below to Vatican. I know they plotting on me. See 
that's where I'm at Yo ho, yeah, that's where I'm at I'm so concerned about a stack Sometimes that shit make me sad So off the grid, I need hoes Man, I'm immersed from the black Gotta keep it real with you I die once and I'm not coming back No, sir What's the deal with Alfred Kinsey? I'm reading Program to Kill for the first time, and there was a brief rapid-fire mention of his susness. Fixation on child sexuality, legitimation of pedophilia and academia, dalliance with Crowleyism, and friendship with Friends of the Pod, Kenneth Anger, and Bobby Boussoulet. Uh I wanted to look into this more, but a cursory Google search is not bringing much up. Yeah, we talked about it a little bit in our Kenneth Anger episode, I think. Um, yeah, number yeah. five. Yeah. Yes, he was very sus. Uh, one of the crazy things that we discovered was that like a lot of his uh, discoveries about like masturbation were based on like the diary of like a pedophile that he had, and that they weren't actually like any kind of like statistical finding uh, or anything like that. But mm-hmm. yeah, he was super into Crowley. Ed Opperman, when we had him on, suggested that they had corresponded in some way, but that was based on interview that he had done with someone else so i'm not sure i couldn't confirm that but yeah, it was that woman I'm, for, I'm forgetting by him yeah uh, i'm forgetting the name of the woman who opperman has had on his show multiple times but she's like very on the the dr kinsey is sus beat and mm-hmm. uh has yeah that's where i was first kind of clued in to the susness of him a few years ago and then yeah, I mean, it's basically been acknowledged now. I think it was announced by the Kinsey Foundation or whatever it was, it's, or the Kinsey Institute itself, that, yeah, um, actually a lot of his ad- childhood adolescent sexuality findings were sourced from this one journal of a prolific pedophile and then <laughs> kind of laundered into, oh, I, I did this very extensive research study that is very authoritative. So, there's, yeah, there's a lot of weird shit going on with Kinsey. I mean, he used to, I think he filmed... Kenneth Anger masturbating in his attic. Right. Mm-hmm. He filmed a lot of people masturbating in his attic, but young Kenneth wow. Anger was one of them. Right. And uh, yeah, I think remember Kinsey somehow found out about Kenneth Anger's film Fireworks. Right. Yeah, and he like messaged him like I love your film like they wanted to correspond. Yeah. Or he wanted to yeah. with them. Yeah. Very yeah, so like what kind of networks was Kinsey plugged into that was hearing through the grapevine this kind of very underground, like, queer experimental cinema thing that was happening yeah. in Los Angeles. Like, like, it's very odd. Yes, definitely. Um, in, well, unless unless you think that, basically, uh, Kenneth Anger by that time was already hanging out with a kind of Thelemite crowd in Los Angeles. I think, what was it, like, Curtis Harrington? And I don't know if he ever, if he was too young to actually hang out with Jack Parsons before he died, but he was, like, hanging out with people who hung out with Jack Parsons. Mm-hmm. And so if, in fact, Kinsey was a Crowleyite, a Thelemite, 
going back to like the 1940s, then perhaps it was like from, from some of his Philemate friends in Los Angeles that he heard about this, uh, this promising young filmmaker who might yeah. be of use to his studies, you know? Awful. So it's just like, yeah. it's, it's very yikes, but I could see that happening. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, it does seem possible. I mean, I'm sure that he was in contact with other, I mean, that was something that he and Kenneth Anger had in common. So it's totally possible that he was in contact with other people of that persuasion that we don't necessarily even know about but yeah i mean and it really does do a lot to throw uh into doubt a lot of what we understand about sexuality uh i mean you know people have uh, moved on from kinsey i think in general i'm not sure how salient his ideas are uh, still continue to be uh you know still held to be but yeah, I mean, there was that really, there was that movie about him a while ago. I think we also mentioned this in yeah. episode five. But yeah, I remember that being like very Ed Harris. sort of positive, you know. Uh, and then there was the Masters of Sex Gordon. show on Showtime. Mm-hmm. Was that about Kinsey? That I think, yeah, uh, no, it was. I think it, I think it tried to, it, it tried to give a kind of like Mad Men treatment to the whole oh, Kinsey mm, research thing. Cool. Yeah. Yeah, but probably ended up somewhat, it might, it might have been a little more of a complicated portrait, but I feel like it was still like, this guy's a trailblazer and yeah, he's breaking exactly. through those like stuffy Eisenhower yeah, morals. Yeah, exactly. Those, yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. Which, yeah, sure. There were a lot of them were like incredibly like repressed and stifling, but was like uh, quoting from the journal of a pedophile and pretending it was real research and saying yeah. like, all kids I mean, like love sex know. is like, like that the way to do it. Uh, like. What is like, I mean, I think I can think of a couple anecdotes where I feel like people were in some way like repressed or where you can see like repression functioning. But I almost like I'm not 100% on board with like, the whole idea of repression and like the logic of it. Like there are certain at, like, you know, places where it seems to fit, but I'm not sure if I would necessarily arrive at the idea of something being repressed if it hadn't been suggested to me like in that. Fr- I think Freudian yeah, that's framework. an interesting point, actually, because like, I think something that is often a thing that becomes just like an ontological fact that everyone assumes is that like humanity has gone from. This, they've been on this like gradual long arc trajectory of being like super repressed and then like as history has progressed we've gotten like less repressed and that's yeah, not I definitely I don't know don't I, think maybe, that's it's be, true. I definitely maybe it's maybe it's because yeah. yeah maybe it's because I watched the uh the, like the final director's cut of Oliver Stone's Alexander last night oh I watched like, that a while ago I think I just watched it on Netflix though it was incredibly yeah. boring but but stupid. yeah <laughs> I, um, I enjoyed parts of it but you know yeah, and I think that movie actually got a lot of yeah. shit for not shying away from, you know, basically uh, Alexander the Great's Right, I remember some of the Greek kids in my class in high school when it came out being upset. Uh, but it's like, I mean, come on, like, you know that all those people in ancient Greece were all about. Yeah, I mean, yeah. like, Aristotle... Oh yeah. Uh, well, actually, Plato. there's there's an amazing well, there's an amazing like, scene that feel uh, there's a there's an amazing scene. I don't know if it, it, I don't know what Oliver Stone is really going for. I assume it was kind of like he's doing a kind of liberal like ooh, bet you don't want to hear Aristotle say this. But they asked him like you know basically like you know is, is it like is love possible like you know is love between like two men like a good thing? And at first he's like well. You know, it can be, uh, you know, it can be enjoyable, but if you're surrendering to, like, the baser passions, like, it's only going to lead you down a bad road and, like, you can't build anything. But a love between two men that is built in, like, pure ideas and, like, Mm -hmm. respect and honor, all these Greek values and stuff, that is the kind of love that can build a nation. Yeah, (laughs) I remember that And it's, like, it's very, like, Walter.
Walter Breen. It's like Christopher Plummer is Aristotle, and there's all these like eleven year old boys sitting around like listening to him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Talking um, about like the remember, virtues of Greek uh, man boy. I, I also remember bit. the the like the race science part where they discuss like Persians and their inferiority, like in Aristotle's yeah. uh, symposium or not his symposium, but you know his his academy, his little class of kids. Uh-huh. Uh, yeah, it's also uh, an amusing. They're part. interesting war accurate. on terror. They're interesting like war on terror parallels oh, in that movie sure. that I never yeah, I never picked up yeah. on before. Yeah. 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 So um, it's, uh, but anyways, you know, that's just an example of how, I mean, yes, going back to antiquity, like, but even also going back to, going back to like American history, I think there's like, you know, if you talk about like the American West, remember what we read with like Hank Harrison about San Francisco, how, yeah. you know, basically like it was, uh, like this town was basically founded by like prostitutes and their Johns, mm-hmm. you know, basically. Yeah. And like the first signs of quote unquote civilization were like to house women in brothels and I things mean, it's like the- that world's oldest profession i mean uh yeah, empress yeah. theodora was like an ex-prostitute you know there's i mean at different levels of society like there's always you know different sexual practices like yeah I definitely there's always don't sex that, going on there's always yeah, I, I, mean, I it think might wh- be like subcultural but in a way that you know that kind of goes against the idea of like repression or the the logic of repression in a way because people were just able to pursue it like in a, maybe in a subcultural context yes. or and the forbiddenness is kind of maybe part of it or part of the allure or the appeal so i don't really know yeah, if no, like no. I, I mean repressing uh, it is like I, viable or but anyway, I, I think I, there's like, i i think there's yeah. a valuable distinction to be made of which i feel like it, it's a thing that gets confused a lot which is that i think what changed going into the 60s and the 70s uh was less the actual repression of like people like it's like nobody was having sex or whatever it was the public discussion and discourse around sexuality that shifted yeah. radically mm-hmm. right so it's like it's like people were having sex in the 50s but there were cultural norms where it was subcultural or it was euphemistic or it wasn't talked about yeah, in like company and it wasn't, openly yeah, and stuff normal like that. to like have the pride parade where like your puppy boy is like right there with you like you know jumping all over like someone's five-year-old kid or something you know i don't know if you've been up on the kink at pride discourse has been happening lately there's a little wait bit of what 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 is that well like you know it was, it was like this whole thing like uh, I mean I just encountered it on Twitter but there was like this big controversy over like kink at pride and uh, whether you know it's okay for there to be like you know people wearing like leather puppy boy masks like hanging out with like five year olds oh. and stuff you oh know? Yeah, uh, yeah yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, well no I mean I but, think that's an interesting I've definitely heard that before from yeah, like you can say I, that's I think new, it's but at the same time I want like uh, I'm thinking about like uh, in, for instance, like if you read like 19th century travelogues, like a lot of the time they'll t- be talking about traveling to the Ottoman Empire and seeing like shadow plays for kids mm-hmm. uh, or, you know, shadow plays for a general audience. Uh, but, you know, they obviously they're puppet shows. so They have a certain connotation of innocence or childhood, especially for Westerners. Uh, and there'll definitely be kids in the audience. And the Europeans are often just like, what the hell like you know all there's all this like sexual humor like you know these puppets that are like like these kind of punch and judy type characters like chasing women like behind into the the seraglios and like showing Mm -hmm. that you know and showing these lewd sexual things to women who are so like cloistered and oppressed because it's such a thing and they're like well i don't understand like how can Mm. they have such severe manners and uh, they can like tolerate this, you know. So I almost feel but like not be that, mortified by this, yeah, this entertainment. Or, yeah, yeah how can they like uh, allow children to be, you know, if they have such severe manners? Like, how can this 
you know, but uh, I mean, that's one uh, aspect to how things have uh, been consistent in in the past. But well, it, I think kin- the, the thing is, like Kinsey was such a disruption of the discourse around sex and it kind of like laid the groundwork. It gave a little bit of academic legitimacy and like scientific legitimacy to the sexual revolution of the 60s, even though when we went back and looked at it, it was like a lot of spurious research that was sourced from like a pedophile and yeah. Kinsey himself seemed pretty fucking weird and pervy. So, and, and kind of not like the kind of person you would want to like issue yeah. the definitive mm-hmm. study about like sexuality. But you know, it, it was, it was that discourse change that we're still like living with the kind of legacy of, but I think, I don't know. It's a, but I think, yeah, that, that just that straight line, cause now people are having less sex for like different reasons. And it's not just because of like morality and like people being uptight, like they're, it's because like people are interacting via screens and Right. All kinds of other fucking reasons, like alienation and blah blah blah. Like, uh, there's yeah, all kinds of or reasons. Like, does the proliferation of porn like make people like more psychologically healthy or something? You know, like because they're able to like jack off more easily or like you know fulfill their desires in some way. I don't know. Like, or does it just create like new desires and make people like more? Uh, agitated or uptight or yeah, like uh, is it psychologically fair, destructive? You know, like, fair question. I think I think like if, idea it, of like the more you jack off, like the healthier that you'll be or something. You know, like yeah, no. Yeah. I mean, like I think just as we can acknowledge how the Kellogg's were probably like overreaching when they were going around giving lectures about how masturbation literally drove you insane. <laughs> Mm-hmm. And like would kill you, um, lines, and people yes. being like, "Yeah, like jacking off to porn five times a day is like totally healthy." Mm-hmm. Like yeah. it's like I don't think either of those are like yeah. either the, the intense fear of it to the level where you're like psyoping yourself into like you might even drive yourself insane by if you believe that you know, which I think uh, can sometimes happen with like there are, there are certain strains of I think repressed uh, you know there's always that thing where there's like an overrepresentation and like porn performers of people who are raised like evangelical and like very very restrictive kind of environments usually I mean honestly there's a lot of abuse also um like over over representation of like childhood abuse as well but that's often something of like a like a, a shaming culture which I, I'm not ascribing to every religious tradition but particularly certain strains of American evangelicalism you know what I'm talking about right mm-hmm. like the the kinds of people may and may who knows maybe it's changing but you know they have pretty strict um I don't know, like kind of rules sometimes that they shelter people. And then when they get exposed to like the like free love world of like American culture, like unmoored from any of those restrictions, then sometimes they go like really hard in the opposite direction. But yeah, I mean, I I wonder, like I, I go back and forth on this because I yeah, I obviously have seen like people with like traditional upbringings, like, you know, Muslims who haven't been allowed to sort of date or get socialized around the opposite sex and like how that can be at odds with Western society. But I also have seen like and to an extent experienced like the sort of freer approach and that that also has downsides. I definitely. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, So. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You know, I go back and forth on that. But yeah, it's interesting to think like, you know, uh, because now we have such kind of a or, you know, in the popular discourse, there's such an identitarian approach to sexuality. You know, one thing that Kinsey did say was like, you know, that it's fluid and it changes, you know, that people like 
because uh, I remember in high, uh, not in high school, in college, you know, people would be like, oh, I'm this in the Kinsey scale, I'm this in the Kinsey scale. But uh, the idea yeah. of the Kinsey scale originally was that, like, it would change over time, you know, that it would be based on, you know, where you were at different points in your life, I think. Uh, huh. And that is, you know, more consistent with, like, for instance, I, definitely the ancient Greeks, like, Aristotle didn't have an idea of, like, some people are gay and some people are straight, you know? It's like yeah. you have your wife, you're married... And then you also like are a pederast because that's how you do philosophy, you know, like uh, <laughs> it's you know, like it's it's based on or, you know, even like a classical Christian idea. Like if you commit sodomy, like it's not like, you know, that you it's an action. It's a sin that you've committed. You know, it's not definitional of you and ontologically, you know, uh, that's true, actually. So, yeah, that it's uh, that sometimes like tradcast will say that sometimes when they don't want to be like pegged as like, you know, like I'm not like virulently anti gay. It's just like, hey, it's just a, like having regular sex is a sin, too. You know, it's just all yeah, sin. Well, outside like, of it's marriage. Like, yeah, yeah, exactly. It's yeah. Like, yeah. It's like if it's outside of marriage, like, can oh, but okay of course you can't is, get married. Yeah, so exactly. It, yeah. Yeah, right. yeah. But yeah, uh, exactly. yes. And, you know, everyone. But these uh you know one slippery way to get out of it is you know just to appeal to like the you know the history of sexuality like you know to Foucault because obviously these as we I think we've talked about in the podcast in the past like these categories of like sexuality like these sort of identitarian categories like are obviously like modern they're not something that has always been like a future like yes like uh, the phenomenon of like, you know, there are, it's not like, you know, what maybe a very vulgar kind of stupid conservative person would say, where like everyone was a nice housewife. Like it, it, the, it's always been like June Cleaver and Ward Cleaver, like they're all, like throughout all of history. Like obviously there's been different sort of gender roles, different gender performances, uh, you know, third yeah. genders, like people who exist like in a different relationship, like to gender, you know? Uh, oh yeah. 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 Like um, um, I have to, I, mean, I, I will, uh, I yeah, will give like, credit to Oliver Stone's Alexander for its like queer representation because it, it does like, it does a relatively, I feel like accurate kind of per, uh, depiction of that, which I think it, it hurt the movie at the time. Cause this is like 2004 when like all that yeah. gay marriage stuff was like, I said, I remember, you know what Obama was. Yeah, exactly. I mean, that was back before Obama would even say that it was okay. You know, uh, exactly. But it, you know, it, but it plays it very, it doesn't go for a kind of like, Oh, did you know that like Alexander is a gay man? Or yeah, if it, it doesn't came like, out today, it, it, that's like how it would be, you know, yeah, it, it would be, be like, if they remade yeah. it, it would be like, it would be I, like, I'm a demisexual pixie boy <laughs> and I'm here to, you know, conquer the world i mean that's really a new discourse of like sexuality uh that like is you don't necessarily need to make a value judgment between that and different discourse sexualities in the past both in american history like with kinsey or even pre-kinsey but you know it's very different where it's like oh you know you are ontologically like demisexual or whatever you know gray ace yeah. or mm -hmm. something you know like uh <laughs> that's just part of how like your soul or like your your brain or whatever is configured. So it's a different kind of thing that I think even Kinsey was necessarily getting at, but it did kind of yeah. lay the groundwork. I mean, it's all very fluid, uh, it's neither here nor there, uh, but I think that uh, there's certainly no probative force to what Kinsey said uh, more than anything else because he was just reading a pedophile's diary for the most part uh, and doing yes. some surveys of his weird friends. But so, I mean, I'm sure he did some more rigorous work than that, but yeah, you get the point. Yeah. Yes, uh, exactly. So yeah, he's, he's I'm sure he'll come overall. up again and you can go back oh, and listen will. to our comments in episode five. I think we said some, some absolutely. Things, yeah. yeah. Um, okay. So let's move on to number 11 by Amaru. And they ask, so what's the official SJ stance on Sesame street, Sesame workshop? 
I think you read before on the show, I forget which episode. Was it our episode, The Target is Your Brain, where you just read that article about Cookie Monster being a side? I read the, the, dires, the Squab Muglia blog from a few years ago where... I'll just read this one paragraph again because it really sums it up better okay, than right. any other thing <laughs> I can say. This is Squab Muglia, uh, a.k.a. the, the occulted crypto cuttlefish um, from their blog a few years ago. And they wrote, Sesame Street was created by veteran officers of the U.S. Army Psychological Warfare Office with the goal of blunting the force of social justice radicalism in the United States by promoting the liberal ideology that oppression uh, is not a structural economic injustice, but a matter of poor individual character or bad social skills. In a 1970 state-directed project to determine how humans established cathexis with military hardware, computer engineer Alan Kay leveraged the graphical capabilities of highly advanced prototype personal computers to display animation of one of Sesame Street's most popular characters, Cookie Monster, because he felt this would help children see personal computers not as technological artifacts derived from Air Force weapons, but as friendly and even magical helpers in their lives. Kay, who developed the Park Alto uh, computer and small talk programming language concurrently with Xerox funding uh, the creation of Sesame Street is very clear about this in his early history of small talk. Building the Sesame Street characters into the design of the Alto's user interface was an evolutionary step in ARPA's 20 year study on human computer symbiosis. So, yeah, that's my jumping off point with Sesame Street. And yeah. I, I feel like also Paul Klein fan cam posted some interesting stuff recently where I think Paul Klein and these other high-hitting high uh, media executives were very involved in, like, the project of developing the Sesame Street workshop and program in the early 70s. I forget which foundation uh, besides, like, Xerox and all these other corporations actually funded Sesame Street, but I do think, like, Sesame Street is, you know, there's a lot, like, that goes into Sesame Street. It's not just, like, a kid's show, right? Like, mm-hmm. we know this. Right. Yeah. And it, it's... Lot, it, like, uh, you mean a lot goes into it insofar as, like, a lot of, like, research and, and ideas about, like, child psychology and stuff like that. Yes, that exactly. Right. Okay, exactly. Yeah. It was actually conceived... In 1966, during discussions between TV producer Joan Gans Cooney and Carnegie Foundation Vice President Lloyd Morissette, their goal was to create a children's television show that would, quote, master the addictive qualities of television and and do something good with them, such as helping young children prepare for school. Mm. Hmm. And so they got a combined grant after two years of research. Uh, They formed the Children's Televisions Workshop and received a combined grant of $8 million, $56 million in today's dollars, from the Carnegie Foundation, the Ford Foundation, the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, and the U.S. federal government to create a new children's TV show. So they had Ford Foundation money up in there from the very beginning. Very cool. Mm -hmm. And, yeah, I mean, I think that, like, I, I grew up watching Sesame Street. I mean, I don't know, did you? Uh, I watch it sometimes, but not, like, really that much. Uh, I, but I watch, like, that's, you know, when I was really young, I watched, like, Lamb Chops play along, you know, Mr. Rogers. Uh, I had Sesame Street tapes, you know. I remember Big Bird. I remember Kermit, mm-hmm. you know. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Wait, was like, Kermit on Sesame Street? Yeah, he was on sometimes, you know, because it was still a Muppet thing, you know, and he's kind oh, of, like, yeah. the number one Muppet. So he wasn't, like, super all over Sesame Street, but he made some appearances, yeah, yeah. But I, I think that 
what um, what cuttlefish brought up there is like very important in terms of like shaping the consciousness of young children. You know, you got to get them while they're young. But they, you know, talking about blunting the force of social justice radicalism in the United States by promoting the liberal ideology that oppression is not a structural economic injustice, but a matter of poor individual character or bad social skills. So that really does kind of resonate with like what Sesame Street sort of is. Like Sesame Street teaches you like kind of um, instrumental tasks and also like social skills to like good behaviors, right? And, mm-hmm. and most of these are probably somewhat benign, right? Um, yeah, I mean, it's interesting. Like, I don't really know. I haven't like looked with an adult eye at that stuff. I mean, I actually have done myself like some kids media like work. Like I've written some stuff for kids, like not of my own initiative, like usually for like money or for like, uh, you know, some kind of, yeah, usually for money or some kind of task that was part of a job. But, um, and I'm familiar with like the problems that come up and like everyone is just like very, you know, very uh, vigilant, very hyper vigilant about like, you know, what impression kids might get. And also like, you know, really the adults are so, uh, they're, the adults are so caught up in, the possibilities of you know messaging you know it's more important to them than to the ki- to the kids i guess although you know one assumes that they're impressionable and they're taking it in so they might i don't know if they really do like how much of it makes an impact on them i mean i can remember things from my own childhood that made an impact on me experiences of media so uh, it definitely can uh, i don't think it does in all cases but um yeah so i definitely can appreciate how uh like there's this, you know, like the, there's just a lot of tension around like what goes into kids content. And there's a lot of attentiveness to how this shapes children down the line. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. It's interesting to hold it up to something that we talked about in part one, which is another phenomenon of children's programming, Elsagate videos. And I don't know, kind of comparing and contrasting the approaches because it's like Sesame Street is kind of has a a little bit, I don't know if you would say it's like the sinister edge, like in an overt way, but it does have a kind of something humming underneath the surface that's like a little bit sus in a way that's like with Elsagate, it's like kind of really loud. If you're not a two-year-old, you can see it immediately and be like, what the fuck is this? You know, whereas like if you're a parent and you see Sesame Street, you're kind of like, oh, look, they're learning how to count and stuff. But um, yeah, I mean, I remember the count was considered too scary at first, right? Like he was sort of toned down because he hmm. originally would like be more like a vampire. I mean, it's a funny pun, but I mean, I guess, you know, he's a vampire because you're being exposed to the occult, you know, uh, mm, so just I like KPFA, your traditional mm. kids, uh, your, sorry, your traditional parents, you know, being being distressed, uh, being distressed by that, you know, and it's not, uh, you know, it's not VeggieTales, you know, you're not learning about God or whatever. It's a, definitely a secular <laughs> program, you know, so. Yeah, no, uh, it is. It is. Yeah. And, and also just to drive home this point, there's another article uh, by Jacob Levitch and Counterpunch from 2016 that, that covered some kind of similar things called Obey the Cookie Monster, Sesame Street and Social Control, which is uh, kind of similar uh, points to the the Squagmuglia blog post. But they, they kind of really they, they put the historical context of the late 60s into, you know, a, a clear light. He wrote that uh, 
Sesame Street was born as a ruling class experiment in social control, managed and funded by the Carnegie Endowment in concert with the Ford Foundation and federal agencies. Carnegie's children's television workshop, CTW, created the show as a conscious response to late 60s urban insurrections and African-American mm -hmm. revolutionary sentiment. CTW, quote, with its aim to serve the educational needs of the disadvantaged, was born at a moment in the nation's life when racial riots in Newark and Detroit were still fresh in our collective memory. That's from a book by James Day, The Vanishing Vision, The Inside Story of Public Television from 1995. Carnegie's yeah. project meshed neatly with the goals of the Federal Corporation for Public Bro Broadcasting, then chaired by Frank Pace Jr., a former secretary of the Army with extensive intelligence connections. Pace, who had created the U.S. Army's Office of Psychological Warfare, was frankly interested in public television's, quote, potential for riot control. Hence, early seasons wow. of Sesame Street were set in a grungy ghetto alley where the right. peace was kept via the ministrations of a hip young black man sporting an afro, a model of the federally funded, quote, community organizers dispatched the inner city as a safe alternative to the Panthers. Uh, while a multiracial cast endlessly enacted what was then called, quote, brotherhood, the show's target audience was offered the basic skills necessary to work behind the counter at McDonald's. Seen in this light, Sesame Street was all about recommending a worldview that encouraged coping with racism and bare subsistence rather than daring to imagine social change. Protest was plainly off the menu. The worst thing you could be was a grouch. Sunny day. Oh, no. Okay. <laughs> uh, yeah, but I definitely did notice. I mean, like, you know, usually it gets portrayed as like, oh, you know, it's trying to be inclusive, but it definitely was targeted at or sort of uh, meant to be inclusive of those demographics, like from very early on. And that's something that, you know, is an open yeah. part of Sesame Street history, although it usually gets sort of characterized in a, in a very different way. But uh, in a very brave way. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That it was the, you know, how, yeah, exactly. Um, mm -hmm. That it was such an important yeah. program because they were, uh, you know, able to represent these different communities. But I think it's very trenchant point. Also, yeah. just to, to tie it back to Elsagate, there's one more port, uh, paragraph here that is based on uh, Douglas Gomery's book, The Rise of American Advertising, Media in America, The Wilson Quarterly Reader. It's from 1989. And uh, the, 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 tell me if this sounds familiar. Exemplary fables of racial harmony were, of course, nothing new in post-war American culture. In fact, Sesame Street's true innovations were not in the area of content, but of form. Reflecting Carnegie's longtime personal in uh, longtime interest in harnessing TV marketing schemes for pedagogical purposes, CTW punctuated its narratives with brief educational segments explicitly modeled on television commercials. Numbers in the alphabet were not taught, but rather imprinted on youthful minds through strategy of repetition and arresting imagery, as both Madison Avenue executives and Washington propagandists well knew. These techniques could lull viewers into a passive, hypnotic state that rendered them especially vulnerable to advertising messages. Corporate America immediately took notice. Most famously, the transnational giant General Foods Corporation produced Multiplication Rock, a look-alike look series of Saturday morning commercials disguised as educational programming, following up with further TV travesties of civics and American history that hammered home potted lessons in ruling class ideology. Other marketers followed suit, seeing a way to outflank federal regulations governing the content of advertising directed towards children. Children's television and kiddie culture in general rapidly became an unsavory mishmash of corporate
covert messaging and sham education. Probably the original Sesame Street generation was the first to grow up without perceiving a clear distinction between teaching and marketing. Their children, now ceaselessly assaulted by corporate sales pitches in the classroom, on television, and via the internet, may well see no difference at all. Thus, Sesame Street has been instrumental to neoliberalism's gradual erasure of traditional distinctions between disinterested pedagogy and the pursuit of profit. I That's mean, uh, yeah, quite a bold statement. Yeah, but I mean, it is very culturally influential, you know, all that is like the preeminent kid show. Like, you know, something that I've done is like, I will not name like what I worked on uh, just in case, like, you know, wouldn't want anyone to think this had uh, this was in any way a swimmer jihad, but I did work on like some content for Muslim kids. And I think that part of the impetus like behind that is that people are very, you know, uh, Muslim families like in the United States and the English speaking world are like very vigilant or very concerned about like the messages that kids get, you know, because they don't get anything that reinforces like their belief in Islam. Like the best you can get would be like something like VeggieTales, you know, uh, mm-hmm. even in Sesame Street, you know, where like Mr. Cooper or whatever dies, you know, they're not going to mention his akhara, you know, they're not going to talk about the after, like, you know, uh, so just by the absence of it, you still, you get the impression like, oh, you know, death is, is the end, which, you know, for better or for worse, like maybe you think that's good, but you're like, uh, whatever, you know, so other people feel that that is, you know, possibly missing something or could, you know, is different from what the impression they want their kids to get, you know, parents definitely have an idea or adults definitely have an idea of the impression they want kids to get from certain media, but you know, there's a lot like going like I remember at one point, you know, we had one character who was non-Muslim and kind of like played like a sort of bad role in the story uh, or, you know, wasn't like a, you know, super great character uh, in personality wise. Mm-hmm. But there was a concern, you know, oh, you know, is this making like non-Muslims look bad? And it's like, well, do they care about that? Like, on, but it's the other way around. Like, you know, but on the other, you know, but it's just like there's so much, you know, baggage when you approach these topics that, like, it, you know, it's just it weighs it down completely and you can't really, there's no real way out of it. There's no real way to win against, or it's a very daunting attempt to try to, like, you know, do battle or to push back against uh, the sort of torrent of, of messages that kids face from all these different media outlets because yeah we have to yeah deal with but anyway very Um, sus yeah last thing i notice here is that uh that the first show i guess to model the ctw's methods um for like creating children's programming was blues clues which is like not a great (laughs) um i feel like that show was almost like parodied like from its inception as being like this show like like turned children's brains into mush it was just like incredibly stupid did it i thought that it was praised because like it engaged kids and like you know finding the maybe it was i mean I, think, I was like a middle schooler when it came out so yeah. i thought that it sucked but maybe right. adults thought I think it was that great it was revered i remember there was recently like a huge hubbub on Catholic trad, like whatever Twitter, I think Rod Dreyer posted about some Blues Clues thing that was like, you know, the Pride Pride Parade tie-in with Blues Clues, hmm. and he was oh. just like, you know, bemoaning the corruption and seduction of the innocent. Like again, there's no value judgment implied in any of this, but it does like have a big impact. We watched like the whole long segment, which was very long. It was like interminably long. And it was like, it was, it felt like it was nine minutes. It probably wasn't quite that long, you know, and I guess I'm not in a position to uh, complain about something being interminably long, but it was like a cartoon drag queen, like singing about 
you know, all the different, like, queer communities, like, gays, lesbians, you know, Mm non-binary people, you know, that doesn't bother me at all, but, like, if I can definitely see why people, you know, who are obsessed with the cultural impact of that, like, Rod Dreher would have, like, an entire, like, conniption fit at seeing this, you know, (laughs) in kids' content, but again, Mm -hmm. uh, no value judgment Um, applied whatsoever. Last thing I'll say, Joan Gans Cooney, the co-creator of Sesame Street, uh, worked at the State Department in Washington, D.C. for a little while before getting into media um interesting oh wow and her and her grandfather emil gans was a tailor from waldorf uh thuringia in germany who came to the u.s in 1858 and was president of the first national bank of arizona and mayor of phoenix for three terms hmm grew up in an upper middle class country club atmosphere her favorite teacher was investigated as a communist in high school isn't yeah. there like a hijabi muppet i think so i think I, there probably was at some point yeah, yeah. Was, she was afghan uh, she's wow, she was uh, a publicist for David Sarnoff at RCA in uh, the 1950s. Hmm, interesting. Meet Zari, the hijab-wearing Afghani Muppet who will teach kids about girl empowerment, social, and emotional well-being. I bet that, again, I bet, like, the Rod Dreys of the world and, like, the James Lindsays and stuff were just, like, outraged. Like, I can just, I can already imagine, like, all the comments on that without even looking at it like girl empowerment like oh empowered to be a slave but <laughs> anyway yeah like if you ever yeah 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 hmm. empowered but yeah. not that much because then you'll get honor killed but anyway, yeah. <laughs> yeah. anyways yeah just, yep. you know exercise, exercise caution with your kids out there you know yeah uh, just keep uh, an eye on it yeah only read uh to your kids from the quran that's it you know or little stories yeah. of, little stories of the prophets you know um okay so uh, let's do number 12 you read that uh yeah sure young howler asks any chance he might get a future episode on peter lavenda both his incredible susness and the material covered in his writings particularly his sinister forges trilogy which in my opinion despite his being the embodiment of limited hangout should really be considered a foundational text in the subliminal jihad canon and or the strange field of episcopus vagans slash wandering bishops uh, we touched on that a little bit in our episode with Jimmy. I, I, we didn't really go fully into Peter Lavenda himself, which a lot of that content was inspired by uh, in, you know, Jimmy's exploration of Jack Sarfati and stuff. But I would love to have Jimmy back to, like, talk about Peter Lavenda, like, specifically, mm-hmm. like, himself. I think that would be a good episode to do. Uh, yeah, yeah. You know, I, I've read passages yeah, and stuff. It. Yeah of lavenda over the years but i've never sat down because he has he has these big books and everything and Mm -hmm. i mean (laughs) i mean i agree that peter lavenda is like super influential like in this world like you know uh the idea of like symbolism and the importance of that like in psyops and the connection between uh the occult and psychological operations like that's a field that he's like written a lot you know something that he's explored heavily so i see you know the influence or the idea you know the uh the connection between uh the show and and peter lavenda so yeah i think yeah. That, like doing a deep dive into like sinister forces or something could be cool um and yeah and also yeah, yeah he did he did he did co-write a couple of secret machines books with tom oh DeLon, cool so, secret yeah. machines they, but are the secret machines books like non-fiction or are they fiction because i thought that they were like a fictional story uh, like about like you know a, a bold pop punk singer who like saves the world <laughs> and saves aliens or something like that you know I'm, well I'm no joking. it claims to be it claims to be a nonfiction ufology novel um, and I didn't realize the first edition has a foreword written by Jacques Vallée uh, hmm, I guess wait 
Secret, because I'm looking at Secret Machines book one, Chasing Shadows, and that is like a novel. Um, I'm looking at I'm looking at uh, Secret Machines Gods, which he co-wrote with. Uh, okay, so I guess Secret Machines Gods is a different thing. Uh, weird. Oh yeah, Secret Machines Gods is like a separate tie-in, which is non-fictional. A new approach to religion takes a hard look at religious texts and ideas from around the world to discern the traces of an event that changes forever. Sus, ancient aliens okay. stuff, sounds like. Yeah, hmm, interesting. Um, yeah, I mean, Peter Lavenda, yeah, you know, I, I, I'd I, want to sit down and actually read a lot of his books. Sinister Forces, of course, um, and the some of his stuff about, like, the Hitler legacy, the Secret Temple, Mason's Mysteries and the Founding of America, even the Mao of Business, uh, Guerrilla Trade Techniques for the New China, and Stairway to Heaven, Chinese Alchemists, Jewish Kabbalists, and the Art of Spiritual Transformation. Wow, okay. It seems like there's quite yeah. a lot of stuff to dig through. But also, yeah, it's like that. I, I can't get that picture out of my head of like him and Tom DeLonge and like John Podesta like hanging out in Washington together. Mm-hmm. I just don't know. I don't know. Yeah. Tom DeLonge seems like a Mason. Um, <laughs> is Peter Lavenda a Mason? I'm not sure. He does seem to be an occultist because he wrote, I guess. Yeah, he Do we know if he wrote the Simon Necronomicon? Um, he was a writer on the Simon Necronomicon, I think. Uh, well, he used the pseudonym. I remember this copy of the Necronomicon. Yeah. But I guess, yeah, he used the pseudonym Simon to write it, I, I believe. That, that seems to be the going belief. I don't know if he's ever acknowledged it. Yeah, he probably hasn't, but I think that, yeah. Um, I don't actually remember the text of that, but I remember, you know, uh, all that stuff like, uh, you know, around the Necronomicon. It's interesting because, like, the figure of, like, uh, Abdul Hazred, which is, like, a name doesn't make any sense, you know, the, the Mad Arab uh, and mm-hmm. Necronomicon itself. I always felt that, like, you know, he goes out into the desert and he gets, like, these strange revelations from, like, the Whispering Winds or whatever. It's basically, you know, it's a whole t- it's top for another day, but it's just, like, you know, it's a, it's a Quran parody, basically. It could attest to that fixation mm-hmm. with Islam and, and the sort of weird fiction climate, uh, but I don't know if Peter Lavenda has anything to say about that, except for that uh, secret machines, gods created all religions and uh, get ready for the ETs to come. Yeah, um, I, I didn't know that it was actually, you know, it does describe some uh, ri- human sacrifice rituals in it. And it was actually well, featured as like courtroom you gotta, evidence. You know, yeah, it was like, featured as courtroom evidence in the murder trial of Rod Farrell with suggestions that it played a part in satanic human sacrifices. Farrell, it is claimed, used the book during cult rituals. This guy's an interesting, another another weird, like a, a cult guy. He's actually not that old. He's just, uh, he's born in 1980, but he was a cult leader who ran a loose-knit gang of teenagers in Murray, Kentucky, known as the Vampire Clan. He claimed to be a 500-year-old <laughs> vampire this, named Visago. Yeah. Right, um, yes, I remember this. Because they were like Vampire the Masquerade role players, right? Uh, that's kind yeah. of how the cult got started, if I'm not mistaken. When he was 18, he, uh, I guess he, yeah, he beat a, a few people to death. Yeah, and, you know, hmm, interesting. And I guess somebody invoked the Necronomicon in the trial that I guess he was reading it and, like, modeled his rituals after that and i don't know if that's true but kind of interesting yeah peter lavenda it's like what where is he really coming from i don't know in 2013 lavenda told journalist joseph flatley of the verge that he was not simon Hmm, interesting i've heard joseph flatley before he wrote like 
he wrote a thing about Sirhan Sirhan, like a novel about him, but then he wrote a book about like hanging out with the Satanic Temple and Lucian Greaves to go like debunk like people that believed in dissociative identity disorder, like monarch stuff. <laughs> it was very sus. And it was like, yeah, like Lucian Greaves, totally cool guy. Um, yeah. yeah, a little bit sus. Love but uh, yeah, so that, that's uh, we'll come back to him one day. We have to. Maybe we'll have Jimmy on to, to help guide us through it. Oh, and also, like, what do you think about the Episcopus Vegans, the Wandering Bishops? Because isn't he, isn't he one of those? Uh, yeah, is Peter Lavenda and a Wandering Bishop himself? I think so. I believe he is. I believe I've heard that. That is weird. Yeah. Anyone yeah, who's, like, that, a Wandering Bishop is weird. Um, uh-huh. Although he, I think he, he talks about it in his books, but is he one himself? I don't know. Like, if you're a Wandering Bishop, that's bizarre. But, uh, I mean, I would believe that maybe he were. Uh, maybe he was, but uh, yeah, he does. Yeah, he, he does write about. He kind them. of talks about them being sus, but I'm not sure if he was one himself. Yeah, yeah. There's yeah. been a lot of rumblings that he that uh, maybe I maybe I'm wrong, but I feel like uh, he has. So, he, the, people have said that he's got connections to the bishops, so I, I feel like Jimmy Falun said that he was wandering bishop. But Maybe. I might be wrong. Uh, Don't quote me on that. Yeah, well, he definitely is someone who has been like involved in like weird occult stuff himself. Uh, I'm not sure if he is a wandering bishop. He might have some bishop connections, but again, yeah, yeah, uh, I don't know yeah. too much he, about his background. Uh, yeah, yeah, or yeah, exactly. you know, about him in general. He's got to read his intro to Secret Machines Gods. Um, yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Sounds great. Um, yeah. Apparently, Tom DeLonge was emailing Podesta about that book in particular. Oh, interesting. Interesting. Yeah. Um, mm. yeah. Wonder if Podesta reads Peter Lavenda. Maybe. That's Maybe a chilling. That's where thought, he gets the idea you know? for his PizzaGate uh, yeah. <laughs> rituals. Maybe, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. He's reading Maybe the Necronomicon. He reads the Simon Necronomicon. Yeah. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Uh, to yeah, know how exactly. to spirit cook. Yeah. Do you want to do this next one? Yeah. Okay. Let's see. We'll move on to uh, thirteen. Right. Oh, yeah. IDK. Yeah. If this has been mentioned in an episode or not yet, but have the host talked about or have any thoughts on the GMO movement, either pro or against? and the effects that companies like Monsanto have with the patenting of seeds and suing smaller farms caught with those seeds slash plants. All the talk about Bill Gates and other groups buying farmland makes me wonder about some of this tangentially related architect- agriculture questions. Uh, yeah, I mean, like again, I feel like we did touch on some of this in the earlier Bill Gates uh, question. Yeah, I've heard some really sus things about those seeds, like how they're designed uh-huh. to like, you know, travel on the wind and like put, embed themselves in their people's crops. And then like the Monsanto inspectors can come be like, oh, you're growing our seeds, you know? Yeah, uh, yep. yeah. Really I mean, obviously shit. that's, I mean, like up to a certain point, like lots of foods are genetically modified because like that is part of agriculture itself is like sort of selecting for traits that, uh, make crops, you know, uh, larger or, uh, you know, more resistant to the elements and things like that. So there's some like gen- quote unquote genetic modification and selecting for traits that happens like in farming in general, I would think. But, you know, in terms of like making, uh, you know, and I mean, even making like superfoods or whatever, like could be theoretically benign, but there's also a lot of like the patenting of seeds obviously is like predatory and evil as, as hell. But, 
uh, you know, there's also all sorts of sus things that you can, you know, to come up with as possibilities with the genetic modification of foods, you know, I mean, mm-hmm. I could see how the technology itself could be used in like an okay way, but, uh, it won't be, uh, you know, yeah. it never will yeah. be. Uh, there were horrible stories about like what they did in Haiti when they, under the cover of like doing charity, they like donate a bunch of Monsanto seeds, but then they were the kind that don't reproduce. So you have to then like buy, it was almost like here, have a free trial of our Monsanto seeds. (laughs) And, and then they don't produce offspring. So you have to buy a whole new supply of seeds every year from Monsanto. And I forget if there was even something sinister where like they ruin the soil so that you can only grow Monsanto seeds after that or something like that. Yeah, it's really sinister shit. Yeah, they, and you know, I think it wasn't Donald Rumsfeld, the head of Monsanto, for a while. Uh, yeah, I think so. Uh, yeah, I, I feel like I remember in that amazing book about Donald Rumsfeld and how he's like truly masculine. We should uh, really do a. I'm surprised nobody else has found that book today. We won't even say what it is, but we should really do like a book review of that book one day. It's, <laughs> it's an amazing. It's very special. There's some great passages. Yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yes. His manliness. He's got that wrestler's intensity. Um, but yeah, I don't know. Like uh, the Monsanto family was actually like a Sephardic Jewish merchant banking family that played a significant role in founding the Jewish community in colonial Louisiana in the 18th century. And so it was uh, the the wife of the founder of Monsanto, uh, so John Francis Queenie, a businessman from St. Louis, founded it, and he named it after his wife, Olga Mendez Monsanto. And yeah, so I guess, you know, uh, once again, these families go back. Um, they owned a lot of slaves. Um, they engaged in the Atlantic slave trade and owned African slaves at their plantations in uh, Natchez. Well, how do you say that? Natchez or like with the Z, Mississippi? Yeah, yeah. Um, I don't really know. Yeah. yeah and their former, not including their former state in New Orleans, by the eight, 1780s, the Monsantos kept 51 slaves for their personal use and Oof. sold other enslaved African people to Louisiana plantations. Awesome. And uh, yeah, then so a scionist of the family. You know, lent- they're not just evil now. You know, they... Uh, They've always been they've always been incredibly evil. Anyway, I I guess so. I guess so. Yeah, Mm -hmm. they've they were playing political games going back to like the Seven Years War and stuff like they've been they've been around for a long time. And then John Francis Queenie, you know, they attach themselves. I think that's my new thing with like the intermarriage theory is like they these families need to attach themselves to like Daniel Plainview's that are like psychotic like uh, like business addicts that just want to build huge companies and then mm-hmm. but then they, those people need the social sanction to be actually allowed into high society to really become permanently permanent tycoons so like they have to you know it's a constant like where's the psycho that is wants to be a monopolist oh, okay i'm gonna marry him and give him like my family name and then we'll we'll ride to the stars together um it's the ultimate to the stars academy really um and it's yes. uh, sick mm-hmm. so <laughs> yeah i don't know monsanto like there's so much you could talk about them i don't i they got bought actually by bayer which you know i think has pretty extensive uh nazi lineages uh you know mm-hmm. and is i think the large yeah one of the largest pharmaceutical companies in the entire world the inventor of uh, aspirin and uh trademarker of heroin and uh also 
I think uh, maybe morphine as well, and uh, Yaz birth control pills. Oh yeah, they were one of the six chemical companies that firm, that merged to form IG Farben in 1925. So yeah, they were basically this is like the Nazi cartel that I guess got split back up um, that bought Monsanto. So very, I think very simpatico pairing of those two companies, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that sounds about right. And yeah, GMO, are G, is GMO, is GMO agriculture, uh, is it sus? I mean, yeah, I agree with you. It, it could be done in ways that aren't, but not when somebody like Monsanto within this yeah, like exactly. capitalist like, system is doing it. Theoretically, I could see, yeah, exactly. It'll always be used like a predatory and awful way as long as the technology, again, like the, you know, this is a classic Marxist thing, I guess, the means of production of like uh, superfoods are in the hands of like the worst people ever. It's pretty sus. I'm just, I'm, I'm just reading this, uh, you know, funny article about uh, some like debunker type guy because you know the science community feels very strong, or you know the uh, the the science community often feels very strongly about like the sort of paranoia and conspiracy theories around GMO foods. You know, uh, mm-hmm. very mm-hmm. dismissive of that. So of course, uh, of course. What are you yeah. an anti-GMOer? Yeah, exactly. You know, it's like, mm-hmm. uh, excuse me, like it's helpful. It's saving the third world, uh, or whatever. Uh, you know, uh, it's helping them to get the, to buy uh, Monsanto seeds. Like you, you know, literally heard that on like a one-minute Bill Gates Foundation-sponsored NPR like news item. Like that. Oh, it's like actually helping the third world. You know, like people are so people want to believe. Mm-hmm. that the shit is not sus so bad yeah but this guy i guess was like a uh big gmo advocate <laughs> the article's called i was lured uh into monsanto's gmo crusade here's what i learned as a once vocal supporter of the company's gmo push i learned debates about science are never just about science wow. this guy sounds like a complete goober but anyway uh you know he met Vance Crow at the 2016 conference for the Committee for Skeptical Inquiry in Las Vegas. He was tall, white, conventionally handsome, and extremely charismatic. What a weird thing to say. Like, uh, it says, <laughs> I, as soon as I met him, I knew he was going to win me over. He was tall, white, conventionally handsome, and extremely charismatic. The 34-year-old Crow was two years into a stint as the director of millennial engagement for Monsanto, the controversial agricultural company that has been synonymous with genetically modified food. And that was exactly the kind of person he sought to engage. As a millennial, progressive, science-minded mom of two, I I guess this is a woman. Once again, me mistaking someone. Uh, I guess I thought Kevin was like Kevin, but no, it's a woman. Mm -hmm. Uh, And an Indian woman, I guess. Uh, Kevin (laughs) Sempathy. Yeah. I had grown sick of fear mongers who were using bad science, poorly interpreted science, or worst of all, no science at all to render parents love for their children to an anxiety about genetically modified organisms or GMOs. I'd found solace in the skeptics movement, whose members stress empiricism and the scientific method and NDEs. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, and I began <laughs> vlogging to counter and worshiping uh, ETs. No, uh, and I sorry. And I began vlogging to counter the fear uh, and myths that were so pervasive in the parenting world. So I began my strange dance with Crow and Monsanto, a dance that saw me go from vocal supporter of Crow and his GNO movement to an unabashed critic. The dance more or less ended in May of this year when Crow announced in a blog post that he stepped down as Monsanto's director of millennial engagement, having largely failed at his goal of warming young people to the idea of GMOs. 
Bayer, which acquired Monsanto last June, said in a statement that the company does not currently have plans to fill the positions. Probably a good idea. Seems totally yeah. pointless. Uh, <laughs> during my years of interactions with Crow and some of the who's who of Monsanto and the pro-GMO world, however, imagine, you know, I, I think, you know, it's nice this this woman, I guess, uh, woke up. Uh, we'll find out why, I guess, in a, in a moment. But, uh, you know, imagine, like, it's just so sad to be like, if you're like a pro-GMO activist, like, are you kidding? Like, for Monsanto. Yeah, like Ugh. how, like, anyway, but I learned an important lesson, one that Crow never seemed to grasp. Public debates about science technology are never just about science and technology. That's absolute sacrilege. But anyway, uh, Monsanto <laughs> has been a lightning rod for people's views on food, the food system, global health, and war since well before it began its pivot into agricultural biotechnology in the 1980s. Uh, it seems like it was kind of into agricultural biotechnology before that, when it had uh, you know a bunch of slaves on on the family's plantation. That's technically um, or a, when it was or biotech, was manufacturing uh, uh, yeah. fucking Agent Orange. Yeah, uh, this is the company no, that no, manufactured pivoted. Agent they Orange. Pivoted. They pivoted. Uh, and in 2013, uh, 31 years after Monsanto scientists first modified a cell line, the furor around the corporation showed few signs of slowing. Amid a wave of anti-Monsanto fervor on the internet, a reported hundreds of thousands of protesters took to the streets around the world to march against Monsanto. Oh no, anyway, uh, wait, so in two, 2014, in an apparent attempt to win over young minds and, quote, crack the millennial code, to borrow the theme at that year's Animal Agriculture Alliance Conference, Monsanto hired Crow, a communications strategist and a director of millennial engagement. As journalist Jesse Scott put it in a 2017 profile for successful farming, Crow's overarching goal was to engage with millennials about the intersection of farming, food, and technology, and push back against activists who spread fear of modern agriculture. He identified six like-minded communities, which he problematically called tribes, that he hoped to recruit as allies, computer technologists, STEM proponents, pragmatic environmentalists, food as fuel proponents, agriculture advocates, and skeptics. Wow. Imagine, like, being targeted. Like, your skeptic community has totally failed if you're being targeted by Monsanto as a potential, like, focus or, you know, demographic group that you, like is, be, is reachable by their, like, yeah, exactly. Potential demographic that's reachable by their, like, pro-GMO propaganda <laughs> campaign like imagine that but anyway so this uh this Love author this i guess to agree with yeah the exactly most evil corporations in the world literally to be identified as like a mark by like some dude coming in to be like the millennial engagement uh commissioner at monsanto <laughs> but anyway so this author was swept up in it and helped amplify the nobles for gmo campaign she founded the march against myths a science activist organization forged to counter the pseudoscience injustice that we believe was being perpetrated against Monsanto. <laughs> <laughs> Defend Monsanto. Yeah, exactly. You crow preach the scientific gospel of GMOs when something like this. If you're pro-science, you must be pro-GMO. If you're anti-Monsanto, then you're anti-GMO. Therefore, if you're anti-Monsanto, then you're anti-science. All right, like, there wow. we go. Well, I, I feel Very like cool. uh, anti-science is going to win this one because I definitely am willing to let go of science altogether to be anti-Monsanto, but anyway, uh, I guess some millennials heavy, might be swayed by cost. that, but apparently um, they wouldn't. They also created it, DDT, which I think gave a ton of people cancer, and they created a, what is it, recombinant bovine growth hormone, which, you know, is very controversial in its effect yeah. on cows. They've basically been fucking around with, like, biology in very duplicitous ways for a very long time. So um, the idea that, like, you have to get out in the streets and basically defend them 
For, uh, for what reason? I'm not sure. They're also, by the way, they're the only manufacturer of white phosphorus for military use in the U.S. Well, but that's not agricultural. That's military. So, it, you know, that's it's totally a new separate. Field for that. So, you, yeah, exactly. You can't judge them based on the yeah. past. People grow and, and you know, change. The, People they, they grow also, and change. They uh, also, as of 2015, controlled 26% of the global seed market with DuPont in second place with 21%. So DuPont... And um, Monsanto, both of whom manufactured Agent Orange during Vietnam, control 47% of the global seed market, the entire globe. Evil-ass companies, one of which, like, the scions of their family tried to overthrow FDR and, like, install a fascist dictatorship. So, cool. Uh, and also love the Nazis. Um, this yeah, is a, so this is a funny very. quote uh, about <laughs> Monsanto, about the millennial engagement guy. His objective, it seems, was to render opposition to GMOs as ridiculous as belief in Bigfoot and to oh. amass a movement that could be counted on to shout that message from the rooftops. Uh, solidarity with being anti-science and with believing in Bigfoot against Monsanto. But yeah, anyway, uh, so this person yeah. wrote multiple articles on Monsanto's behalf, uh, fighting the good fight against uh, anti -mon against Monsanto phobia, and uh, she said that the non-GMO <laughs> project uh, claims to certify more than uh, 50,000 products, representing more than 26 billion in annual sales. In a 2017 op-ed, I wrote that the non-GMO project's vilification of safe technologies was indefensible, and that they were quote ruining my shopping experience. <laughs> However, I gradually began to sense that there was something very wrong with the GMO gospel. In August 2017, several pieces I co-wrote for Forbes were taken down when it was discovered that my co-author had published articles ghostwritten by Monsanto. That feeling that something was wrong came into even sharper focus early last year when Crow and Monsanto hosted a fireside chat with University of Toronto psychology professor Jordan Peterson to address <laughs> farmers on the dangers of allowing ideologies to grow unopposed. Wow. Uh, yeah, well, you know, you gotta <laughs> get you gotta, that cultural Marxism out exactly. of the GMO market. You gotta harvest those ideologies before while while they're ripe. You know, you can't let them grow unopposed. Just like crops, you can't let Haitians plant seeds unopposed, and you can't let ideologies grow unopposed. Um, no, helping them is too important. Yes. Last thing, uh, you know, critical critical support for. Vladimir Vladimirovich Putin, because in 2016, Russia, I remember this, they banned GMO food in 2016. They're just like, no, mm. we're not importing your stupid seeds. And June 2016, they banned foodstuffs produced using genetically modified plants or animals. Basically, they treated it like it's almost like a disease. The legislation strengthens measures aimed at monitoring all types of activities associated with GMOs, preventing release of GMOs into the environment, and ameliorating the consequences if such a release occurs. I mean, well, think about that. Like, I guess the uh, they prohibit any use of seeds derived from uh, genetic, mod genetic modification, including those that cannot reproduce or transfer inherited genetic material and reproduction of animals whose genetic program has been changed by using genetic engineering methods. Great. And the, the only exception is like experimental research work. And, you know, I remember uh, back in the day, you know, going back in the, like the discourse of like, everybody in the Soviet Union was starving. Actually, they had higher caloric intake, higher daily caloric intake on average by the 1980s. They had surpassed the United States and all their food was organic straight from the farm in like jars. They didn't have those confectionery sugar boxes that, you know, Boris Yeltsin saw when he was on acid in that Houston supermarket and psyoped him into believing in capitalism. They ate <laughs> like real food. So maybe there's kind of like a, there, there's, there's a, a, an ongoing legacy 
of food. And, you know, we've both been to Russia. So the food, it varies, <laughs> like uh, to say the yeah. least. But I I've guess it's still not a like... a supermarket. Uh, yeah, I didn't yeah. Really notice any significant difference. Uh, they, they do have a lot of, like, sugary products now and stuff, oh, and, like, candies sure. and for things sure like that. Um, yeah. But, I mean, but, yeah, I mean, yeah. I think this is a... You, you love to see it when they ban GMOs. They're, they might also be, you know, because I don't know, like, what... Like I said, I, I don't know for sure... It doesn't say anywhere here whether or not, like, these seeds kind of, like, spoil the land so that only their seeds can be planted on it. But think how dangerous that would be if seeds just kind of float around. And then on top of that, like, what, is Monsanto going to send some reps out to Russia? Be like, excuse me, sir. Uh, well, I if that's that- true, like, that they <laughs> like- light the land to, like, prevent any seeds but theirs from growing. I mean, that could even just be, like, an unintentional effect that I could see, like, seeds transforming the like texture of the soil again i'm just like uh going off about something that i literally know nothing about which is like agriculture and how soil works but yeah uh, <laughs> yeah so but i it seems but, like something that if someone told me that i would probably believe them until i could confirm otherwise uh but i don't it sounds know like russia is being critical paranoid and i critically support that uh, but it seems like despite speaking out against cancel culture, basically, uh, or despite, you know, being opposed to cancel culture, they did, when this woman criticized them, they did cancel her and kind of forced her out of the GMO club. And uh, she later found that they were keeping like uh, an enemies list, um, which they got <laughs> in trouble uh, for in France, I guess, because I guess having a dossier on your political opponents is like against the law in France uh, or something. Uh, wow. <laughs> yeah. Not well, against the law here. No, it's Ask not. the American uh, Security Committee. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was problematic mm-hmm. under French law, which prohibits the instruction of a database revealing the political and philosophical opinions of a person without their consent. Wow. Something I've heard about France that doesn't immediately make me recoil uh, in disgust, uh, that they have a law against compiling people's political opinions without their consent. Probably from it's their like VT legacy. Uh, they're like a <laughs> um, um, You know, they have... Uh, yeah, right? Exactly. Nobody... Don't ask any questions. Um, yeah. Yeah, I'm sure time, that they're upset know, that, about that. That, that. Well, that and the two-hour lunches are What about religious opinions? <laughs> can you do that? Political, philosophical? Uh, does Islam count as a philosophy? Probably not. It's okay to make a list. But anyway, no. Uh, uh, we, it yeah, does. Um, but... Uh, <laughs> uh, non, non. Uh, but... Yeah, Islam gauchism. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. That's Gosh. that's not a philosophy. Uh, well, yeah, I said it's political. But anyway, one thing I wanted to mention that we didn't okay. mention was their uh, weed killer Roundup, which oh, like, yeah. causes cancer. Um, mm-hmm. That's pretty sus. Um, All their products cause cancer. Like everybody's still like dying from Agent Orange. Like, the government has to pay out like Vietnam veterans, and that they're probably like it's hard to count probably how many have gotten like cancer from their exposure to that. Which you know, on the on the one hand, is kind of like well, it shouldn't have been in Vietnam. Did they design but, hey, it? Did they like build it themselves, or did they? Just there were eight it? eight chemical companies. I, I guess were contracted to develop Agent Orange and Dupont and Monsanto were two of those companies. I say. Uh, yeah, hmm. yeah. So they, right. they made a lot of money off of it. And um, I'm sure, you know, the federal government, as usual, like the taxpayer kind of picked up the tab for all that cancer and death. And, you know, Monsanto just got the whistle all the way down to the bank of marble. And, you know, no big deal. So, you know, and, and then they, they just got to like, you know, uh, switch and just transition into controlling our food supply for the entire world. Very cool. Very cool. Yeah, Um, it's all very sus. And watch out what you hear, because apparently all they do is just put out propaganda about uh, how base GMO foods are. So uh, Mm -hmm. it's hard to sort out the truth. You never know what the future holds. 
Okay, so we're back. Um, uh, I guess we can oof. move on to number 14 now. Before we do 14, I did want to say that during our break just now, I uncovered like a little bit more uh, sus Monsanto stuff. Uh, first of all, my girlfriend came into the room and said, I heard you talking about Monsanto. And the other day uh, she was hanging out with a friend of ours who's like a lawyer in the public sector. Basically, like mm-hmm. she uh, like prosecutes companies when they like violate like workers protections and things like that Mm -hmm. she apparently told her that when someone wants to sue monsanto they have to hire like a lawyer whose entire career is based on just suing monsanto and doesn't do anything else because like it's so like difficult and if any like firm wants to sue them they have to like freeze all hiring like not even like a janitor or anything like that because the janitor that they hire will be like a Monsanto plant and you have to wow. like lock down like all your documents and everything. And <laughs> yeah, uh, she like, you know, she, uh, I can't confirm this, but you know, she works in the field. So I, I take her word for it. She was like, you know, lawyers have been murdered by Monsanto for wow. uh, prosecuting them. But, you know, I was just sitting here with uh, some windows open from when we we're having that conversation. And I, uh, came across some article in the New York Times talking about how, uh, you know, you would think that with these, uh, you know, resistant GMO foods that the use of pesticides and uh, herbicides would go down. But in fact, like because of the, uh, you know, the crops are resistant to herbicides, like the weed killers, you can just spray the weed killer like crazy and not worry about your crops. So actually the use of the weed killer goes up and they profit wow. on both ends. Because they uh, make both. They make they yeah, make pesticide exactly. and they make the seeds. Wow, yeah, so great. it's exactly what they want. But something super sus about that, uh, that even the New York Times was saying this, they were linking to some, an article by uh, someone, uh, a researcher, I guess at Harvard, who had hypothesized and I guess shown in at least this one study that uh, connect, he connected these pesticides or these uh, you know weed killers and, and pesticides to like a net like IQ drop of like or not net but uh, you know a collective drop. Basically, his whole theory was that you know it might be negligible in the individual, but it should be measured on a population level. And he was saying basically that like uh, you know you can a- attribute like a loss of 17 million IQ points on a population scale to like these pesticides. Now, like I don't oh like put God. too much stock in IQ as a measure of intelligence, but yeah. I don't know. It's like a spooky thought, you know, that like there's like a sort of microscopic change in uh, IQ, you know, that you wouldn't necessarily notice on an individual level, but like on a population level, it just makes us a little bit more like a little less um, savvy, you know. Uh, folks, <laughs> yeah, mean, folks. Uh, was he that so, wrong yeah. about the frog folks. turning the frogs gay and other things uh, like that? I mean, yeah, I the, think that- the hallucinogenic frogs, you know. Know, uh, we need to make sure that they don't turn gay. But um, <laughs> oh yeah, but the last thing that was also very sus that I came upon was that the you know of course like in America like these GMO foods are really rampant, but Europe like we saw with France you know they have actually taken more of a stand against Monsanto and against GMO foods in general. You know they have kind of seen that oh actually like the use of these pesticides like hasn't diminished. You know the crop yields aren't that much better like the way they were promised to be. So like, we don't really Mm -hmm. need this stuff, you know, and they kind of, you know, not wanted to have them. Uh, But recently, of course, we had a horrible pandemic where Mm -hmm. certain vaccines that were bioengineered necessitated in the emergency situation, the relaxing of some of those uh, laws 
prohibiting uh, bioengineered materials uh, from coming mm. into, into Europe. So uh, it's a big win for the, the pro-science crowd. Yeah. Uh, the, yeah, the pro science crowd, the IG Farben spinoffs, yes. uh, they're all doing yeah. great. So, yeah, I thought that was an interesting coincidence. I think, uh, you know, I don't think they're actually the same company, but I know that like Bayer and Johnson and Johnson, you know, they do work together. Uh, they like market some things together. I'm not sure if they're actually like merged or, or whatever, but uh, yeah, they do at least so. market some drugs together. Um, uh huh. I mean, the, these really, they have the character of what they are, just like cartels, basically. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, there's so many levels of how they could kind of fix the market, you know? They're so vertically yeah. integrated. Mm-hmm. This is the kind of thing that antitrust legislation was ostensibly designed to prevent, but I think that that war has been lost. Uh, yeah, because they're persons now. now, you know, and if you try to speak out against them, you're just being Monsanto-phobic and anti-science. Um, yeah. So, yeah. But anyway, mm-hmm. uh, exactly. yeah, I just, so. uh, let's share a little bit of that, but we can uh, move on. This next question is actually pretty funny. It is good. Uh, okay, well, it's funny, and it's also about uh, what's funny. Uh, uh-huh. Yeah, uh, 14, help my pony... Uh, asks, uh, hmm, I wonder what, 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 I hope their pony is all right, but anyway, uh, <laughs> sketch, uh, slash improv comedy has a bit of a cult-like atmosphere in the U.S. with sus pyramid scheme schools like the Upright Citizens Brigade and the subsequent pipeline directly to mass media institutions that reinforce liberal cultural hegemony such as Saturday Night Live. Del Close is venerated as the godfather of improv comedy with the annual Dale Close Marathon in NYC, and he has had some real sus connections with the Merry Pranksters, the Grateful Dead, and the First Acid Tests. It seems to me that the improv comedy explosion might just be the same cultural counter-revolution as Laurel Canyon music scene. But I'm curious to hear you, your thoughts, maybe? Uh, and your know, Yeah, and your thoughts on the matter. Oh, yes, you, yes, and your thoughts on the matter. I get it. It's like the first oh, little improv. Yes, uh, and. Okay. Uh, right. We got a yes UCP and. graduate All right, Yeah, sorry. Okay. I, I was thrown by this. Uh, yeah, so, um, yeah, I mean, we, I think both, I can think of speak for both of us in saying, like, based on our past conversations, we both, like, have a strong aversion to uh, what we call can- comedy with a C-A-W-M-E-D uh, <laughs> yeah. uh, to sort of, uh, express the vocal affect of when people are talking about comedy or co- comedy when they're just you know people who uh, feel very strongly about the importance the cultural importance of comedy to like heal society and uh just have a it, it, you know, it's that john stewart syndrome that yeah. we're still dealing mm-hmm. with rampaging yeah, or, through the real pandemic or every um, episode of like louis ck's tv show where he would like talk to some like washed up like uh Muslim hating comedian uh, like Joan Rivers or something, and she would be like, you know, this is what we do. It's a gift. It's beautiful. We're sent here to save the world from their frowns or whatever. Uh, you know, like yeah, or uh, our favorite hagiographical comedy show, uh, Crashing, which is just uh, oh that show? yeah, I don't think I yeah 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 yeah. I think I did watch a few episodes of that. That's so bad, so bad. Uh, it's just like the altar of comedy being yeah. worshipped every episode. And but you know, uh, Del Close. Yeah, I mean, I mean, did you ever did you ever do proper improv comedy when you're younger i did like improv com i did like an improv thing at camp like i was in an improv class at camp once you know like uh that's basically it i never like was i never took an imp- like a, a true improv class i know i know that you did uh i've seen people in ucb shows 
Uh, and I've okay. seen like plenty of improv things, you know. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I've yeah. done some. Pe- I, I've known a number of people who have gone through like the UCB program. I did go to one of them in New York like a decade ago. I did like the 101 class, and ultimately, but also I had. I have to confess, like I did improv in high school. I actually did like competitive improv. That yeah, was, I remember like, you thing. telling me that, right? Yeah, yeah, I yeah. And I was, I was kind of very about, into like, it. Having to go back it and was, forth with the questions and stuff. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, and I mean, it was like it was fun and it was like exciting. But I think there was something about like maybe it was just because I was like a teenager, but the competitive aspect of it made it really fun. That you were trying yeah. to like upstage like a little bit like a rap battle or something. You're kind of trying to upstage the other team, and then you'd have like fans yeah. from both schools there like kind of it would get a little you know contentious sometimes like there'd be beefs and and stuff like that but then when around the time i got to college every time i went to an improv show it's like there was no competitive element and everyone was just kind of like patting themselves patting each other on the backs for like doing improv and like i don't know yeah. it just had this energy that i didn't really uh, connect with and then i think after college i decided hey why not like everybody goes to like a ucb class maybe i'll do it i'll try it out and i did and i think ultimately yeah, I found because like I did, I was never like taught improv. It was kind of just a thing that I don't know. Like you, you got on the team and then like you'd practice like being funny and, and like there was never really like oh we got to read like Del Close's book and like go through all the things. Like it was much <laughs> looser, but like there's definitely like a program in UCB of like yeah. this is how it's done and and it's like it, it's kind of like. Um, like we talk about that that old I think uh, Red Stockings essay, the tyranny of structurelessness. Like mm-hmm. uh, basically going after like horizontalist anarchists in the seventies and being like, you guys like front like basically that you're totally leaderless and there's no structure, but then it actually creates like more subaltern structures that are more controlling and could be abused even more. And, and, you know, I felt a little bit like that with UCB and the sort of Del Close ideology that it was like all about like no, it's just about the game. It's about the game. Find out what the game is. Oh, no pimping. Stop pimping. They had these like little like, What's like kind of like synonym phrases that they would just yell out at you. And it was always like of, what what does pimping mean in a UCB context? I think pimping meant like projecting something onto another character without oh. like their permission like without their participation in kind of like oh so like you're obviously a pirate and you have one leg and you have a parrot on your shoulder like i think that i think that's that's what like oh okay i see yeah like you're kind of doing too much like to project like the other person's character where it's supposed to be more of like a a dialectical process or something but it wasn't (laughs) maybe it would have been cooler if they described it that way but it was kind of like a thing where yeah there weren't like game setups it was just like start absolutely blank and then discover a scene and I always liked having sort of like a game thing that you have to do in it. There's like a there's like one rule you have to follow, but then you can kind of like play jazz with it a little bit. And as long as you like hit the rule, it's like part of how you get scored. You know, like back yeah. when I was in the leagues and shit. Like it was how, how right, like, could yeah. you hang on to the game? Like you know, you do things like the like an alphabet scene where like every sentence you say has to be the next letter in the alphabet or something like that, like right. alternating. And and if you fuck up, like, so, like, it adds, like, different layers to it. But yeah. there was just, like, a vibe about, um, I think my teacher went on to have, like, a Comedy Central show. So it definitely has, like, shown me that, like, that is a pipeline. And, of course, since I moved out to L.A., like, it's also, I don't think I've ever been to a UCB show in, like, Hollywood or the, the new place they have. But, and I've always kind of kept a little bit of a distance from it. Like, I never wanted to go back after doing the yeah. 101 thing 
thing. And they, it has kind of, as their cultural influence has like ascended over, especially over the last like decade and, and definitely over the last 20 years. Like when you look at people that came out of this whole like Dell Close sort of scene, it's like everybody. It's like like Amy Poehler, Adam McKay, like Horatio Sands, like Tina Fey, like like just so many people came out of this pipeline and, and you know, younger people too. And it is a feeder into SNL and all the kind of daily show style, like news comedy shows that are out there. And I don't know, you know, it, it, uh, oh, yeah. You know, I think, also came out of the operates of this brigade theater. It's oh, really, and, awesome. uh, and a son of like the largest, like private intelligence company in America, Nick Kroll, uh, also came out of there. Oh, cool. And, yeah. Like all and, those people, uh, yeah. like I would, just like uh, I can't deal. Like it's just like awful. Like it's just awful. Like everything that they produce is awful, and I just like want to not experience it like at all. Like something. There's about definitely it just, like, a cult atmosphere. I remember running into people that like maybe I hadn't seen in years, and in like L.A. and they were with like their improv team or something yeah. from UCB, mm-hmm. and it's such a. It's it's very reminiscent of kind of like musical theater vibes, but even it's more. Uh, I'd actually prefer to hang out with like musical theater people. Uh, I think maybe than sometimes like you mean a like UCB the way gang they're always, because they're they like, like start sing, like you know someone will mention like oh like you know I'll see you tomorrow and they'll be like tomorrow to, like you know like they just like won't they'll just break into like show tunes like uh, spontaneously tomorrow tomorrow yeah exactly yeah exactly yeah, exactly. yeah that yeah. was like hilarious shit uh, yeah yeah in college and you know but. But these people, you know, they there's there's a kind of always on aspect. I feel like that yeah, kind of absolutely. In like the UCB scene where they're always Any like kind of to like be comedy funny. people or like sketch sketch comedy people. Yeah, there's just like this weird like screen or like veneer of yeah, like always on this that you just can't. Yeah, like they're they're programmed. They're programmed to kill with comedy, you know. They're programmed. <laughs> they are. They're yeah. They're programmed to you know slay the audience with with uh-huh. their with their jokes, you know. Well, um, you know, but going back to the whole idea of like, was there a kind of Laurel Canyon weird thing going on with the improv comedy world that ended up being so influential, and particularly with Del Close, who's like kind of revered as like this prophet of improv at places like UCB, and I discovered a few few things that were yeah i mean kind of interesting so Mm. the thing is uh you know he mostly i think he's mostly associated with chicago and second city improv you know um chicago which produced a lot of people yeah like a lot of famous people too many to list but like a lot of big snl people and stuff but then I didn't know this. He spent the latter half of the 1960s in San Francisco, where he was the house director of improv ensemble The Committee, uh, you know, which featured a bunch of different performers. And how about this? He toured with the Merry Pranksters, and he created light images for Grateful Dead shows. And then in 1972, he went back to Chicago and, uh, and to Second City and everything else. But he was basically a Merry Prankster who started this. And Going was to, like, like Mary Prankster's improv sounds like the worst thing in the world. Uh, yeah, that just sounds horrible. But it makes sense, um, right? It yeah, makes it sense as like the energy yeah. of the Mary Pranksters is very much like a UCB improv team. Yeah, it does. Today. Mm-hmm. Yeah, or, and yeah, you know, absolutely. Like I can just see that like cool truck like pulling up and like them jumping out and being like, "Hey, give me a name, give me a topic." Uh, okay, got it. Like, <laughs> yes, and uh, mm-hmm. right. oh god, and you know he also he you know he 
he directly taught a lot of like very influential people. But one of the ones he taught was Hugh Romney, also known as Wavy Gravy, who is like one of the arch hippie kind of mascots, the, the arch hippie clown, actually, you could say, who was kind of popped up everywhere and did just about everything since the 60s and was actually the official clown of the Grateful Dead. Wow, the official yeah. clown of the Grateful Dead. Yes, and uh, he also, uh, he founded uh, like a children's camp called, uh, a circus <laughs> and performing arts camp called Camp Win a Rainbow. That's all one word. and Because oh he ran something called the Hog Farm in uh, California that uh, was is actually the longest running hippie commune. Uh, that started as a, a, a collective in North Hollywood, and then they moved to an actual hog farm into Hunga, California. And um, I guess, like, Wavy Gravy so was, like, the, the runner guy, of that. As far as we know, like, there's no, like, pedophile allegations against this guy, because, like, looking well, at him and, like, looking at his background. Well, uh, I, I, I want to, I'm not going to say because I don't quite remember, but I feel like there have been things said about Wavy Gravy in the past, um, but you know, he um, he basically, he also founded something called the First Church of Fun and like that's spelled with a P-H first and fun um, a secret society of comics and clowns that aimed to support ending the Vietnam War through political theater. And that was actually something <laughs> that worked. came up later um, as, as as associated, I believe, with the Church of the Subgenius. Oh, cool. Wow. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So you and that was like, I think, at maybe back in the, the 70s. And um, I wonder if he's related to like the Romneys at all. His dad was an architect in uh, East Greenbush, New York, which is uh Oh, it's a suburb of Albany, so I don't know. And then, yeah, he moved to West Hartford, Connecticut. Uh, interesting. And um, uh, growing up, but yeah, so he actually, yeah, the Hog Firm Collective was established through a chain of events beginning with Ken Babs hijacking the Merry Pranksters bus further to Mexico, which stranded the Merry Pranksters in L.A. First, Romney assembled a collective in North Hollywood visited by musicians such as Ravi Shankar and Tiny Tim, whom he managed. Wow, Ravi Shankar, why is he up in this mix, like, constantly with all these people? Kind of, like, I'm starting to think it's uh, not random that he was just, like, hanging around Black Assassins is going in hard on, on Wavy Gravy. Um, oh, yeah? <laughs> yes. It's interesting. I didn't realize, like, how anti-Semitic Mind Control Black Assassins was in addition to being, like, anti-Nazi. But anyway, yeah. Yeah, uh, yeah. During the 1960s and 70s, I remembered Wavy Gravy on the surface as a disarming and benevolent pop popular hippie clown and activist around Berkeley and in the MC of the infamous 1969 Woodstock Music Festival. As a popular MC of the era, he opened the show for major music industry entertainers John Coltrane, B.B. King, Thelonious Monk, and Peter, Paul, and Mary. Waver Gravy was like the satanic ritual slang of Arliss Perry at Stanford University 44 years ago. It had been deeply embedded in my subconscious. When I heard his name in the context of the heart witches and the racial mass murder of six innocent black children, alarm bells went off in my mind. Instantly, my intuition was that Wavy Gravy is related to the heart witches and the ritual sacrifices of the children. Wavy Gravy was far from being the disarming, benevolent, and innocent clown character. Now, I fully understand why the warnings have been issued from the grapevine to stay away from him. Uh, Romney was born in East Greenbush, New York. His family ancestors were associated with the high-ranking English Freemasons in Kingston, Jamaica. After the Korean aggression and the start of MKUltra, Romney volunteered for the U.S. Army in 1954. 
After discharge, he attended Boston University Theater Department in 1957, then attended the Neighborhood Playhouse for Theater in NYC. He worked at the Gaslight Cafe in Greenwich Village, Manhattan at night as the poetry entertainment director that featured beat poet Allen Ginsberg. Ooh. At one time, he lived with the Jewish Bob Dylan above the cafe. Romney's entertainment <laughs> okay. poetic career was managed by the infamous Jewish Lenny Bruce. Okay, Prince Ray. It's interesting that he didn't note that Allen Ginsberg is Jewish. Allen Ginsberg, I assume he is Jewish, or maybe he uh, just yeah. leaves that. Leaves no, 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 he that. is. Just, Absolutely, yeah. 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 I guess maybe um, he just leaves that to, for us to you know, conclude based on maybe that's his name. That's interesting. But, yeah. Um, yeah. Well, it, well you know, in he terms certainly of his, is convinced uh, that Levy Gravy is, yeah, a sacrificer of children, and he claims to have heard of the grapevine that stay away from Levy Gravy. But that's that's Prince Ray, Prince Ray Bullock. That is Prince Ray, though. I think <laughs> there, there's something just on his Wikipedia here under the subheader Neo Pagan Appearances that says that Wavy Gravy's first appearance at an event in the Neo Pagan community was at the Winter Star Symposium in 1998 with Paul Krasner. What the fuck? Why? Uh, he published May Brussel. Weird. He appeared there again in 2000 with Phyllis, uh, Phyllis Currat, where he joined Reverend Ivan Stang in a joint ritual of the Church of the Subgenius and his Church of the Cosmic Giggle. And Phyllis Currat, um, who goes under the craft name Aradia, is a Wiccan priestess, attorney, and author. And Reverend Ivan Stang is the publisher of the first screed of the Church of the Subgenius and is a co-founder. Basically, and if you cool. just look at his Wikipedia picture, he looks like an absolute psycho. Yeah, exactly. That's like children. I saw that picture and I was like, "That's yeah. upsetting to me." And, and Wavy Gravy like also co-founded the Siva Foundation in 1978, along with spiritual leader Ram Das and public health expert Dr. Larry Brill- Larry Brilliant, um, who I don't know, like or helped eradicate smallpox with the WHO in the 70s. Very bizarre. And um, I guess they they do site restoration programs uh, for underserved communities. That sounds like, okay, maybe that's not that sus. But then Camp Winter Rainbow, uh, I don't know. He founded with his wife this circus and performing arts camp in Laytonville, California, near his hog farm in uh, Mendocino County. And in, uh, let's see... Yeah, and actually, uh, until 2003, Ben and Jerry's produced an ice cream called Wavy Gravy, which helped drive a scholarship fund for underprivileged kids to attempt uh, to attend Camp Winter Rainbow. Ooh, I don't know about Camp Winter Rainbow with all these rumors coming around. I would not send my around. kids there. I would not send my kids to, like, Interlock and West uh, to fucking Camp Winter Rainbow. So listen to this. Classes that campers can attend include aerials, trapeze, silks, and Spanish web, juggling, improvisation, tightrope, gymnastics, acting, drama, unicycle, stilt walking, clowning, and clown philosophy, art, (laughs) and magic. Campers are given free choice as to which classes they want to attend, and with two mandatory periods for magic and clown philosophy offered in the morning. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But, yeah, I guess, uh, oh, my God. Wow. The camp has ties to individuals and organizations from the founders' counterculture background. Danny Rifkin, a former co-manager of the Grateful Dead, has served on the camp's board, and the camp has received funding from the Further Foundation. I think that's Ken Kesey, uh, I want to say. The Bill Graham Foundation, Jerry Garcia, the Rex Foundation, which was created by members of the Grateful Dead and Friends, and many others. So it's uh, actually, wow, uh, a couple it famous people. It's that it's like right next to the hog farm, which is like, you know, a hippie commune. 
where people just like hang out and do drugs like right next to a camp like for kids like you know i don't know it's like weird yeah yeah um <laughs> that is pretty weird and uh, actually uh, funny enough a uh, local bay area legend uh trey cool from green day went to this camp Oh, wow. Trey yeah. Cool indeed. Trey Cool indeed. Um, Very Trey Cool. And let me just check if the Further Foundation is actually... Uh, yeah, is he also founded Ken the... I, I don't know sure if he mentioned that he also founded the First Church of Fun with PH instead of... Yeah, yes. yeah, exactly. Yes, yeah. awesome. Uh, yeah, so, you know, I, I think... I, I don't know what to say. Uh, but again, okay, <laughs> going back to Del Close, who taught Wavy Gravy and was, like, around <laughs> with this whole yeah. gang and, I guess, Del Close like hung out with the grateful dead he did light images for their shows and stuff so he was like very wow. very plugged in and also in the 1980s he served as quote as quote house metaphysician at saturday night live for many years a significant percentage of the oh show's cast God. were close proteges um the house metaphysician that's hmm. weird is he like you know like the patron like sorcerer? Imagine, like imagine like being on like working on SNL and like having to like sit Indian style like you know or cross-legged uh, sorry for uh, like around Del Close and like you know listen to his wisdom. I can just tell like he's good, like I can just imagine like the bloviating like crap that he would like spew upon you like uh yeah, it just sounds odd. like, you know, and you must, like, find the inner, like, find the game. What's the game? No pimping. Yeah, what's the game? No, no pimping. pimping. No pimping. Yeah. Uh, maybe maybe he should have told Wavy Gravy that. No, no, that's just an accusation. Um, he also had a small role in Brian De Palma's The Untouchables, which I think we're going to review one day uh, <laughs> as a corrupt alderman. I don't know what that is mm. all about, but... Yeah, yeah, just, like, the level of people that are, like, still around today, like, Bob Odenkirk, Bill Murray, Dan Aykroyd, both the Belushis, like, John Candy, Stephen Colbert, Andy Dick, Chris Farley, John Favreau, Tina Fey, Vince Vaughn, Oh, he's Vaughn, one of those people who Amy donated Sedaris. his skull to be used to play Yorick in productions of Hamlet. Uh, that was a rumor, but they thought that was do. actually just, like, a joke. They were trolling. It wasn't really his skull. But that even that, that even gives a vibe of like how I don't know I don't know it gives a certain vibe like yeah we're gonna use his skull in like an improv scene cool yeah I guess yeah, yeah it was someone else's skull and it was a troll I see yeah right. yeah well, but I don't know yeah the the culty culture around it I think it all it seems like it would emanate from the culty guy who founded all this stuff and taught like everybody yeah. who's famous right yeah apparently he met at one point Elron Hubbard uh, I'm not sure what their interaction was like but. He claims to have met him. Wow. And he was running around with the Beatniks, too, I think, in New York, in Greenwich Village, uh, even, like, before, in, like, the 50s. So he was just around, kind of just a mover and shaker. He was around everywhere. Apparently and all the way through, friends. like, the Gen X generation of comedians that, you know, dominate our airwaves today. And I'm sure there's, like... There definitely seems to be a thing, like, God forbid, like, we're never going to be, like, in comedy. Uh, just not that we were, but, like, we just insulted Del Close and said he's sus. Like, it's game over for us, right? <laughs> like, yeah. like it, I feel like it's that level of adoration and respect for Del Close that, like, how dare you? Yeah. Uh, I just want to try. I, I, apparently like, the he only was reason friends that, with L. Ron Hubbard. Uh, and apparently really? he was the one who told L. Ron Hubbard, allegedly, to create a religion for tax benefits. Wait, I thought, somebody told us recently that Robert Heinlein was the one who told him that. Well, I don't know if he maybe told him to turn 
it into a religion or something. Maybe they all gave him that advice, but according to Del Close, he did. Uh, Del, Del Close claimed, at least, that he, he did that. And, he would have uh, been, what, in his, like, early 20s when he did that? He alleged that they were friends, yeah. Yeah, I'm wow. looking in the Chicago Reader right now. <laughs> Why improv is either funny nor entertaining, according to a stand-up comedian. Uh, improv is to comedy as Scientology is to religion. It suckers white people into paying ever more expensive fees to the organization to gain higher levels of achievement. <laughs> like any cult, its hierarchies are of endless fascination to those within it and deadly boring to those without. And like Scientology, improv is centered around a messianic leader, though the example of the late Del Close suggests that L. Ron Hubbard would have been even more toxic if he'd had a smack habit. You know uh, what? Guess, oh my god. Wait. Okay, no, keep reading. Yeah. Uh, well, this is uh yeah, this is a different article than the one I was thinking of, but the article that I found the his supposed friendship in um referenced in is an article about a show that was created about him, about uh, him as a, a guru. It's uh I guess there were two productions maybe or two scripts that were written for the show, but anyway, the article is just in the Chicago Tribune, but it just says, like, a major challenge is figuring out how to distill Close's sprawling life into two hours of entertainment. Do you include his early days as a circus fire eater dubbed Azrad the Incombustible? His experiences in the Second City Precursor Compass Players with Mike Nichols and Elaine May, the latter what? of whom he dated? His friendships with Scientology founder L. Ron Hubbard, whom he supposedly advised to create a religion for the tax benefits? Comedian Lenny Bruce and entertainer-slash-activist Wavy Gravy? His Air Force-sanctioned experiments with LSD and later travels with Ken Kesey's acid tests? Wait, what? Uh, that's what, you know, it's, it Wait, says. what? Uh, Air mm. Force experiments with LSD? So apparently he had Air Force sanctioned, according to this article, yeah. Oh my and god. No, yeah, okay. Apparently uh, yeah. he was there at Altamont, too. Uh, yeah, he was... Well, like he was at Altamont? Guy. Yeah, he apparently oh my was... God. Right there uh, at Altamont's people before they all left uh, in the Hell's Angels violence. Wow. Okay. Yeah. No, I think um, there's a JSTOR <laughs> article called Yes And. Here we are 20 years later. Del Close and the influence of long form improvisation on contemporary American comedy. And I think it might mention these Air Force experiments that I think happened maybe in Brooklyn. Okay, and then, then we have, uh, he was hanging out, what, with Allen Ginsberg as well? I think Who's so, cousin? Yeah. Apparently, Who's cousin? Yeah, apparently was, he uh, hung out with him and with the the Jewish Bob Dylan and the Jewish <laughs> Lenny Bruce. Yeah. Um, I, I want to get to the bottom of not, not the Jewishness of Bob Dylan, but like what <laughs> kind of he was up to in his early years when he was, you know, writing these like very, oh, they, they do feel kind of like crypto-communist kind of songs. And then did somebody get to him? Did somebody make him crash his motorcycle? Did somebody psyop him with LSD? Did Del Close give him LSD? Hmm. Maybe. I don't know, but that's... Okay, so then there you go. We can add him to the list of people that were, like, in <laughs> CIA fucking LSD experiments. Like, what mm -hmm. a surprise. What a surprise. Okay, here we go. Here we go. Wow, this is fucking bizarre. Close moved... This is from the JSTOR article. Close moved to New York City in 1959, got his cabaret license, acquirement to perform in clubs, and began performing stand-up across the city. Close was a competent stand-up performer, though he quickly became better known for his drug use. Referring to himself as chairman of the New York Narcotics Festival, Close performed but needed to find ways to supplement his income. A program run by the Air Force in Brooklyn sought drug trial volunteers for the upcoming Mercury Space Program. 
Dell was asked to take a refined form of the relatively new psychedelic drug, LSD, and go to sleep. Once the monitors to which he was hooked up indicated he was in REM sleep, the doctors would wait close and ask him various questions about his dreams. Close eventually quit the program, even though he said the government's drugs were the best around for their purity and quality. The program would later require him to disclose his entire drug history, causing him to quit the experiment for fear of being rejected because of his prior and extensive use of hallucinogens. Wow, so not this wasn't even his first time doing hallucinogens. Close received a letter from the program shortly after, which read... Dear Mr. Close, you still owe the United States Air Force one dream. Hmm. Wow. Wow. What? Okay, that, that, that's all it says. <laughs> you still owe us one dream. Weird. Very fucking weird. This is weird. Yeah, I'm reading right now some pages of a uh, comic that was written about Dave. Close's, or sorry, Dale Close's friendship with L. Ron Hubbard, <laughs> where L. Ron Hubbard is saying to Dale Close, you know, well, I don't ordinarily deal in dreams. Leave that to the psychiatrist. But this is obviously a birth dream. A dream memory? A dream of a real memory? Yeah, the original engram. What gets me is the amount of intellectual activity going on there before birth. Yeah, that was the most frightening thing. The knowledge that the goat was making me do something impossible, entirely what? outside my experience. He didn't speak in words, you know, but waves of meaning. And L. Ron Hubbard says, hmm. And Del Close replies, and breathing water. I guess I was like breathing air to a fetus. Birth is like drowning in air. And then they just disappear in a puff of smoke. All right. What was that from? A lot. There was some comic series called Wasteland that was written by Del Close with John Ostrander, um, okay. who I guess was is a comic writer who was a big Chicago fan. Yeah, one of the stories in there was about Doug Close and L. Ron Hubbard being friends when they were young. Oh my so that's god. Some of the and you know what? You know what just freaked me out that I never really thought about before? So what? anybody that's like native to Los Angeles might know this, but I never thought it was significant. But if you go to the original UCB theater on Franklin Avenue in Hollywood, it is directly, mm-hmm. and I mean directly across the street from the Scientology Celebrity Center. Wow. Um, what's going on? <laughs> I always thought it was just like a coincidence, but like, whoa, hold up. They were friends. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, they were friends. And both in like MK Ultra shit, like taking psychedelics from the government. Um, yep, nope, not enrolling for that uh, second OT2. Uh, you <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Um, that is uh, that is actually a hilarious dig though that I never thought about it as well. Is like it's basically a way to suck in gullible white people to pay tons of money for like increasing increasingly high ranks like within this order, and you all worship like the genius Del Close, just like Ellen yes. Hubbard, and it has invaded and taken over the entertainment industry, just like Scientology has. It's just another cult, kind of, uh, you know, maybe less harmful at the end of the day, but I don't know. Uh, it's, it's it's harmful to my chill vibes when I'm socializing and everyone's doing yes ands around me. So who can say? Um, yeah, okay. I guess Dale Close also said like that. Uh, he also claimed that that didn't happen, the exchange with, you know, him expiring Scientology. But, you know, he was being puckish. He would tell the story and then be like, oh, it's just a joke. <laughs> you know he's being so fucking puckish and i don't like he's it he's very and, very puckish you know, I don't, even, you know, if I don't like even if he didn't do that even if he didn't do that the fact that he was friends with l ron hubbard when he would have been a young man like in his 20s and l ron hubbard was like just getting the scientology ball rolling 
and was older than him. It's like, was were they still, I mean, were they still involved in like OTO shit back then? Like, how did he become fucking friends with L. Ron Hubbard? That seems Air very Fo- random. They were both doing Air Force Dream experiments together, probably. Oh, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Probably. Probably how they came. Uh, yes. Yeah. Yeah. Very cool. Very cool. Very funny. Ha ha. Ha, ha, ha. Yeah, all very improv, yes. The, just as another summary of the story in Wasteland. Uh, yeah, it might be interesting to read this comic, you know. I'm all just, I'm discovering all this all now for the first time, you know. Uh, my mm-hmm. When I began answering this question, I just had, like, sort of a visceral dislike of improv based on, like, being bored by sitting through improv shows, but now, like, mm-hmm. I'm improv-pilled, and, like, I'm yeah, really, like, sussed out by all of it. Yeah, but in uh, in the story, you know, that I read a little bit from, Close is voluntarily hypnotized by L. Ron Hubbard, and is present when Hubbard comes up with the notion of turning Hubbard's Dianetics into the religion of Scientology. Close also openly discuss in his stories such other controversial topics as his own drug use and his involvement with, with witchcraft as a religion. <laughs> as a religion huh yeah okay. well what other way is there to be involved with <laughs> yeah, I, um, yeah was he cool. teaching classes right. up there so, at, a, uh, at camp wanna rainbow is improv sus uh yes and we'll come back to this uh, we need to do like a whole like uh comedians in buckets going to hell episode definitely that was supposed to be definitely. a play on the uh jerry seinfeld show title but you know, you know too, too even though the even though this podcast is technically like a three and a half hour uh, improv jam, uh, I think we are still like bitter uh, writers that are committed to like the word on the page at the end of the day. So fuck off with your whole thing about how you can come uh, up. You're the not Q&As John more, the Q The Q&As are more improvisational. Uh, I mean, that's like not really. I mean, we're having a conversation. We're not like performing. I mean, I guess we are performing because right. we're on a podcast, but it's not. It's not the same. It's distinctly not the same. It's just a normal. Podcast, no, it is. It is. You know? Even yeah, uh, even Cassavetti's got to like edit his stuff afterwards, even though they're improvising. Just this cult yeah. of improvising. Let's just not. Let's just paint a white uh, blank spot on a canvas. Let's just not write scripts. Let's just not think about anything. Let's just follow the bliss of the moment. Um, I don't support Yeah, well, it. I think that it, there's probably all sorts of, like, just imagine, like, the weird, like, Nexium stuff that Del Close was, like, telling the early <laughs> totally. SNL staff, like, or, you know, team. The comedian success the cast, program. Yeah, exactly. Oh um, it, yeah, well, it worked. Yeah. It worked for a lot of people. Yeah. Most y- influential yes, cult leader in Hollywood history. True. Yeah, he yeah. really slipped under the radar there. People don't. E- yeah, the best, the most success you can have as a cult leader is when people don't even know you're a cult leader. Uh huh. Best trick mm-hmm. they ever played. Um, yeah, the best yeah. trick the the cult leader ever played. Yeah, I mean, if you really, even the name like Del Close is kind of creepy. Like Del, but anyway, uh, Close. Yeah. <laughs> but if you go back to the early days of improv, you know, it's all about like a, you know, Commedia dell'arte and like clowns and like Harlequins. You know, all uh-huh. very sus, all very sus, yeah, all very the, magical. Always a sinister. You know, yeah. all those eyes wide shut masks uh, yeah. would be used in Commedia dell'arte, wouldn't mm-hmm. they? Yeah. That's probably what they Just, came from. Yeah. Watch mm-hmm. out. Okay. Watch out. Watch out. Okay, so let's uh, let's, <laughs> let's charge ahead. Um, we got a question here from Real Dominic. Would love to hear y'all talk about the whole FEMA camps concept on the next Q&A app. Like in Road to 9-11 by Peter Dale Scott, it talks about FEMA in regard to continuity over governance. Something else I would love if y'all would weigh in on and explain. But then also the whole kind of conservative meme of like FEMA camps being this kind of dystopian thing. They're going to be putting like conservatives into FEMA camps or something. <laughs> yes. Right. Well, They're going to be putting conservatives into FEMA camps. Yeah. I mean, 
FEMA is like relatively new, I feel like, you know, uh, it didn't yeah. really exist in its current form. I can understand why there is sort of a, a 9-11 connection with FEMA, obviously, because like the whole concept of emergency management really took off after 9-11, I think. Yeah. yeah. And FEMA itself like was brought into the DHS and transformed in certain ways and just, you know, the general climate change, general concern with emergencies changed. But I mean, yeah, obviously there's like a like a whole like conspiracy theory around it that like in most cases like is just based on like conservatives, you know, having a persecution complex uh, and thinking people are like Monsanto phobic. But, you know, <laughs> we did like intern Japanese Americans. We did do that. So it's at least conceivable well, that there could yeah. be. I mean, we, there's kids in cages at the border. So, of course, of course. Yeah, yeah there are internment um, camps there. We just call them by like different names when we want to. But I, I remember think in the, the X-Files movie, there was that was like a thing like the the like the 90s or early 2000s X-Files movie that came yeah. out around season five of the X-Files. Like that was a big reveal plot point that like there was going to be a fake pandemic or uh, epidemic or illness and then people were going to be herded into FEMA camps and FEMA was going to take control of the government and yeah and it was going to be it's also something Alex Jones was a big promoter of for years of like they're coming a bunch of different spins on it like Jade Helm right Agenda 21 Jade Helm uh huh remember that Agenda 21 remember they were buying all the coffins or like why do you have so many coffins FEMA right exactly because they're going to take conservatives out and yeah really things have really changed in the conservative conspiraverse because it's gone from like they're piling up the coffins to like put us in a camp and then massacre us uh, by firing squad to like Bill Clinton has secretly been executed by firing squad and, and <laughs> Trump is in control. That's um, true. Yeah, it has it has gone away. There's now this like kind of optimism in the well, sort of right wing conspiracy verse. Will swing back around again. I think it probably will. It probably yeah. will. But mm-hmm. in, in terms of talking about the real thing, because like you said, th- there was you know Japanese internment in World War II, and there were also if you look at the people that are really angling to build um, internment or concentration camps on American soil, the irony is that of course it's always been like the far right wing that is most down with this and this question remind me i I can give one example that kind of shed some light on it in a way that's like not shit coded and kind of actually something that is kind of chilling and uh sus and that is a thing called rex 84 which said for readiness exercise 1984 which was a classified scenario and drill developed by the federal government in the 80s to, de- to detain large numbers of U.S. citizens deemed to be, quote, national security threats in the event that a president declared a national emergency. The plan was first revealed in detail in a major daily newspaper by reporter Alfonso Chardi in uh, the July 8, 1987 edition of the Miami Herald. Uh, possible reasons for such a roundup were reported to be widespread opposition to a U.S. military invasion abroad, such as if the United States were to directly invade Central America to combat what the government perceived as subversive activities. The plan also authorized the military to direct ordered movements of civilian populations at state and regional levels. And this is this is actually part of like the continuity of government or cog yeah. planning that is a thing that has happened periodically you know, in the the Cold War period to today, but was getting a lot of um, quiet rewrites in the 80s during the Reagan-Bush administration. And I believe Oliver North was kind of uh, centrally involved in rewriting some of the continuity of government things, like in the event of a catastrophic attack, what authority does government have? Who has the authority, et cetera? So the existence of master military contingency plans, of which Rex 84 was a part, Operation Garden Plot, 
which is a similar thing, um, and one called Lantern Spike, were originally revealed by journalist Ron Reidenauer, who summarizes findings in an article in Counterspy. Transcripts from the Iran-Contra hearings in 1987 record the following dialogue between Congressman Jack Brooks, Oliver North's attorney Brendan Sullivan, and Senator Daniel Inouye, the Democratic chair of the, uh, the Joint Senate House Committee. So uh, Brooks asked, Colonel North, in your work at the NSC, were you not assigned at one time to work on plans for the continuity of government in the event of a major disaster? North's uh, counsel says, Mr. Chairman, Inouye says, I believe that question touches upon a highly sensitive and classified area, so may I request that you not touch upon that? And Brooks <laughs> says, I was, apparently, I was particularly concerned, Mr. Chairman, because I read in Miami papers and several others that there had been a plan developed by that same agency, a contingency plan in the event of emergency, that would suspend the American Constitution. And I was deeply wow. concerned about it and wondered if that was an area in which he had worked. I believe that it was, and I wanted to get his confirmation. And Inouye says, may I most respectfully request that matter not be touched upon at this stage wow. if you wish to get into this i'm certain arrangements can be made for an executive session so yeah contingency plans by the u.s government for rounding up people perceived by the government to be subversive or a threat to civil order have existed for many decades for example from 1967 to 71 the fbi kept a list of over 100,000 people to be rounded up as subversive dubbed the adex list so mm. there i believe jay Edgar hoover was behind that he had kind of a, his own continuity of government plan to round up leftists and, like, civil rights people and anybody that was, like, uppity or not a patriot, um, basically to throw them in FEMA camps. So, or, you know, whatever the equivalent of, like, a FEMA camp yeah. would be. So this is actually been something that, like, the ultra, like, kind of fascist, like, Iran-Contra enterprise crowd has been thirsting for for a very long time, or at least wants to have on the books, just in case. Yeah, Rex84 is extremely sus. One other thing that does come to mind on the FEMA camp front is that there was that one guy who was, I think, in charge of FEMA under Reagan. I want to say he was actually in charge of FEMA at one point. Yeah, he was. Uh, Louis uh, Giuffrida, do you remember mm -hmm. him? And he wrote, like, while he was, I remember it being a thing that he wrote uh, while he was, uh, I guess, at the War College, uh, the U.S. Mm -hmm. War College. He wrote a thesis, which is like, you know, like a 53-page thesis, which is, again, like just one of those things, just like, are you kidding me? But anyway, uh, most of it, it's called National Survival Racial Imperative. And, you know, despite the title, uh, which, you know, is, uh, uh, you know, very uh, worrisome, uh, yes. most of it is like, pretty like basic like lib stuff uh just basically about how like you know prejudice is bad it's always been part of history you know native americans were persecuted and genocided uh you know there was the internment of the japanese are mentioned and uh you know then he mentions like racism against black people but he also mentions you know the problem of black militants and mm -hmm. again you know most of this is like just about how it's important that we attend to these issues and create social programs to promote like racial understanding and peace in society but there is you know this guy did eventually manage fema and there is mm -hmm. this weird part that comes at the end of this where he kind of goes in this long Fantasia, where he uh, says, in the past decade, this is in the conclusion, in the past decade, the United States has had an epidemic of confrontations in which outbreaks of bitter racial violence have brought death and destruction and widened the gap between Negro and white. Inevitably, the rising tensions and mutual distrust have led to more violence and disruption. 
for the purposes of discussion, let us assume that racial relations have degenerated to the point where our militants embark on a massive violent attempt to immobilize the normal routine of a large city. The militants have occupied City Hall, taken over the mayor's office, and are shooting at police attempting to oust them. An extremely militant black nationalist group has seized the main radio stations and has been calling on all sympathizers to arm themselves and join the people's revolution. As soon as the violence starts, there are similar, though not necessarily pre-planned, outbreaks of violence in other cities across the entire nation. The level of violence has quickly exceeded the control capacity of various state and local agencies. Federal troops have been requested and are already committed. Fierce fighting is taking place in several major cities, and intelligence reports indicate the disorder is likely to spread still further. A large number of United States uh, troops are still committed overseas and cannot be readily recalled to the United States. To further complicate the problem, white vigilante groups have surfaced and are taking independent counteractions against blacks without too much attempt to discriminate between militant and non-militant. The situation continues to deteriorate and the president is being bombarded with demands to declare a state of national emergency or insurrection and use all of his emergency powers to restore law and order and punish the violators. Some highly placed persons in the government are urging the president to declare martial law. A prominent southern senator has been assassinated and there, are, uh, there have been attempts on the lives of other governmental leaders. There are persistent rumors that self-exiled militant leaders have returned to the United States and are in active control of the dissidents. It is also <laughs> widely rumored that alien powers are providing arms and support to the militants. Not alien as in, well, who knows? Anyway, who knows? but uh, in such an environment, it is nearly impossible for the usual interracial contacts to continue. Blacks and whites who have worked side by side for years are now suspicious of each other. Many businesses and cities in not yet hit by violence are closing their doors in an attempt to forestall damage. More and more whites are murmuring we ought to lock up all the Negroes until we can sort out the troublemakers among them. It is difficult to tell what is truth, part truth, or wild rumor. Faced by mounting death and destruction as well as increasing demands that he do so, the president reluctantly declares a state of emergency and puts the entire country on a war basis. The previously murmured suggestion that all Negroes be locked up now swells to a roar. It is like 1941 again, except now it is the black peril rather than the yellow peril. In the extremely unlikely event that uh, the government were to order the evacuation and detention of all blacks from actual or potential trouble spots, how and by whom would the order be enforced? What are the yardsticks for collecting, evacuating, and interning either militant or pacifistic minority groups, or dissident, potentially disloyal elements, or law-abiding citizens whose only offense is accident of color? Where would the internees be kept? The federal prison population has already swollen beyond capacity, and the state prison system are no better prepared to receive a large increase in population. What would be done with the blacks and the armed forces and in civil service and in Congress? The task would be far too large for the Justice Department. It would have to be greatly augmented by military forces, primarily from the United States Army. The World War II evacuation and detention of Japanese Americans from the West Coast was marked by a complete lack of any form of resistance. Yet it took 223 days and $80 million to evacuate 109,650 internees from the West Coast to 10 relocation camps in the interior. It cost nearly $11 million to build 15 assembly centers for preliminary processing and almost $57 million to build the 10 permanent camps. The program required 7,000 employees from seven departments, five agencies, as well as purposely created War Relocation Authority, which operated 43 control stations and 48 administrative offices. The task was facilitated by the fact that prior to relocation, most of the Japanese Americans were living in two states. Blah, blah, blah. So he goes on. He just says it would take more than 14 years to process the 21 million American Negroes. Uh, and is like, wow. you know, really going on at length talking about uh, has to be if more realistically, 
The evacuation order was limited to militants, and if one accepts as valid the minimum estimate of their own strength made by the militant groups, the figure drops to about 50, uh, sorry, 500,000 people, none of whom was likely to go peacefully to an internment camp. Without commenting on the social and moral impact on the country, the administrative and logistical implications are staggering. So then he goes on through these implications, and he actually even has, like, diagrams of the camps that, like, theoretically, like would be necessary to in turn like all black people yeah he talks about some issues of like civil disobedience by black soldiers you know and and things like that uh you know ultimately his recommendation is that like rather than get to that point we need to like you know try to achieve fair and equal treatment of the races etc but you know he does have that long passage that long passage about like kind of a yeah, yeah, exactly. A changing um, image is a man thing of like, it would be so regrettable if we had to resort to the yeah, totalitarian but control of everybody. Yeah, but. and here's how long it would take. Yeah, so I understand why that would suss people out that someone uh, who wrote that material eventually uh, came to be in charge of FEMA. And uh, actually, he was, he was, uh, he developed personally after Ronald Reagan. He actually got in with Reagan earlier. He was in the army until 1971. Then he left and organized the California Specialized Training Institute for then California Governor Reagan. The institute trained state employees in emergency management and police and counterterrorism activities. And it was during that time he became friends with Edwin Meese, who went on to be the attorney general. And he served as the advisor on terrorism, emergency management, and other special topics for, Ron- for Governor Reagan. He eventually, I guess, uh, yeah, was promoted to general in the California militia. And then... He was nominated to be the FEMA director, and he developed much of FEMA's civil defense programs in the early 80s, including all of the ones that had to do with continuity of government. So basically, he was like a chief author of Rex 84. And actually, what's very interesting, he got involved in kind of like a budget mismanagement, embezzling kind of scandal in 1985, and he was forced out. And who do you think he went to work for after he left FEMA? He went Uh, to work for Lyndon LaRouche as a security consultant. Wow. (laughs) That's amazing. I didn't know <laughs> amazing. that. Amazing. Yeah, that came out in LaRouche's uh, like tax fraud trial uh, in the Washington Post here. Wow. It said, Louis Jafrida, a former director of FEMA, testified that he was hired as a security consultant by LaRouche's group. The defense contends that expenditures for LaRouche's security were necessary because of threats against him. So I guess they were trying to prosecute him on like spending money on unnecessary things and stuff like that. And <laughs> wow. Okay. So... Yeah, uh, what the fuck, you know? So I think maybe we should be a little sussed out about that, but maybe not that they're going to throw all the patriots uh, in a FEMA camp tomorrow. You know, I think Rex 84 also talked about how it's funny that he mentioned, like, militia groups in his thesis, because I think uh, one of the really chilling aspects of Rex 84, I think I heard Dave Emery talk about it once, was that it proposed deputizing, like, patriot militia-type groups as, like, federal law enforcers. Great, great. So that's how that's how they would get the people to round up everybody and enforce law and order in like a martial law situation because they couldn't have the military here right away. And and, you know they those people I think are a little bit ideologically, yeah, you know, uh, down with that. Completely demented. I awesome. I can I can only imagine like when we you know we're we found out about that like it was classified originally. But we eventually learned about it. Just imagine, like, the stuff that we're going to learn about down the line. 
mm-hmm. you know, like that the government has right now. Yeah. 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 And I, I think a general rule is that they, you know, if they do finally admit something, that means that they can afford There's something to worse. Admit it. Yeah, exactly. That's no yeah, longer. Yeah. Exactly. It's no longer. It's not relevant valid. anymore. Thanks. Like it yeah, would have been in 1984. Like more reporting on Rex 84 might have had, uh, you know, it's also the idea of like maybe they were more serious about directly invading Central America, which would have been like a psychotic move that would have caused a lot of controversy in the world. And the fact that they were considering like if there was like a revolt, I don't even know if there would have been, but there was a huge uprising of the domestic U.S. population against doing that, then oh, might just have to round up everybody. Very weird. Um, and yeah, sketchy, I so, mean, yeah. I remember uh, Wesley Clark saying, like, I think after nine eleven, you know, that if these, you know, if these Muslims don't believe in America or whatever, we gotta round them up. You know, things like that. Of course, that's <laughs> never what Alex Jones has ever been concerned about. It's always been, you know, patriots. You know, patriots. Uh, yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. Anybody with a Mulan Labe bumper Trump, sticker on their Trump's car. Trump's dead, uh, man, folks. He's dead. He's dead, man. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. yeah sorry, yeah. that okay, wasn't. So. Uh, yeah, the rendition of that wasn't emotional enough. You know, he obviously would no, be very no. upset. You know. Yeah. 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 Um, when he, whenever he comes to grips with the fact that Trump is a dead man walking. Um, mm-hmm, exactly. Yeah. Election year. Once again, black people are running. For their lives. Reasons are things like the King Alpha plan, the concentration camps that were used during the Second World War to house Oriental Americans are now being refurbished to uh, confine their new residents, i.e. black people. Brothers and sisters, there is a place for you in America. This is the King Alfred plan. Knowledge is self-elevation. Without it, we all might be disintegrated. The science of breath ventilating. Unplug from your TV. Stop your mind's penetration. I thought the news was all directions. 360 degrees, but please see segment. But all I see is 33. My people getting done down, gunned down. What now? Looking weak. Economics, the language that the Europeans speak. Stop buying Jordans and weaves every week. Govern your own community, fuck the police. Listen and say our rights are civil, but civil to no privilege. This is genocide, a violation of human rights. But according to Dred Scott, black folks ain't got no rights by any means necessary. Thought so necessary, King Alpha plan, very scary. If you asking why not the fortune, they sell they been determined camps to house you. Original American, copper tone, the word African American, dead wrong. We at home, did you know? Are you awake? Rising from a shallow grave is your fate. Nationality is the order of the day. I don't think you hear me when I say nationality is the order of the day. Should there at any time become a clear present danger initiated by any radical element threatening the operation of the government of the United States of America, members of this radical element shall be transported to detention centers until such time as their threat has been eliminated. Code King Alfred. Revolution like Che Guevara. Corporations create terror, they even Babylon turn to shit. So this paradigm shift, universal length finger with swiffer than a Bruce Lee kick. As I look from my third eye, it's funny how time flies. Every year I see a shorter distance of these crackers, demise. And the rise of the empire arrives, just watch. And this ain't televised on Fox. Give it about 10 years at 7 o'clock. Like Times Square, watch the Dow drop. Slavery in Libya, a 
I'll make your heart stop so cold. Destroy a country strip, Gaddafi of his gold. Tactics of the age old, paint a picture of destruction. But the real deception, ever seen inception? That's their projection affecting your subconscious mind. We cry, we fawn. We the same complexion as the earth, we domestic, the universe reflection. Check it, the temple with Solomon is the womb. You're out here disrespecting the womb, man. So shown flood in the earth is your doom. The divine feminine ain't nothing higher than number is prime. And y'all don't understand, y'all in la la land and quicksand. With no counter moves to the king out for plan. Warren number 16. Yeah, we are. Any thoughts on the OG German Anabaptists, uh, the Munster Rebellion, etc.? Some pretty kooky shit going on in that era. I don't have who asked that, but uh, sorry. Maybe I can I can discover mid-question. But, I mean, honestly, like, I'm not, like, an expert on, like, the Reformation or Anabaptism. It's funny, you know, this is my, like, uh, like third mention of, like, Twitter, like, Catholics, but I've noticed that recently they've been uh, throwing around the term, like, neo-Anabaptists at, uh, you know, the really trad ones have been throwing around the term uh, neo-Anabaptists mm-hmm. at people who they're mad at for uh, whatever reason. But, uh, yeah, I mean, I definitely would think, uh, be interested to do uh, an episode about like you know uh, some topic around the Reformation. Well, I think we had talked about doing like the Cathars before, which isn't really directly related it's to earlier, that. But we had, yeah, but mm-hmm. it's a similar thing. I guess the Munster Rebellion. Yeah, I don't know too much about it. I guess it was an attempt by radical Anabaptists to establish a communal sectarian government in the German city of Munster, mm-hmm. and um, yeah, it it held out for about a year. And then was yeah. I uh, guess the Cathars crushed. were gone by like the 15th century, right? Like, mm-hmm. yeah, I'm pretty they were, sure. they yeah, were wiped yeah. out. Uh, yeah, even earlier than that, they were wiped out. Yeah, again, mm-hmm. European yeah. history, you know. But I'm also as a you know having been raised a papist, um, I, I don't know like too much about the lore of particularly German. Protestantism, and I mean, I know about Martin Luther and things like that, but the the internecine battles and stuff like that, don't know as much uh, about it. Yeah, yeah. it's interesting. It's inter- yeah. the Munster Rebellion is an interesting topic. Didn't we bring up the the novel, the Italian novel Q from the '90s in one of our Q episodes? Uh, maybe you did. I don't recall it myself, but maybe in uh, the very first one, because uh, it was like a collective of Italian authors uh, that wrote right. under Luther and, Blissett. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so that's actually about a ra- the, the book is about a radical Anabaptist mm-hmm. who like goes around like joining various movements and uprisings that come as a result of the Protestant Reformation. And he is, uh, over the 30 years, his character is pursued by Q, a spy for the Roman Catholic Church Cardinal Giovanni Pietro Carafa. Um, And the main character changes his name many times throughout the story. First fights in the German Peasants' War besides Thomas Munzer, battles in Munster's siege during the Munster Rebellion, and some years later in Venice. Interesting. So I guess, I don't know, there's a lot of, like, I guess, allegories or something that are supposed to be... You know, political interpretations. Yeah, of the novel it'd be interesting. Q. That interesting take on uh, the Reformation. It would be interesting maybe to read that novel because I have it myself. Uh, there's even a sequel called Altai: A Return to Q. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah. yeah. Oh, you know, I think it was actually mentioned in the Q documentary. Maybe. Uh, 
by what? somebody. Somebody brought it up as like, oh, did you know there was this novel called Q from the 90s that blah, blah, blah was from Italy? I forget exactly right. what Well, there was like. like a suggestion that like it was a collective of left intellectuals who like were Q and that because oh, people yeah, have yeah. suspected that they were behind it as like a joke or something. Mm, um, okay, okay. Yeah. Yeah, the, the collective now calls themselves Wu Ming, which is Chinese for anonymous. Hmm. 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 Interesting. Um, yeah, I, I, they do seem to be more associated with, like, left wing, but also, like, the fact they're calling themselves Wu Ming, it's meant as a tribute to dissidents. Hmm. hmm. Okay, just like WikiLeaks, like, got started off, like, doing, like, Hong Kong protests and, like, hacking the Chinese and stuff. Uh, not exactly... Not exactly my cup of tea, but you know, not not mm. exactly leftist praxis. Yeah, I don't know. Hmm. This is exactly what I was talking about before, where I find myself, you know, as a Muslim, I find myself kind of in between, like my general uh, aversion to the cats and the prots. I kind of don't have a horse in the race. So I'm kind of trying to pick sides, you know, because obviously this is like a good sort of stalking horse for. A Catholic to be like, well, you know, the Reformation was very violent and uh, very barbaric, but that fact alone makes me think maybe the Anabaptists weren't so bad, you know. I, I'm, uh, I'm open to it. I'm open to it. I'm, yeah, not I sure, I'm not sure exactly what they were selling, but you know, I I don't immediately uh, you know write anybody off for having like an armed insurrection mm-hmm. to try uh, to you know uh, maybe it was worse, but maybe it could have been better. I don't know. Here's an article about the Munster Rebellion. The gruesome story of a radical ISIS-like movement that once ruled Munster. While many people might know of Munster as a wealthy uni town or the country's bike capital, few know that it belongs to a strange violent period in history when radicals tried to set up a theocracy. And iron cages which still hang from a church in the center of town are a reminder of this. The North Rhine, Westphalian city up, Westphalia, near Westphalia, of Munster Mm. in western Germany stands out in world history due to a particularly dark period in its past. In the 1950s, a brutal rebellion took place when radicals led by a man from the Netherlands attempted to set up a sectarian state. If you're wondering who exactly these people were, they were Anabaptists, otherwise known as rebaptizers, the spiritual ancestors of modern-day Baptists, Quakers, Mennonites, Hutterites, and the Amish. During the 1960s, Anabaptists were members of a sect that developed once the Catholic Church was splintered by the Protestant Reformation. They believed that one could only enter the kingdom of heaven by willingly being baptized as an adult. In 1533, against the backdrop of unrest in Europe from the Reformation, an Anabaptist man named Jan from the Dutch city of Leiden arrived in Munster to create a new kingdom of for God. Under the belief that he was chosen by the all-powerful to bring a new age of peace to the continent, Jan of Leiden set off for the West German town as he had heard it was friendly to Anabaptists. For years, he had been persecuted and chased out of various villages and towns, but Munster was to be, a to- was to be tolerant in terms of religion. John had heard that forward-thinking ideas like his own, such as pacifism and separation of church and state, were acceptable. It didn't take long for the Dutchman to find out his predictions were correct. Just a few months after he got there, along with several Anabaptist mates, Jan took control of the city, though in a rather frenzied way. Half-clothed and with religious zeal, the rebaptizers ran around the streets singing about the honor that awaited God's chosen ones, promising peace and prosperity. They kicked out the city council and filled it with believers. It didn't take long for Jan to turn the tolerant city he had arrived in into something very different. 
Adults who refused to be baptized were driven out in large numbers, while Anabaptists from surrounding villages flowed in to replace them. Anabaptists began calling Munster New Jerusalem, and uh, he, Jan of Leiden declared himself king uh, after a city council gave him full control of the city. The Catholic Church came in. Franz von Waldeck was the town's bishop. Uh, in an effort to reestablish the Catholic Church, which had long vied with the city council for control of Munster, the bishop took his troop and foreign mercenaries and surrounded the city. By setting up huge barricades, they began a siege. As a warning to those within the city walls, von Waldeck mutilated anyone who tried to break through the blockade. Oh my god. <laughs> all right. So it seems like they're uh, f not fine people on all sides. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Hard to root for a faction. Yeah. Um, uh, one, uh, one interesting, uh, funny little thing I saw here is that uh, Kropotkin actually traced the birth of anarchist thought in Europe to these early Anabaptist communities. Cool. Yes. <laughs> cool. Great. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Epic. Okay. Just when you thought yeah. it couldn't get any more gruesome, the three jailed Anabaptists were brutally killed by stab wounds to the heart. Before their lives could come to an end, executioners ripped flesh from their bodies with fiery tongs in front of crowds of spectators. I feel like it's a little bit unfair to the Anabaptists to call them ISIS-like in the headline <laughs> when true, their true. opponents were equally ISIS-like. Uh, yeah. You know? So the mutilated bodies were placed into iron cages and hoisted from the tower of Munster's St. Lambert Church, where they remained for 50 years. Some say it's a warning for people in another place in society. So 500 years later, they still hang for all to see today. Some locals question whether they're necessary. What, what, the, 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 what, the cages that they were- Yeah, the cages. There's not like the decaying skeletons of the Anabaptists yeah. in there, but <laughs> the cages wow. are still there. Yeah. Wow, wow, okay, cool. all right. Yeah, Talk about nice. staying vigilant. I mean, but even the Protestants, most, most Protestants also persecuted Anabaptists because they were seen to be too radical and a danger to religious stability. Well, yeah, apparently, yeah, but the, they in, were. You know, <laughs> and like Calvinists um, actually were recognized in the Peace of Westphalia in 1648, but Anabaptists were not, so they continued right. to be persecuted by everybody. Yeah, everyone. The one thing Protestants and Catholics could agree on: yeah. Anabaptists too far. Hmm. Yeah. Wow, well, that really yeah. gives a quite a. a flavor to the the neo-anabaptist slur uh being curled around but <laughs> it certainly uh, does yeah, yeah whoa it's quite, they're quite not a charged around. uh yeah it's yeah especially from these people who like want to go back to like the 16th century church yeah i guess i know what they want to do to their uh uh to the neo-anabaptists but i guess yeah so. well, uh, i mean well, this is well, an we'll aspirational keep... story though for uh those of us who want to establish a submission like uh <laughs> sharia state in a western country you know all you need is a few dedicated open-minded people and you can take control of the city hall uh yeah 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 find a that... liberal college town yeah exactly yeah let's take it over you go to munster um, now and have make it happen again yeah, oh anyway. yeah probably yeah, yeah. probably yeah be, the next munster rebellion will be the islamic muster rebellion uh, uh -huh. yeah, yeah anyway okay well we'll, we'll keep an eye on them the in the future and this time I, I feel, yeah there won't I, be anyone to fight back because merkel will just roll over uh you know she's weak mm -hmm. yeah anyway, um she will yeah. submit um yeah, yeah she will, so, she will anyways, su submit or whatever yeah anyway <laughs> Um, okay, so okay. Uh, yeah, we'll, we'll keep an eye out for these these Anabaptists <laughs> yeah, later on. Yeah, we we'll, do we'll further dives. Keep an eye out. Um, yeah, they're okay. around. They, they a lot of them came to America and shit, and so yeah, yeah the um, Southern Baptists. Kind of interesting. Yeah. Okay. Um, so well, let's do number seventeen from Jinji Double Zero. As a person with a physics background, one of the theories in quotes 
that really seems to be pushed by certain people, especially science bros, is the simulation theory hypothesis, or the idea that we can't prove that our life reality isn't a simulation, and I feel like it can be used towards very sus goals. What are your thoughts on this theory and the people behind it and pushing it? Yeah, I mean, on one hand, well, I guess a simulation definitionally is like a, a an imitation of something that exists. Uh, so there is like a real world out there with laws similar to our own, to the the laws that we experience in the, the quote unquote simulation that the simulation is based on, basically. So in that respect, I don't know. I mean, insofar as like there's some kind of extrinsic intelligence that is like uh, responsible for fabricating the laws that we operate by, then that is basically just what most religions that believe in God maintain. So -hmm. in that respect, I could sign on to that. Yeah, I think I had a tweet like a while ago. Someone had posted something that was like, if we find out that life is a simulation, what if they end the simulation? I just said, well, you know, God wants us to know it's a simulation. Just read the Quran. But, uh, (laughs) you know, like... I feel like maybe simulation implies that, you know, we're in a matrix and outside of the matrix, there's a world that obeys mostly the same laws. That's, uh, you know, greater ontological priority. That's more real. Whereas, I mean, you know, obviously there are orders of reality and the world that we experience this life, the dunya has, uh, less ontological priority than, you know, the, a higher reality, a reality of, you know, the, the reality Al-Haq, you know, so that mm-hmm. definitely is true. But people who are like, the world is a simulation and we're all in a computer or, you know, like the people who like phrase it in the terms of like simulation theory are like uniformly yeah. awful and definitely sus. Like the yeah, idea that, sus. you know, the world that we experience, like, you know, we are but strangers, like it is but a dream, you know, uh, and there's a higher mm-hmm. reality, like that is a basic religious principle and like skeptoids who are like oh, i believe in simulation theory but you know like that uh, it's kind of like that uh, fuck off i don't believe that nonsense type me- you know where they're like yeah the world is a beep boop computer but i don't believe that you know in any of this in this real religious crap you know that's that's stupid but yeah yeah you know. i think it's it's starting to make more sense to some people and of course people like elon musk constantly coy you know coyly suggesting that it is um yeah it's like one of those like memey religious beliefs that's like just so sci-fi and stupid like kind of like Rocco's basilisk with elon musk was also into like oh Mm -hmm. no spooky or like when people like believe that like they can like do rituals to the lovecraftian gods and that like makes them real or something and that's so cool Mm-hmm. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly. That's exactly. somehow cooler than like a normal religion. Uh, like, it's just so yeah. goofy. Actually, okay, so the, the most recent uh, example of somebody promoting the simulation theory that I can think of is yesterday I was listening to Problematic Fave, Brady Stanellis' podcast, because he had Sean Stone, the son of Oliver Stone, on. And I think we we had brought up Sean Stone, I think maybe in our latest Q episode, as somebody who mm-hmm. had sort oh, of right. gotten yeah. 
He was saying the world's pills. simulation. Yeah, right. Uh, yeah, and so he, he really, yeah, like in the kind of opening of their interview, he kind of just throws out casually that like, yeah, no, it's really starting to feel like we're maybe we've been in a simulation since 9-11, don't you think? <laughs> and just like every the way everything's happening. But then he was also referencing things like, like see how like woke culture. <laughs> I don't know. It's like, so you funny. Know, like, yeah, that proves I mean, it. That proves it. Only in a simulation could there be woke culture. Um, yeah, 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 very eclectic strange kind of assortment of like imagine thinking that you were in the matrix but you're still upset about like woke culture yes and upset that people were attacking trump when they they said they were against the system but they were attacking trump and trump's obviously against the system so what are you doing no one's more against the system (laughs) than the president yeah 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 just well because the people that hated him were so bad that he must be doing something right. That was like a direct quote. Like it was that kind of dude. Yeah, that like makes you, sense. You, you entertain the most far out shit. You've had a radio show forever. Your dad is Oliver Stone. Like you know everything is sus, but like you're gonna accept the frame that because like the Clintons and all the like the scummy liberal media people don't like Trump, that that must mean Trump is based. Yeah. That, like it's like like mm-hmm. by deduction, it's like oh he must be doing something based because they don't like it. It's like dude, um, okay, and you know, but I think he was even concealing because he didn't bring up QAnon in in that interview at all. He brought up a lot of crazy shit, but he mentioned several times. I mean, that he's that's sort like of, saying Klaus von Stauffenberg was awesome because he tried to kill Hitler, uh, even though he basically had the same ideas as Hitler. He just thought Hitler was like you know. Incompetent. Well, I mean, they made a whole movie about him <laughs> Not and a good how cool viewer. he was, starring yeah. Tom Cruise. So, uh, oh, they, yeah, they did I guess so. Make right. him cool at the end of the day. But yeah, that that was just a, the most recent example of somebody who was just kind of casually throwing out, but throwing out enough times that I feel like he's sitting around thinking about this stuff more. That we're stuck in some kind of simulation thing, and that is why nothing is moving forward. I, he actually uh, he had a kind of interesting part where he, they were talking about Hollywood. And he mentioned something on the lines of how, you know, there's been this kind of um, this kind of dead end in terms of or like we're stuck in this infinite loop in terms of like creativity and innovation in Hollywood. And yes, they've like they've added more CGI computers and like technology has improved. But basically, they're just recycling the same ideas. And of course, you could say ain't nothing new in the sun. Like they've always been doing that. But it it does feel like we've really reached like a kind of. um, like we've been stuck in this like ditch or like this just this roundabout that we can't exit of like recycling new stories in ways that are like not very original everything feels very cookie cutter now if you're reductive you could say it's because of the woke ideology but it's really just like (laughs) didactic like PSA dialogue that isn't realistic like even if it was like right-wing dialogue it would still suck as art and so it's like not really about it's not really about the thing of like hey we should try to make things that have themes that are more inclusive but like the way they're going about everything from like woke prestige stuff to superhero things is just like completely kind of creatively bankrupt and sean stone was like and you know what like think about it an ai they can't create new ideas (laughs) <laughs> you know, and so um, he was like implying he was implying that like basically Hollywood is being run by like an AI so, that is deciding yeah, like what is most profitable. So, not, so wait, are we all AI? Well, I don't know. He, or, he but was, only Hollywood is AI. 
Well, no, he was kind of speaking at first in general that like all of society is living under a simulation. Mm-hmm. But then he was also kind of saying, I, you could take it both ways. Uh, that either like Hollywood consults like a supercomputer that tells it what to make uh, uh, to like optimize like the most money, which I, I don't think is like literally I true. I mean, that's kind um, of true, but that doesn't have anything to do with us living in a simulation. That just well, exactly. That, that's so much bigger. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. I mean, it, that's yeah, still it, humans that's using still, a machine yeah, to like to, uh, indirectly yeah, manipulate like to, us. Yeah, exactly. Like to feed. Yeah. But he, I think, but I think he was also saying like, just like the episteme that we're in, like genuine creativity is impossible right now because we're living in a simulation created by a computer that sort of can't allow, like can't actually generate like anything new. So like it's we keeping don't have us in the, the same simulation cycle. coming in like that would cr- like provoke uh, individual thought, like because we can't be inspired by like the sunrise or whatever because the sunrise is like not real. Maybe. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> um, I don't know, really. Okay. But, uh, he's he's on that far out tip, but is basically kind of like, yeah, I like Trump. And he was, I mean, he did, he mentioned a bunch of things about, you know, U.S. imperialism and foreign policy and JFK and I mean, all these really, things. Again, like, like that is just like so, it's always odd to me when, this is again like a digression, but I was uh, recently, someone in the grotto, a good flying wren, recommended some Bigfoot uh, portal interviews to me about like some guy who had experienced the Bigfoot portal. And the guy himself isn't this person, but the person who he was visiting when I guess he had this Bigfoot portal experience was this dude, Matthew A. Johnson, who... Uh, basically has like kind of a the nine type setup where he's the ambassador for like 12 uh alien big feet or big bigfoots or sasquatches <laughs> okay. that you know are from another planet they're called Zinway, and the leader is called zorth and you know he channels zorth and he does kind of a bigfoot voice where he's like trump well when uh and things you know like uh and that's that's what zorth talks about too like he talks about trump like he you know like <laughs> He's like, Trump wins in the end. You know, like things like that. It's just like so ridiculous that like at that level where like you're corresponding with Bigfoot from an alien planet or like you've realized that we're living in like the Matrix, you're still concerned with like Trump winning. Like that's like right? the most like brain fried thing. That's going to change anything? Well, yeah, the the simulation, like the, you know, the the machine mainframe or whatever outside the Matrix in the in the fields of bodies uh, that are used as batteries could just like unplug Trump whenever they feel like it, or they could just delete Trump and replace him yeah. with an agent. Exactly. They could just invade him, like possess him. Yeah. You know? So mm-hmm. they must want him in the simulation if he's exactly. there. Like, yeah. How Trump is he? Could, he's not, be a he's program. not Morpheus. He could be like, yeah, exactly. Trump could be even the one, you know, as part of the system. Right. You know, so yeah, Trump's not Morpheus. He's a, uh, but even the one that turned out in the Matrix sequels to just be another system of control. So, you know, maybe he's just a sheepdog. You're right. Don't they have a perennial, like, revolution and a sacrifice Exactly. Of like, Messiah the system is fundamentally they... unstable, so they had to have the one. It's convoluted and stupid, but I kind of appreciate it a bit more in well, this conversation now. You know what? Uh, I, I think that actually that, that kind of takes us into our next question. I want to link these to number 18 from JS Okay, Cutters. all right, we can push ahead. I'm not 100% done the simulation theory tip, but in conclusion, like, yeah, this world is of lower ontological priority than, uh, like, God. So in that respect, like, there is sort of a layer of uh, imitation or ontological diffusion from the highest order of reality or from reality itself, which is a hawk. But... 
uh, doesn't mean that like we're beep booped in a computer or that Trump is Morpheus. Okay, now we can do question 18. <laughs> okay. Uh, all right. Yeah, all right. you want to read it? Well, oh, yeah, sorry. Jay Scudders asks, when will you defeat Joseph Campbell and the mythological industrial complex? Oh, um, well, there you go, because we're basically, uh, as the Matrix uh, so brilliantly, you know, reveals to us that we're just stuck in the flat circle of the Joseph Campbell monomyth, and we're all, that, that is a Matrix that we are trapped in. Uh, yeah, not the a totalizing whole idea, Matrix, but the whole an idea, I, mean, I, would, matrix. I wouldn't be interested actually to do like a whole episode about Joseph Campbell. I mean, the whole idea of a monomyth is like so like absurd and like even, you know, I was saying in the grotto recently, someone brought up like, you know, someone was like, well, you know, in the Changing Images of Man episode, you mentioned that Joseph Campbell isn't taken seriously, you know, by uh, scholarship on folklore or on cultural history and things like that. You know, what do people take seriously? It's, you know, I guess you wouldn't necessarily know, like, because he's such you know, I, I was taught Joseph Campbell stuff in my English class in mm-hmm. high school. So you wouldn't necessarily know that, like, he's t- not taken seriously and that even during his lifetime he was discarded. Another thing that is interesting about Joseph Campbell that people don't know is that, like, he's widely agreed, even by people who, like, kind of, like, knew him well, uh, is, like, he's widely agreed to have been, like, a raging anti-Semite who, I mean, he hated all religion, but he especially yeah. hated Judaism. Nazarene yes. scum. Yes, exactly. Coming he would have again. been on a wavelength with uh, Prince Ray about the, the Jewish Bob Dylan and the Jewish <laughs> Lenny Bruce getting us away from mystical oneness and, you know, whatever he believed in and the 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 mystical way of the, you know, the Vedanta or some new agey changing images of man mumbo jumbo that he loved yeah yeah, yeah. You but know, he had to, and then you know he had to find a good, he had to wait around and find like a good white protestant film director george lucas to you know bring his hollywood thing in the reality yeah exactly I he had like a thing you can, about that like y- yeah you can force almost everything to fit the monomyth like if you well you can't force almost everything but you can force a lot of things to fit it but you have to kind of torture it and you also have to like filter out a lot of stuff that doesn't fit. It's kind of like Aristotle's Poetics, where like Oedipus mm-hmm. Rex yeah. doesn't even quite fit, but most Greek tragedies don't fit. Like you know, it's based on Oedipus Rex. Oedipus Rex itself only arguably fits, and like other Greek tragedies, don't really. Yeah, you, yeah. You know? I remember reading that years ago and finding it kind of helpful, but at the same time, like not. I mean, it, it's like, interesting. That's, the thing about Aristotle's Poetics is that they will teach that to you, like in a like class about how to write or something like that you know and like they won't Mm -hmm. give you any context like how all the ideas that are in this are part of like the philosophical system of aristotle's like school and in dialogue with everything that plato talked about like the ideas like for instance like the reversal that you learn about like in dramatic writing like the word that aristotle uses like peripatia like you know a peripatetic philosopher like these concepts like are not like in a vacuum like you have to understand the context before you can actually understand like this and it goes to show exactly the point about Joseph Campbell, which is that, like, when you just take things completely, decontextualize them and, like, free-float them around, you can be like, oh, you know, this applies to, like, you know, this Marvel movie or whatever. But really it doesn't because, like, if you're not considering, like, its social function, it's completely denuded of everything that, like, matters about it or that uh, it really means. And it's being turned into something totally different. And you really can, like, in translation and an interpretation make huge transformations to the content and meaning of texts. But totally, anyway, totally. Um, but, you know, they, they, they ask, you know, when are we going to defeat Joseph Campbell and the mythological industrial complex? And I think implicit in that question 
is, you know, an acknowledgement that Joseph Campbell's model seemingly has become the model of kind of the mythological industrial complex, like in Hollywood, where so many movies, not, not, a, I don't think every movie, but I think any kind of big spectacular movie tends to hew to it. And I don't think it's because, I, I'm not saying it's because Joseph Campbell's monomyth was like correct and like he nailed it and that's why they use it and it works. But I think it, they wanted to make the Joseph Campbell monomyth a thing. They wanted yeah. to make it happen. And they did, they have made it happen. And it's the, it is the backbone of like the entire Star Wars franchise. And I think at this point, probably like most of the superhero franchises and kind of everything else. It's like a real cookie yeah. cutter. Yeah, well, it's even like, like more than that. Framework. Like now they do this, like they have like an even more regimented system than the monomyth, I think. Uh, True, yeah, like it's maybe, the multi-franchise thing. Well, yeah, well, maybe that's the thing that is at the baseline of it, like coming out of like the big sort of like B-movie intellectualization that was brought in in New Hollywood with Star Wars and things like that. But, uh, you know, I feel like now they have like a sort of save the cat type structure where it's like on page 10, like you have to have your, you know, being bitten by a radioactive spider. And then, like, <laughs> you know, on page 15, in a lot of like, ways, you have save to the cat is like a goblin, you know, and, yeah, save the, save the cat is like a bastardized, like yeah. fast and dirty and like dumber version of Joseph Campbell's stuff. Kind yeah. of. It still mm -hmm. hits kind of the same. Well, yeah, it's still like a narratological thing where it's like these are the principles of storytelling and you have to like, you know, and uh, stories follow these beats. Joseph Campbell, like, again, this is a, a situation where you can use in a different way. Like Joseph Campbell maybe saw his thing as being a analysis rather than like a rule book, even mm -hmm. though, you know, it was used as such by like George Lucas and others. He did say that they should use this to apply in, like, the creation of arts and not just art criticism. Yeah. Mm -hmm. All right. Yeah. Well, he said that art could be productive to changing societies. Yes, he did say that. He didn't say that necessarily about his monomyth that I know of. Maybe he did. But in Changing Image of Man, he did emphasize the importance of art in sort of creating uh, a new society. But uh, maybe he envisioned his monomyth as being a part of that. But uh, I don't know of any uh, quote where he, he said that. But he, he very well may have. But... Either way, like, you know, it's, uh, they have slightly different, like, functions where one is kind of like, you know, in the sort of wishy-washy sort of spiritual becoming into yourself as a man or whatever, uh, thing. And the other one is just like how to trigger all the diff right responses, uh, you know, in the reptile brainstem or whatever to make everyone like buy a Funko Pop. <laughs> um, maybe they really are deep down the same, uh, ultimately, where... Uh, part of me uh, feels like they are. Yeah. They, or they're at least inter... They've always been interrelated, just like in yeah. Changing Images of Man. Like, they're both getting into the highfalutin, like, oh, the Eastern wisdom, but also being like, ooh, we could just instrumentalize this shit to, like, sell people more hamburgers and... Yeah, and, like, know, you know, really, if you look at a lot of stuff, like, even if you look at the, the Iliad, you know, something like that, as I don't recall there being a trip to the underworld in the Iliad. I guess that's not a hero's journey, so it doesn't count, even though, like, it's a Greek epic poem, which you would think would be, like, the ultimate example. I mean, the epic of <laughs> yeah. Gilgamesh, you could apply it to probably, like, more or less, but not perfectly, you know, there's no... There's got to be, like, steps that, like, come in and out, you know, that you can plug in and out. Like, some are more important than others, and, like, you can shift them around a little bit. Like, it doesn't really quite work. And if you look at, like, other traditions that are, like, quote-unquote epic, again, even the category of epic is something that doesn't really hold up, like, 
cross-culturally, you know, uh, mm. it's a construct, but it's completely different, you know? I mean, the yeah. idea of a hero is something that you do see, I think, across cultures, but in, in very different ways. It's, it's hard to get away from the idea of a hero. People have experimented with doing that or having like a mass hero or a symbolic hero in some way or a mm-hmm. diffuse hero, but... Anyway, maybe I digress a little bit, but I would like to do an episode just like really going in hard on Joseph Campbell in particular. I would like to do a sus Star Wars episode as well. Um, oh, yeah. But I mean, Definitely. really, like, yeah, we stand very fiercely opposed to the Joseph Campbell mythological complex in general. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, yeah. In everything that we that we do, uh, you know, I find it like very hackneyed. And you really can see like, uh, I think that the Dark Crystal is based on, like, the, I've used this as an example to, like, explain, like, the kind of, like, anti-Semitic Gnostic undercurrent in a lot of, like, 70s mythis- mysticism before. It's a Jim Henson movie. Have you seen Dark Crystal? You probably have. No, no, I haven't. Uh, well, it's, like, a Muppet movie, but it's, like, a serious Lord of the Rings-type Muppet movie where there's, like, wow. the main characters are, like, these uh, kind of hobbits called, like, Gelflings, but, you know, they're these sort of wise, sort of, like you know, very spiritual, but very lazy and aloof creatures called the mystics that are kind of like, you know, the teachers and mentors. And it's all very 70s mysticism. And I think that actually was inspired by something we mentioned in our episodes about in our episode about changing images of man and probably mentioned before, which is the Seth material, uh, which was a popular channel text in the, in the 70s. Uh, mm-hmm. I think it was inspired by some of the ideas in that. But anyway, so there are these wise mystics and, uh, you know, there, but there's also these bad guys who are called the Skeksis. And they talk like that. They're like, we are Skeksis. Mm-hmm. And like, they have these big beaks. They're like these evil, scary birds. And like, they're obsessed with like wealth and material things. And they like drink the blood of the Hobbit type characters, the Gelflings. And like, basically, if you look at a Skeksis, like, it's the most anti-Semitic puppet like you can possibly imagine like it really is like uh, yeah if you look up a Skeksis like you'll you'll see what I mean like there uh, it looks like in fact I think that there was like a Dark Crystal reboot on Netflix and like 4chan really seized upon it and was like really excited like Paul did because they saw like the resonances of, of wow. this but you know it actually is a thing like in mysticism like in Gnosticism for instance where like you know, Yaldabaoth is like the god of the Old Testament. You know, he's cruel and barbaric and materialistic and he's of this world. And the mm. mystics are, you know, they're like aloof, they're separate, they're spiritual, you know, it's a, a docetism thing, which I, you know, I, I kind of partial to Jesus docetism. But anyway, like, but in the end of the movie, what you realize is that the Skeksis and the mystics actually come from like one planet where they used to be like one entity fused together, but they somehow got separate. So you had to have the mystical synthesis of, like, the material and the mystic spirit, you know, like, you had to have the Old Testament and the New Testament, where, like, the Jews, the vile Jews are redeemed by, you know, or the the materialistic world is redeemed by the the lofty mystic spirit, but, Mm. you know. Yeah, I'm looking at the, I'm looking at the picture of the Skeksis right now. Yeah, I see what you're saying. (laughs) (laughs) They're, like, hunchback bird monsters that drink blood. They're reptoids, basically. Uh, but yeah, yeah. so the birds they probably hatch out of eggs. Yeah, so I feel like that is a tension and like a lot of and Joseph Campbell was super into that. I'm not sure if he ever if he was explicitly himself down with the Seth material, but people who were influenced by him, like uh, you know the guy who wrote Changing Images of Man, definitely were. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think yeah, full episode coming down the pike one of these days. Yeah, we're we're gonna get him, folks. Okay, number nineteen. From Easy, we can move on to that. Yeah, I'll read that. I'm 
Oh, you, okay, I'm, okay, go ahead. Or maybe, yeah, yeah. I don't remember or no, what was order we were return? in. I don't know, yeah. yeah. I'm um, curious about the host's thoughts on the mysterious Mr. Wallace Farid Muhammad and his disappearance and Afrocentric Islam, the whole NOI, 5% nation current, more broadly. We actually did an episode, which you wouldn't think touched, like, super deeply on this. It's our episode about Busta Rhymes. Uh, yeah. But we actually did talk uh, very deeply about this, you know. I personally subscribe, I mean, again, it's not certain, but I kind of am partial to the idea that Wallace Fard Muhammad was a Pakistani. Uh, you hear a lot of different theories about uh, his ethnicity, but that's the one yeah. that I'm, I'm most partial to. And I like it also. It appeals to me because uh, often from South Asian and Arab Muslims, you hear a lot of negativity about like black American Islam. You know, they're upset because of the sort of non-orthodox aspects of the NOI. And like, you know, Elijah Muhammad like wasn't a super good guy, as I think Malcolm X discovered. And there are like weird cultic aspects of both that and the 5% nation. But mm. I'm... You know, uh, I cut it some slack because for those Mus the Muslim communities that I mentioned, you know, the the bot the Ummah wasn't super interested in doing outreach to Black Americans uh, or you know the African descendants of slaves, uh, getting them in touch with you know their roots uh, in Islam, mm -hmm. you know, or the you know because a lot of uh, the slaves who were brought to America were Muslim originally, and it was yeah. something, it was a story that was resonant with a lot of people, but those, that wasn't really picked up on, except by people who were, you know, people like Wallace Fard Muhammad, who is definitely like a sus figure, who just dropped on the face of the earth after being like weirdly <laughs> implicated in like a possible human sacrifice. Oh, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And yeah, there's sus stuff all around that, but again, like, no one else really picked up the gauntlet of, you know, doing dawah to Americans in general or uh, black Americans or uh, people outside their community or like in the United States. So it was taken up by people who were like weirdos and people like now people are upset that there's like, you know, a lot of black Ahmadis, you know, which uh, Pakistanis, uh, well, you know, Sunni Pakistanis obviously don't like. I'm like a pretty normal Sunni, like in terms of my practice. So like I get the theological grievances, but at the same time, I cut a little bit slack. And I think that, as I said in the Buster Rhymes episode, I think that if Malcolm X weren't conveniently blasted, you would have seen, like, you know, a big movement uh, that would have been more in touch with the, I think, you know, this is just what I personally feel. I think that it's it's likely, I think that it's, mm -hmm. this, this concern may have factored into said blasting occurring. You would have seen, like, a movement uh, towards Islam in America among the black community that was more uh, in touch with Islam in other places in the world. So, For sure, uh, yeah. But, you know, it kind of ended up splintering where you had, as we talked about in the episode, you had Warth Dean Muhammad kind of trying to bring things more in line with Sunni orthodoxy, but then you had Farrakhan going, like, you know, going more into the, the route of sort of black affirmation, which people obviously responded to, but also like just being kind of a, a shyster and like shilling Dianetics and stuff and UFOs. That's right. So yeah, yeah. You couldn't um, really reconcile Like, you know, it would have been nice to reconcile <laughs> those two currents where you could have like sort of the community uplift aspect of the nation that people really like. And but also like, you know, have a theology that isn't like a grift uh where you're like trying to audit people or whatever you know? <laughs> yeah yeah um, yeah yeah definitely yeah I, i'd say definitely listen to the uh the busta rhymes episode yeah. the extinction level event uh 201 
episode where we, we, we did some dives into, yeah, Wallace Fard Muhammad and uh, the 5% Nation and Louis Farrakhan as well. Yeah. And um, I'm yeah, by no means about an expert. So. The Buster Rhymes episode <laughs> like largely covers this because Buster Rhymes, you know, has made some references and he has some attachment to the, the 5%. So. Uh, exactly. Yeah, I would recommend that episode. Yeah. 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 Um, okay. All right. We can, um, yeah. Let's move on to our final question. All right. Mm-hmm. Four hours. We finally made it. Okay. So last question from It's Drew time. For the next Q and A, what are your thoughts on the red scarf killings? And more specifically, have you seen the pictures of Andy Spade wearing a mask in his first appearance after Kate Spade's suicide? That mask is from an old Disney movie about abduction, The Rescuers. That era of celeb suicide seemed to have been memory hold. Hmm. Do you know what the Red Scarf killings are? I have never heard them as the Red Scarf killings. I don't know of any other death involving a Red Scarf, but Kate Spade did hang herself with a Red Scarf. She did. I remember that being a very sus uh, death, basically. Yeah. Um, Why? I don't, I'm, I'm Googling it. I don't see any reference. I assume to... that there is an idea that more than one person died in that way, but I don't. I didn't ever hear anything about that. I do tend to keep my ears to the ground in terms of that stuff but i didn't hear anything about it uh i did i do remember that like anthony bourdain dying around the same time and i have yep. heard like QAnon stuff like anthony bourdain knew you know he was friends with seth rich or whatever i don't know like but, <laughs> he was gonna yeah. blow the whistle on the clintons yeah exactly yeah Something like or uh, Ossie like, argento sacrificed him to satan which uh i mean honestly <laughs> uh she's dark she's dark but uh, yeah, I do. Um, and then I think maybe it w- wasn't it like Chris Cornell and Chester Bennington then died in quick succession after that. And that spun off a whole series of crazy conspiracies about how John Podesta was Chester Bennington's biological father. And like he had like put out a hit on his own illegitimate son and something. And that like Chester Bennington and Chris Cornell were actually involved in like anti-child trafficking networks because they both had been abused as kids and they were about to like blow the whistle on all these big sickos and and Chester Bennington was going to expose his real father and for the sicko that he is. Like, there was just a lot, like, in this one summer. And then Anthony Bourdain dies, and they the fact that Bourdain, I think all all four of those people died of hanging, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And now, and now we can throw Epstein into the mix as well, and John McAfee, uh, for that matter. Um, but I do remember the Kate Spade thing, being sketchy and kind of dark and weird. And I do remember like her husband, Andy Spade, who's actually the brother of David Spade, Mm. which always just kind of throws me. Like, it doesn't seem like those worlds would be, you know what I mean? Like, I guess though, it's all New York, it's all media, it's all fashion, right? I mean, it is weird. They had that like a mask from the movie, the rescuers, like on one hand, I like, you know, maybe he was just putting it on like for privacy, although I feel like that would not ultimately lead to privacy. Like, yeah, they wouldn't see your face, but I'm looking at like, it right now. It's really creepy. It's really creepy. It's like a mouse mask. It's like a puckish mouse mask that he. Well, yeah, wore I mean, that character in New York is. From, have you ever seen that movie? I, well, I don't think I ever yeah, saw the actual original movie. Yeah. When I was little, I definitely had on VHS the rescuers down under which was the one set in Australia, the sequel. Yeah, I remember that mouse from the movie. But uh, yeah, I mean, this it, is actually, it's this an is old actually movie. Sus. Like, it's weird to have like a plastic mask from that movie around like in 20, you know, whatever. Like, in this, in, yeah, there, in, there's in the weird shit going on yeah. with this. Uh, it, it basically, it, it was developed in 1962, but was shelved due to Walt Disney's dislike of the project's political overtones. 
You know, it's basically about it's about oh, yeah, the rescue it's a, a Russian mouse and the right. And I mean, maybe it was working but, together. Is that the issue? Well, you, you, the, here's the thing. Here's what's interesting. It's about the Rescue Aid Society, an international mouse organization headquartered in New York City and shadowing the United Nations, dedicated to helping abduction victims around the world at large. So it's like. It's like some weird, like, Save the Children NGO or something, <laughs> like, but yeah. with mice. Well, I remember, like, one mouse is, like, an American mouse, and the other one's, like, a Russian mouse. I guess she's a Hungarian mouse. Oh, yeah, she's Hungarian. So she's a communist Hungarian, so Walt Disney was not about Maybe, that yeah. at all. Um, wow, I'm interesting. Looking, uh, this is interesting. The film began development with the initial treatment uh, developed from the first book centering on a poet held captive by a totalitarian government in a Siberia-like stronghold. However, uh, sorry, totalitarian government. However, as the story grew overly involved with international intrigue, Walt Disney shelved the project as he was unhappy with the political overtone. So was he unhappy because it was like anti-communist or was he unhappy because it was uh, (laughs) anti-totalitarian? Good question. I'm not really sure. I feel like he wouldn't have had a problem with it being anti-communist. I don't know. No, Um, he would not have. Yeah. The highest grossing film in West Germany at the time. Oh, wow. Okay. Hmm. I guess they, they smoothed out those political problems, I guess, in the, you know, decade and a half before they actually released it. That I guess it still has a Hungarian representative on it. Yeah. I don't know what to think about that. But Andy Spade, yeah, Andy Spade also made a kind of, like, weird video that I think it was called something like Where's Kate? And it was released sometime in the period before she died and it's like a camera following around like a woman who's like i think supposed to be kate spade yeah it's the kate spade's last ad campaign for francis valentine was called where is kate and i remember watching it i don't know if there's like a a video version up on it anymore but it's uh, she's fleeing from a detective, which was played by her husband. He also wrote and served as executive producer for the campaign. In the final scene of the video, the actress playing Spade is nowhere to be found as the detective, Andy, chases a Francis Valentine bag rolling toward the ocean. The goal of the campaign was to highlight the fact that Spade, the woman behind the Kate Spade brand that was ultimately sold to Coach Under Tapestry last year, was now leading Francis Valentine. But it has a very creepy vibe, obviously, because it's like, where is Kate? I think like that that it's in like he's chasing around like Kate Spade, and then like he runs in the ocean chasing a bag. Mm-hmm. I don't know. It, it's, a lot of people obviously jumped on that. It's like, oh my god, like right. he, like this is like some kind of ritual predictive programming thing no. where he's ta- he's rubbing it in our faces, uh, basically right. that he, you know, I mean, there's another interesting like parallel to the Anthony Bourdain death is that they both had a partner that everybody really jumped on as like you're sus. And honestly, like both of them did things that seemed sus, like that it didn't help their case in terms of, Hey, I'm just like the grieving, you know, partner of somebody who committed suicide. Like, I think, you know, it was, I think Asia Argento was running around making out with like some French guy in the tabloids in a way of like, she wanted it to be like published kind of thing, Mm -hmm. like right before he died. And of course she has like satanic tattoos all over her. And it's just like, I'm a devil, like, you know, uh, Dario Argento's daughter. Wait, she has what she has? She has, like, satanic-ass, like, tattoos all over her. Yeah, like, like, you know, Mm -hmm. spooky occult kind of shit. Like, she's definitely, you know, she's, and that's, like, not hidden. I mean, that's kind of her vibe and and stuff. Right. 
And Andy Spade, like a little more buttoned up, but still has like this, you know, made this like kind of weird movie, which could be a coincidence. But then wearing like the rescuer's mask the first time out it's is like such a weird like mask, joke like, to make after your wife has just like died. It's just Yeah, and it also bizarre. wouldn't seem to, I mean, maybe you're not thinking straight, but it wouldn't seem to, you know, protect your privacy. Um, no, everyone knew who he was. They were outside of his house. I mean, yeah. it's weird that Anthony Bourdain was going out with... Asiel Argento seems much younger than Anthony Bourdain. I mean, she's like maybe 10 years younger, but I think she's like in her 40s. Right, maybe not. I guess she's yeah. 20 years younger than him. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's not, not right. that right. weird. That's, um, that's acceptable in the in the age gap discourse. You know, I'm not trying to get Amy mad at me for, but I don't know. <laughs> mm. Yeah, I guess, you know, uh, uh, Andy Spade yelled at the reporters outside of his house. Do you know the meaning of privacy? He snapped as he climbed into his SUV. Okay. Uh, paparazzi uh, definitely don't know the meaning of privacy. And also, no. like, wearing a sus mouse mask will not going to make you more private. Even if they can't see your face, like, it's going to be a bigger deal that you were wearing a sus mouse mask. So that was a miscalculation. Yeah, there's still a ton of stories, uh, basically, about um, him wearing a weird, yeah. uh, a weird mouse mask. So, you know, it, it didn't quite dispel, unless he wanted people to notice it for some reason, which I don't know why. Oh in August 2019, Page Six reported that Andy and B had moved to a new home in Oakland, California. In a touching Instagram post, Andy shared a photo of a Christmas tree he and B had planted outside their new Bay Area home. Dear Katie, this tree is for you, he wrote in the caption. B and I are planting it outside our big window to keep your magical spirit and energy close to us every day. It will bless our new home in California and radiate your essence 365 days a year. Why does he want to trap her spirit inside a tree? No, uh, but, you know, <laughs> sounds... Uh, I don't know. I don't um, know. Yeah. Yeah, we can't say, but Seems like he wants to imprison a, her spirit inside a tree. I don't know, but... Yeah, there uh, was a spooky season of celebrity suicides. That was, like, five yeah, people in, like, a summer. I don't summer. know. I mean, I could believe that she committed suicide. I mean, I don't know. The idea is, like, what she... What is the... I really don't know what the red scarf killing conspiracy theory is, but is it that she was killed by the Clinton crime family? Oh, I mean, I'm sure some people said that, but it's just more that she was killed in general by somebody. Okay. She was murdered, like mm -hmm. assassinated and made it to, you know, people over associate the idea of being suicided with like the Clinton crime family as if like they're the only people that figure out how to do that. But really any, I think like international like organized crime organization or intelligence agency or private intelligence contractor or even probably like a cop or a prison guard could probably like oh, do yeah, it to for you. Sure, for so, sure. yeah, you know, you it's like, there's all kinds of this, fucked up people yeah, that could do that. If that yeah, element, I, I, Cause the only thing that comes up when I search Kate Spade murdered is like that the Clintons did it. Oh, I know, uh, I know, exactly. Well, that was the same thing. Like, like the Clintons murdered Bourdain. They, they murdered Chester Bennington. They murdered right. Chris Cornell. They're just Seth murdering Rich. everybody, even though they're like not Where in are the you white Seth house. Rich, please. Oh, yeah, nice. yeah, exactly. Terrible. But yeah, yeah who can say, but I'm always sussed out when, when celebrities, uh, you know, kind of, I mean, it, it's also, it's a, it's a dirty game and it's a dark business and, you know, it's not always a uh, sunshine and lollipop. So sometimes people, uh, get into a dark place and do shit, but at the same time, like, I'm not going to automatically just go like, Oh, it's the vagaries of being successful. There's usually, I don't know, some dark shit going on. And, you know, after Epstein, you can't just assume that anybody hung themselves in, like, that kind of way. Like, from a door handle. That's the other thing is they all do it, like, from a door handle or something. 
It's mm-hmm. not like even like Mark Lombardi, where like he had like a noose. You know what I mean? Another True. I guess if you uh, if you want to minimize ambiguity about whether you committed suicide or killed yourself, then you probably shouldn't use a door handle. Yeah, with like a spooky red scarf. I don't know. Maybe you want to be fashionable, but still. Yeah, I mean, it might have been what was available. I mean, I guess a red scarf is odd. It's a little bit flashy. I don't know. Was Epstein also killed with what? What? What was? What was his? implementer he, of like death I at all believe he he wrapped like his whatever bed sheets he had I believe he like right, it was tied them sheets. together and like wrapped them around like tied them around the edge of the bed and like bent over and like leaned forward yeah I well because I just watched the Dasha movie and I remember yeah. at one point the Dasha movie they try to recreate it and they were using kind of like a an orange fabric in, in their recreation of it uh, oh, so I okay. I, I think, I, yeah, I don't know if that was supposed to be, life. like, indicative of his, like, orange prison jumpsuit that he took off and, like, used oh, yeah, to maybe. do it with. Because mm-hmm. I, I thought, I remember hearing that he had, like, these special sheets that were, like, supposed to be, like, suicide proof where they were not strong enough. They're almost like paper in a way. Like, they would rip if you tried to, well, like, yeah, exert too much force on them. I guess the sheet was against jail protocol. The one that he was found with? Yeah, the one that he had a strip of it around his neck. And oh, so okay, so somebody gave him or brought yeah. one in to do it to him and choked him that way. Cool. Yeah, yeah, yeah no, but I think the way it was per- portrayed in that movie was, like, more or less how it was, like, allegedly portrayed to have, like, he tied it and, then like, leaned forward right. and, like, mm-hmm. choked himself while the guards, like, slept or whatever. Um, allegedly, but, you know, who can really say... The Dasha it's, movie uh, kind of did a little bit of, um, I mean, it was funny, but it did a little bit of, uh, you know, counter signaling there because it kind of was implying that it would be possible for him to kill himself. You know, it was sort of a joke where they were like, see, it's impossible, but they almost died, like trying to do the recreation and mm, she had to be rescued. Dasha's yeah, character. yeah. yeah. Uh, she um, was edging. She was edging with that counter signal. Um, yeah. And cut um, it off last minute. Yeah. 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 But um, yeah, it's, I don't know. Yeah, yeah, celebrity suicides always sus. I mean, whether or not they were like driven to it by sus things or they were murdered in a sus way, like, you know, it's yeah. interesting. Can yeah. we leave it there? Did we do it? I guess so. I think so. I think we made it to 20. Yeah. Uh, we can hit the other 20. I don't know. Any final thoughts about Kate Spade? I, I don't know. Not really. I mean, yeah. Not really. All right. Well, in that case. Only ones that would get me sued, so. Yeah. <laughs> ready to wrap then well thanks to the grotto again for providing some real ass questions yeah we still have I'm looking already at the next uh, 20 that we have in the docket that we haven't gotten to yet I'm looking forward to those as well um, mm-hmm. we'll yeah, we we'll have some good apps them. coming down the pipe uh, yeah some good we topics got some big things, and some, some good more. ideas emerging in this episode i think actually it's always a fertile uh, t- we might not be able to own any farmland in- improv anymore but episode the- um <laughs> needs to happen yeah. uh joseph campbell episode china triad episode yep uncle ruslan episode possibly ariana huffington's sussness episode Etc. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, global citizen deep dive. Exactly. Mm-hmm. So, right. Yeah, Sesame we Street. got a lot. <laughs> lot. <laughs> yeah, Sesame Street being sus. Uh, yeah. Exactly. Yeah, you know, watch out, kids. Uh, right. But yeah, yeah, we got some got some good stuff coming up in the next month. Uh, yeah, Elsa Gate full Momo episode. <laughs> yeah. That's not you know in the immediate term, but that's going on the docket. It's going on the docket. 
It is, it is. Yeah. So, uh, we're, we're waiting we'll, for the real Momo killing to happen. Uh, you know, inshallah, it never does, but, you know. And any day now. We'll be on it. We're on that. We're watching that beat. Uh, yes, yeah. exactly. So that'll be it for now. And until next time, dear listeners, stay vigilant. Peace. Now, the third function of a mythological tradition is to validate and maintain a certain moral order. Now, these moral orders greatly differ from one society to another. For example, the requirements of a primitive hunting community are very, very different from the primitive planting community. What is required of the young men and women is, in each case, quite different. Likewise, in a complex society of differentiated tasks with professional doctors, medicine, medical men, Astronomers, scientists, governing people, trading people, all of these coordinated in one society, we have a quite different social problem, quite different moral problem from that of a simple primitive community. The individual must be shaped. He must be made to react in the way that that to society in terms of the social order. Now, some of these social orders are extremely ruthless and fierce in their requirements and extremely narrow in their demand. Individuals may be thus divorced, separated, so to say, from their own nature. Read some of the descriptions in the anthropological works of the primitive initiation rites. What is done to the young people in some primitive societies in order to test their courage, in order to integrate them in the social group? Now, most societies are extremely dogmatic and fierce in their integration of the individual. The individual is born as a separate entity. He is carved up, so to say, and made to fit into a pattern that the society required. It doesn't require a total man. It requires a part man. Not an individual, but a individual. Someone who has been divided up and put into a notch. Individuals must be shaped. produces this wonderfully rich being, full of possibilities. The society, and you cannot blame society, requires a certain specific limited type. It's got to have that, otherwise it can't exist. And so the individual is, so to say, carved in shape, garified, his teeth knocked out, his body is changed so that he'll know I'm a member of this group. He must be shaped. He must be made to react 